This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And welcome back episode of Art of Darkness, darkpod.com, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. I am one of the hosts of the show. I'm Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. Uh, Kevin, before we get into it, how you doing, man? Super, never better, Brad. Okay. I'm having a, a fantastic advent preparing for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm also, I'm also rocking a, a hat. So I want to, if you're, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you're going to see this hat for those who, who aren't watching on YouTube, Brad, what, Brad, what does this hat look like? Describe the hat. It, it's, it's a, it's a white hat with a, uh, I guess a gold colored, uh, logo on it. That seems to be a meat cleaver. And yeah. what is it cutting? What is it? It's a bear. It's a, it's bear. a bear. It's oh, a oh, white oh, oh. hat for white bear lake gold bears ah, oh yeah, yeah you betcha bears. and this is just a little shout out this is not a, a paid placement nobody told me to do this this is a shout out to my my butcher and his team at white bear butchery hitherto flicker meats in white bear lake minnesota if you are fortunate enough to be in the region you got to get over to this place they take care of me they make the, the most incredible deli sandwiches they've got it's one of these places where, and I know Bourdain is like, you know, people have kind of mixed opinions about Bourdain sure. in, in hindsight or whatever, but like, it's the kind of place where if Bourdain came to town and said, Kevin, 
Hmm. Take me around. Where would you go? This is probably the first place I would take him. So there you go. Shout out to Jeremy and and the team because yeah. they always take care of me. And this this podcast is sponsored by or is like powered by <laughs> powered by uh, like right. powered by. I don't know what it's powered by on Brad's side. Probably like you know dark occult rituals in the tarot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But on my side, it's powered by iced coffee. <laughs> and roast beef sandwiches and two large meat freezers that I have in the basement. I get I get big orders of meat. From, this is the Art of Darkness podcast, by the way, the <laughs> podcast about the dark side of creativity. I'm Kevin Couchman. We're ready to rock. And Brad, this is a core episode, by the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, last little anecdote. I, I I make these big orders with Jeremy and, uh, and, and the, the White Bear Butchery. And he sent me home one day with so much meat that I had to like race to Home Depot <laughs> to get a second meat freezer. My cup overfloweth uh, with yes. protein. Wonderful. Uh, Wonderful. And they do a great job. I yeah. was there when I was there for oh, the, yeah. in, in the Twin Cities for the, the live show. We went there and we got a sandwich and it was fantastic. So I can mm-hmm. second this um, that you should definitely go to. It was called Flicker Meats at the time, I think, still. but Yeah, I think still... Yeah. Yeah, I think still maybe if you're on Google, you're going to look up Flicker Meats. But I'm telling you, if you're in the Twin Cities, you know, even over in Wisconsin nearby, this is like a destination place. Go and get a sandwich. You will not regret it. It'll be like one of the best sandwiches of your life. Your, your life. And then just right down the way, there's like a nerd cafe, Battleground Cafe. I love those guys. Those guys are great. They have like, you know, coffee and you can play Warhammer. <laughs> you just, if you're in town, just, you know, whatever. But it's, it's a whole, thing, man. it's a good scene, man. And there's a lot of good stuff in strip malls here. I just recently posted a tweet about the uh the cup cafe uh which is keys cafe in okay. in roseville which is where it's where the cohen's film oh okay the yeah. the cuck the cuckold scene mm-hmm. in uh a serious man so every time i go in there and it's it's so fun because it's just it's a norman rockwell kind of a vibe everybody's chilling out and talking about their grandma and their grandpa and every time i'm in there i'm thinking about that scene from the cohen brothers because <laughs> they that's where they shot it yeah, anyway excellent all right excellent i know everybody loves our core episodes this is what we are here to do what do you mm-hmm. got for us brad yeah, well, today we're going to talk about Nina Simone, and, and I guess we'll get kind of right into the asking the Art of Darkness opening question. Kevin, what do you know about Nina Simone? Uh, jazz singer, iconic, considered one of the all-time great jazz singers, certainly one of the all-time great female jazz singers, uh, African-American uh, lady, and uh, Blood on the Leaves. I kind of have the impression of her as almost like she's like a kind of a thinking person. She seems very thoughtful mm-hmm. and a true artist, an artiste, mm-hmm. uh, not pop uh, mm-hmm. in, at all. And uh, obviously, you put her on, and it's a it's a vibe. Yeah, uh, yeah. But as far as her life is concerned, I know woefully little. But that is why we do this show, and right. so I, I can't wait to dig in further. Uh, yeah. Brad. I mean, you know, 20th century, mid mm-hmm. mid century. I, I assume she lived in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, she I was alive in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, 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 yeah okay. for sure. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's about all right. She would um, she would push back on the jazz singer label, but you would be not the first and or nor the last person to call her that. And we'll get into why she would push back on that. It's actually kind of an interesting aspect of the Nina Simone story. Um, but yeah, that's that's all that's all right on. Um. I think, you know, we'll kind of get into, I guess, why we're talking about her specifically. I mean, you know, we pick artists to cover on this show for a variety of reasons. Um, 
you know, we sometimes we do it just because we think that their work is interesting and we wanted to know or, or greater is appealed to us. And we wanted to know uh, almost on a personal level more about them and then share that with you guys, the audience. Other times it's we pick a person because we think um, they uh, they're an important um, moment in cultural history. And so if you understand their work and their story, you understand something broader about cultural history. Um, other times we kind of want to shine a light on somebody who maybe hasn't been noticed as much as as they should be. Sometimes we pick a person because they're um, they represent a kind of a, a type that is sure. worth knowing, right? I mean, sometimes we pick somebody because they're especially fucked up. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true, too. And I think in this case, it's Nina Simone. It's all of the above. Uh, to be quite honest with you, so so I think that's I love gonna, it. We got we got a full house here. We got mm -hmm. yeah, okay, very good. I'm excited yeah. about that. Super, yeah. yeah, so um, we'll just kind of get into it. I mean, so first, you know, why why Nina Simone? Why is she worth talking about? Why are we going to spend several hours? Why did I spend all month just listening to every recording I could get my hands on, reading biographical materials? My my primary sources are going to be um, Nina Simone's autobiography. I put a spell on you which was written with the help of a gentleman named Stephen Cleary. And then there's a number of Nina Simone biographies. The one that I ended up spending the most time with and drawing the most quotes from is this one, uh, Nina Simone, The Biography by a guy named David Brune Lambert. Quite good. There's also a documentary and a biography uh, by the same under the same name called What Happened, Miss Simone. The documentary is quite good. We're going to go deeper than the than the documentary. But um, if you want a little more Nina, if you want to see a couple of the live performances, um, if you want to hear her voice, that's a, that's a good thing. It's on Netflix. It's definitely worth checking out. Um, but OK, so why talk about her? <laughs> Here is a list of people who have in an interview somewhere said that Nina Simone was a significant influence on their work. Elton John, who actually named a piano after Nina Simone, Madonna, Aretha Franklin, Adele, David Bowie, Patti LaBelle, Boy George, Emile Sandy, Anthony and the Johnsons, Diana Reeves, uh, Sade, Janis Joplin, Nick Cave, Van Morrison, Christina Aguilera, Elkie Brooks, Talib Kweli, Most Deaf, Kanye West, Olivia Newton-John, Lena Horne, Bono, John Lennon, uh, John Legend, sorry, Elizabeth Fraser, Cat Stevens, Anna Calvi, Cat Power, Licka Lee, Peter Gabriel, Justin Hayward, Maynard James Keenan, Cedric Bixler Zavala, Mary J. Blige, Michael Gira, Angela McCluskey, Lauren Hill, Patrice Babatunde, Alicia Keys, Alex breath. Turner. Yeah, <laughs> right. It keeps going. Um, uh, John Lennon. John Lennon cited Nina Simone's version of "I Put a Spell on You" as an inspiration for the Beatles song "Michelle." Um, and one of the reasons I want to cite that is not just for the number of people, but the range. I mean, you're talking about from Lauren Hill to uh, David Bowie, right? There's quite a range of people who she had a significant influence on. People of her own time and people who are who are making music now you know, equally in some cases influenced by her. Sure, and there's some 17 uh, year old spinning that up for the first time and having their minds blown and yes. saying, yeah. I have to do this. Right. I have to do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What yeah. a beautiful thing, man. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Um, another reason to talk about Nina, it's super important culturally, not just as a musician, as an art artist, super important socio-politically she was an enormous figure within the american civil rights movement we're talking like james baldwin langston hughes stokely carmichael nina simone these people all go in the same sentence um and we're gonna we're gonna talk about 
that and how she fit and how she came into it, what her impact was there. Um, let me read a little thing from uh, Toni Morrison talking about Nina Simone. Um, and I think this will help us understand her influence and how important she was to at least some people, a lot of people. <clears throat> um, quote, this is from the uh, Nina Simone, the biography. Quote, uh, the writer Toni Morrison, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature and author of works devoted to the history of African-Americans, asserted that Nina Simone, quote, was fundamental to me in my generation. I only met her a few times. She was indestructible, incorruptible. She even scared me a little. She would tell us to take up arms. She would tell us to forget about Martin Luther King and nonviolence, that it was time to follow the Black Panthers, to join the revolution. I had to confess to her that I wasn't ready to take up arms and that I'd rather take up my pen. She'd be mad. Base, base, <laughs> base department. Yeah. I guess she wasn't ready to take up arms either because she channeled it all into her music. She was several women rolled into one. I loved her. There's really just one, one thing for me to say. Nina Simone saved our lives. Um, so you can take that to mean whatever you want it to mean. We're going to get into, we're going to get into how she fit into the civil rights thing, but we're going to talk about a lot of other stuff as well. Um, and here's a, here's, here's another thing. Here's another justification for her being on Art of Darkness and why she need deserves a closer look. This is from her daughter who she had a very troubled relationship with. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit, but here's a quote from Lisa, Lisa if, Celeste. Go ahead. If I may, uh, it's yep. starting to come back to me. I'm fairly sure I've seen like the major documentary about okay. Nina Simone, but it's been yeah. so many years that it's kind of blended into other sure. things, but yeah, sure. cool. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. Quote from her daughter. Yeah. Her from her daughter quote. My mother was one of the greatest entertainers of all time, hands down, but she paid a huge price. Okay. And that's, that's kind of what we're going to explore, right? Oh um, man, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's real hard doing this podcast, man. I'll tell you what. No, listen, yeah. I, you know, one of the, one of the things I love about uh, being able to do a podcast is that we get to do it in our little hidey hole. So we don't have to go out and actually be yeah. in front of people. Cause that is just like the psychic. Basis. Oh my God. And you're moving around and you're living in hotels and you're, you're eating food. That's not your own. And man, there's something about being at home. Oh, we're going to see, we're going to see how hard this ground down Nina Simone being Nina Simone was no picnic Um, full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's because, you know, it's easy to say, well, she was super successful and super influential and she had this amazing career and she did. And yet like think, think carefully about whether you'd want to trade places with her after this. Um, Okay. So, We'll get into the childhood stuff, you know, just lay the groundwork. Um, she's born, Nina Simone is born Eunice Wayman on February 21st, 1933 in Tryon, North Carolina, the sixth of eight children and a fairly poor family in the small, you know, kind of out in the woods almost, to be honest, uh, on the slopes of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, she would die in 2003 in Cary Lerouet, France. She'd be one of the most, as we said, one of the most influential recording artists of the 20th century, right? Grows up in a, born in a shack, dies in France as celebrated, you know, a celebrated artist, internationally celebrated artist. Um, what people probably maybe don't know about Nina Simone, kind of casual listeners, um, because we think of her primarily as a singer, um, is that she was classically trained. And that term gets thrown around a lot now, I think. Anybody who's taken like 
a semester at a at a conservatory is now classically trained. I'm yeah. classically trained in podcasting. Yes, that's right. I, yes. There was a little AV <laughs> class that we took where we made a little radio yeah. show in junior high. I'm classically trained, Brad. Yeah, yeah, mm. yes. <laughs> and, uh, but for Nina, there were years, uh, decades of her training, which was primarily self-inflicted, was almost life or death to her. And we're going to see how significant this this was. She, um, well, we'll we'll get to that. I mean, her first musical influence was Bach, right? It, it wasn't it wasn't the the spirituals. It wasn't maybe what you would think about a little girl born in North Carolina, a black girl born in North Carolina in 1933. It, she didn't have the same influences one might think she did. Um, she gets to all that stuff eventually, but but at first it's like Bach is her thing. So. Um, Somebody, no. we got to get Brad a glass of milk. Bah. Bah. Oh, I'm getting ready to do my Hesta episode. And as I'm reading about it, I'm like, oh, ooh, this is going to be fun. Oh, I think I know how to say that. I've kind of yeah. spent time in Switzerland. So, okay, hopefully I can. Yeah. Anyway, it's going to be fun. That one's definitely better for you to do, at least on that on that front, if nothing else. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Listen, so, Bach is potentially the greatest artist of all time. By yeah, I, many I people's think, estimation, and in, in, in across races and classes, and it, everybody just kind of goes, "That's it." Yeah, and I say this as somebody who's who's relatively naive about music, to be to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. part of the reason I don't talk about a lot of musicians, I don't pick them a lot of them as subjects for the show, is honestly my musical. Uh, I'm not that sophisticated musically, um, and so I respect Bach, but like I have no idea what he's doing. <laughs> so um uh anyway nina her mother i'll make sure box people know okay yeah let them let them know <laughs> <laughs> next time i'm at mass yeah <laughs> all right uh nina's mother mary kate irvin or mary kate wyman wayman uh was born in 1902 and her grandmother so nina's great-grandmother was half irish from some plantation relationship and uh, Nina's great great grandmother was a Cherokee who'd married a slave. So we're, we're not that far from slave times at all. When Nina is born, this stuff is... Americana only in America too. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think on her mother's side, it's her great grandmother. Nina's great grandmother was a slave. Um, and her great grandfather was a slave. Right. Um, Mary Kate, Nina's mother, grew up in a very religious family with 15 ministers. And Mary Kate would eventually become one as well, would become a Methodist minister as well. So highly, you know, highly religious family. Nina's father, a man named John Divine Wayman, named after St. John the Divine, author of the Book of Revelation, was born in 1899. Uh, Much less is known about his family, except that they're, you go back a couple generations and they were all, they were all slaves um he before he met mary kate and got married he was an entertainer himself he would perform in a white suit <laughs> uh playing you know piano and harmonica and uh, various little events at that time they were in south pendleton south carolina so he would play you know little bar rooms and things like that he gave it all up once he got married they would get married in 1922 they had john then lucille then the twins carol and harold uh, Harold caught spinal meningitis and would be paralyzed on one side for the rest of his life, which is scary. Um, John, Nina's father, 
would uh, work in a dry cleaning plant. He also had countless other jobs and enterprises during the years before, while his health was still good. Um, he ran a truck haulage company in the North Carolina mountains. He cut hair, a bunch of other things. Um, uh, Nino, now let me give you a little sense of, because this is going to be important as things come up. Let me give you a little sense of uh, racially what Tryon, North Carolina was like. Okay, because this is segregate. This is the segregation era. And I know we have a we have a bit of an international audience. And so, you know, we're going to get into some of the details without trying to get too lost in it in the civil rights movement. Why? What was going on? What was the context of all that? We'll try to get the, the high points. But, you know, in Nina's day as a child in the South, there were different facilities for black people and for white people. Um, on paper, the idea was sort of separate, but equal. It was separate and basically never anything resembling would equal. have been impossible. I mean, almost okay. impossible. It's, it's an irrational proposition. Really. It, it is. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. It's just yeah. cope. Um, yeah. And I know you're you're in the middle of this, Brad, but I did mm -hmm. want to yeah. say something, and it's that uh, we love hearing from our audience, and we've reached a point now where every day, every couple of days, we hear from people. Brad and I are starting to be, people will ask us to to write pieces now for outlets, which is very cool. I've got, mm -hmm. uh, I've got something that's going to come up in like January or February where it's nice for me because Werner Herzog is one of my heroes. He's still alive. Yeah. So I don't get to <laughs> I don't get to talk about him on the right. podcast, but I'm going to write about his uh, his new memoir and all of that. But really, if you're uh, a listener and you want to connect with us, the Telegram's a good good way to do it. T.me slash Art of Dark Pod. But we also have an email address, artofdarkpod at gmail.com. We have season four mostly queued up. People mm -hmm. people want to kind of jump on us and say, hey, do these people. And we when we hear from people, you know, and you give us three or four, it always goes into a spreadsheet. Yeah. So it's never wasted, right? right? But we we take these correspondences very seriously. I love hearing from somebody in New Zealand. Hey, guys, what's going on? So really, mm -hmm. if you want to reach out and uh, touch faith, you can find us <laughs> or you can email us at artofdarkpod at gmail.com. All right, Brad, Brad then, back to yeah. the, uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So let me read us a little bit about what Tryon, North Carolina was like right around the time that Nina Simone was born. <clears throat> and this is from her autobiography. So this is kind of her voice, right? Uh, quote, it was the South and it was 1929, but as a resort town, Tryon had developed in an uncommon way. For instance, there wasn't a black side of town. It was more like a series of circles around the center with blacks or whites living in these circles. And a few blacks, a few, lived almost in the center, almost in the white areas. It was a checkerboard type of living with areas that were totally white and a few pockets of blacks. The place existed mainly by taking care of the needs of visitors. So in their everyday lives, black and white townspeople mixed together all the time. Tryon was laid out in a kind of L shape with one of the legs being the main street. That's where my father had his barber shop and dry cleaning business. Most of the customers for dry cleaning were white, but nearly all the customers for haircuts were black. There was another barber shop a little way up the street where the white folks got their haircuts. The man who owned that place was also black, although he couldn't have he could have passed for white and was regarded as a white man so long as he had a pair of scissors in his hand. He lived a little way up the street from my parents, a black man outside of working hours. However, in the schools, hotels, restrooms, all the places people came into intimate contact, Tryon was like any other southern town at that time, segregated. Okay, so just give you kind of a lay of the land of, you know, where she she kind of came up. Um, 
she generally as a child didn't experience and this is I'm kind of paraphrasing her as a child. She didn't really experience racism as such on a regular basis. Um, it definitely became a factor later in her life. And we'll touch on that. But be one thing I kind of wanted to paint a picture is a somewhat naive, like all children are child growing up and gradually becoming aware of their of their broader cultural context. Right. And we'll see that happen to her over time. Um Okay, so John Devine, her father, had done actually a pretty good job of getting the family well-established by the early 1930s. They had a big house. They had playground equipment in the yard. He's a respected member of the community. He's got a couple businesses going, you know, pretty doing pretty well for himself, to, to be honest, especially having a gang of kids. You know, that's financially challenging, doing pretty well. And then 1929 hits and, you know. People, if you pay any attention to history, you know what happens in 1929, the Great Depression. And Tryon was a, a town that relied quite heavily on tourism. And those are the kinds of places that are the first hit when there's a major economic downturn, right? Um, basically, very quickly, Tryon becomes a ghost town um, or almost like a ghost town, especially relative to how it had been. So they get through the, the the Wayman family gets through the year 1932 by washing windows, sewing army uniforms in a national relief effort, driving government food to town to deliver it, uh, growing a lot of food in their own garden. This is the way that a lot of people got by in the during the Great Depression is just hooker by by hooker by crook. Do a little bit of this. You do a little bit of that. You grow some food in the garden. You help out your neighbor. They help out you. That that kind of thing. Um, and then. Nina was born, Eunice Kathleen Wayman. I'm going to read just a little bit from her biography, <clears throat> her autobiography. <clears throat> Quote, I, I was born at home at six in the morning. On my birth certificate, daddy listed his occupation as barber, although he hadn't been that for almost two years. Mama was down as a housewife, although she had been working right up to the week I was delivered. They still had their pride. I was christened Eunice Kathleen Wayman. Six months after I was born, daddy went off uh, the NRA program because at last they had started to open up some of the hotels again. NRA, national relief effort, this, these things that the United States government put together to try and help people out during the Great Depression. Give you some work to do that's actually useful, but it's maybe funded by the government. Um, uh, because he, yeah, he went off the NRA program because at last they had started to open up some of the hotels again, <laughs> a lakeside camp had opened for business and they took daddy on as a cook. So again, we had a steady supply of food in our kitchen. Daddy thought he was out of the woods and it would only be a question of time before, uh, our family would be up and moving. In the meantime, one way or another, he was making enough to feed all his family, including the new baby. That's Nina. Most of what I remember from the earliest part of my life is tied up with food and music. My first memory is of my mother singing. When she was around the house, she sang all the time in a high, trilling voice. She sang the same, so the same song she'd sing at Bible meetings, and they became the soundtrack to my infant life. I'll fly away, and if you pray right, or heaven belongs to me. While she barked, she would sit me up. Well, sorry, while she baked, she would sit me up on the countertop and give me an empty jam jar to cut out the biscuit Oof. shapes in the dough, Go on. Uh, singing all the while. It seemed to me that she performed miracles every day. When the other children had gone out, she'd look down at me and say, Eunice, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to get dinner. We'd look around to see what there was in the kitchen, and she'd be right. There was nothing there. 
dinner time would come around and out would come what we called the Wayman specials, vinegar pie made with apple cider vinegar and dough, dumplings, chicken, or if the twins had Oof. picked in, blackberry. A lot of Oof. dumplings always set down on the table with the same announcement. This stretches the meal. Rice pudding, brown betty, beans, tons of beans. When all those beans that got on top of us, mama would put sugar on them and create a whole new delicacy. Having attractions, people, if we don't get yeah. this, get our acts together, we're very, right. very, very fortunate right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were poor for a long time, but I can't remember ever going hungry. Not once. Mama made sure of that. Um, yeah. So they got by. Uh by 1935, work was once again, and you know, this thing, the economy kind of come, uh, rises and falls. By 1935, she's uh, two years old. Work is again and kind of has become somewhat scarce. Excuse me, again. And John Wayman falls ill. They realized they needed to downsize. They couldn't afford to live in the place that they were living in now. So they move into a shack outside of town. Uh, Mary wait, Kate. wait, wait, wait. They're, they're eating vinegar pie and beans and they can't afford the place they have and they got a downgrade from that. Yeah, Yikes. to a shack out in the woods. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Yep. Man. Um, it's rough. Yeah, we talk about poverty now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, is one poverty. Of these, one of these places, poverty. I can't remember if it's this shack. It's the next shack that they live in. They have to move from one shack to the next. <laughs> the oh, last because, oh. shack on the left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they, so they moved to this, they moved to this shack and then days later, her dad gets hospitalized because he has a blocked intestine and nearly kills him. They have to like cut out a big section of his intestine. Well, it's all the um, fucking dumplings in the, yeah, they're eating. I mean, they're eating. <laughs> Should have had not, more beans and you need, fi you need fiber. Yeah, people. You need fiber and protein yeah. and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And greens yeah. roughage. Oh, when you're yeah. just starving, you don't, yeah, no, of course I mean, not. You're not, not worried there. about, right. Yeah. Is this keto? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a, I'm sorry, I can't eat yeah. apple pie, apple I, I, cider pie. I have a gluten allergy. And... No more vinegar pie for me, please. I'd like a big, <laughs> I'd like a steak. Yeah, can Mother I just a... slaps across the face? <laughs> Who taught you that this, word? <laughs> I grew up around, yeah, exactly. Who taught you the word steak? Yeah, no. The people yeah. who grew up with this generation too, the Depression era people, they're, they were built different, man. Oh, they were not, yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. Depression era. Uh, grandparents generation who helped raise me like they had a garden that was as big as like like probably a 30 yard garden uh, yeah just the whole plot of land and it was always going and you know and they were always canning and there was and it's like yo it's 1992 right <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no nope. nope. yeah yeah okay boy and that yeah. food but then and the I'll never, I don't know if I'll ever taste green peppers. I mean, I'll have to go out of my way to find like, or, you know, organic green peppers, right. like literally fre fresh from the farm. Like what you get now, like at the grocery store, it doesn't have yeah. any taste. It doesn't have right. any flavor, you know, it doesn't you know, have any, you know what I'm talking about. a lot of it doesn't have, it doesn't have any nu nutrients. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 We're cooked. All right. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. So, okay. So they moved to this new shack. John Wayman falls ill and it's pretty serious. Uh, they, they describe it. There's like, when they cut the section out of his intestine, he has like a hole in his abdomen and it needs to be cleaned like 10 times a day to keep it from getting infected and nina becomes his primary caregiver at four years old four years old she's like literally taking care of her dad all day long cleaning his wound she's she's making him a concoction because he can't eat anything she's making him a concoction of eggs carnation milk and sugar and helping him to drink it and she's four years old right um he's slunking 
Dad's right. slunking. He is slunking. Daddy was slunking. <laughs> no. Get him, get him a Twitter account. They'll yeah. start to monetize the shit out of that. Yeah, Yo, you gotta right. eat, you gotta be eating more eggs, bro. Right. Twenty got twenty thousand followers. <laughs> Just mysteriously a book deal. Have you considered eating eggs? No, I hadn't thought about that. Holy is, shit! Is good. Whoa, this you is eat a, eggs? What a revelation. No, this is uh, we're, we're not subtweeting any anyone in particular. There's no. there's a lot no. to be said for eggs. There is. There is for sure. It's good. There's a lot of good things. in. Now, here's the thing. He gets sick. This all happens right around the same time. They moved into this new shack. That shack burns down. The only thing that they managed to save out of it is like this old pedal organ that who even knows where that thing came from. Their next house is worse yet. It was in the town of Lynn, and it was literally a shack out in the woods. They built an outside bathroom for it, and they were the first in Lynn, North Carolina to have an outside bathroom. Okay, wait, 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 you say outside bathroom. Are you talking plumbing or are we talking? I'm sorry. No, outhouse. before this, before the, the, the Waymans got there, you just went and found a place to shit out in the woods. Based. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, we had a disaster happen at our house this weekend. We yeah. we are having this reverse osmosis water filtration system, like this yeah. Cadillac system installed in our basement. I finally, we got a notice from the city that there's like lead in the water and I have a pregnant woman at yeah. home and babies and i'm just like okay yo we're gonna we're gonna get to the bottom of this this seems like it's worth the money they mm -hmm. come to install it friday afternoon pipe bursts upstairs uh... water uh half an inch thick in our in our bathroom leaking into the kitchen it wasn't they i whatever so mm -hmm. there's like an emergency group who shows up and just like dehumidifies the shit out of the whole place mm -hmm. and so we've got this industrial equipment running all weekend no running water all weekend Right. Fun. So I'm what I'm saying is I'm just like Nina Simone and her family <laughs> shitting in <laughs> the woods. Right. That's right. I mean yeah. 24 hours to... of inconvenience. It's exactly right. yeah, yeah, yeah. 72 <laughs> hours, right? And I'm, and I'm looking at my family, I'm going, you know, if we have to go, we'll go down to the gas station and just the looks I'm getting, like right. like I've like I somehow and I didn't grow up in the most uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but like no. in any case, yeah. No, so they they're the first ones who built themselves a, a shitter and yeah. an outhouse. Yeah, yeah. So a, just... a jake. A Jake, right. the yeah. Jakes, yeah, yeah. So you just Jakes, picture yeah. that. Like, this is the this is the living situation that, and they're like, that, and that's fancy. That's fancy. They, uh, yeah, you have to imagine the other people in town are like, oh my god, oh, god, who do they think you they know? are? Right? Yeah, these snooty Waymans come in from out of town. <laughs> suddenly they got a hole in the ground to crap in. There's a little moon on the door. Right, right, right. It's charming. Yeah. yeah, wild, right? Now we gotta. So I just want to set that scene. This is where she comes. She comes from. I, I want to talk about the music aspect a little bit more at this point. So later in her career, she does a she does this interview that goes along with the album she made live at Ronnie Scott's, and we'll talk about that more later because this is like at the end of her career. Um, but the interviewer asks Simone something like, "Well, how did you get interested in music?" And she said this quote. I was born a child prodigy, darling. I was born a genius, which means that at six months old, my mom said that I knew what notes were on paper, and it scared her. At three years old, I remember a piano came to the house, and I remember playing a song, God Be With You Until We Meet Again, in the key of F. And of course, I didn't know what the key was. So I leave you for that to unscramble, she says. <laughs> she would, when she was like an infant, um, Church ladies would say she could cl she would clap along to the music, right? You know, um, she again she was playing piano at literally three years old. Couldn't you can't reach the pedals? You don't even you know she can't. She can barely talk. 
I'm not a big reincarnation person. I don't believe in reincarnation. And yet things like this, you have to go like, well, I you could right. you could put it in the column of like, damn, man, was she like, was she Bach in a past life? Right. Like, right. Was she one of Bach's apprentices? I mean, who knows? But I mean, you know, I don't believe in it per se, but I can yeah. see how somebody, if they were inclined, would go, there you go. Right, right, yeah. right. Because uh, yeah. otherwise, how does, it, how does it make sense? I mean, I guess it's like just a fluke of brain chemistry would be the sort of Reddit atheist way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one thing about being like musically inclined, but it's another thing, like knowing how to play the instrument, right? Right. It's one thing to be able to like rem say hum it or say it, but like actually the mechanical operations of the piano, it's like at this I, point, nobody even taught her. I think some people, I think they see music. The way that like you and I are seeing each other now over Zoom and people see the show art of Art of Darkness, they, they like see the music. They can just sort of like associate the note with the placement of the fingers and it just makes sense. It just, makes sense to them somehow. They're, yeah. they're, they're a natural. They're a natural. So call it a prodigy. Call it a natural. Yeah. 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 The way that I I'm a natural podcaster. Right. <laughs> it's just they say when you were two years old, you were uh, <laughs> you were doing reads for uh, Harry's Harry's Razors. Yeah. Honest. <laughs> <laughs> I am having flashbacks to when I would force my friends, uh, you know, or, or if not my friends, the children in the neighborhood, uh, <laughs> yeah. would force them to, uh, we would do little radio shows. So I remember that as a kid. I mean, really? This is stuff that I, yeah, yeah, that's what I okay. want to do, you know, and somewhere in the back of my brain anyway. Yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are now. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me read a little bit from the biography on this music, on this music thing again. <clears throat> Quote, still only small, Eunice had an ear for music. My mother told me, oh, I already kind of gave you that part. Um, But she does say, oh, she does say this. My mother told me that when I was a baby, I only had to see an image, hear a radio advert of two or three notes of music, and I was off singing. It was in me. Music was in me. Her mother told her that she would raise herself on her arms and look around when she heard music playing. Uh, the ladies uh, at, at church had been amazed to see the baby in her crib tapping to the rhythm of the hymns. Everyone agreed that it must be must surely be a divine manifestation. The village buzzed with rumors of the miracles that took place at the Wayman home. It was said that age at age two and a half, the first time that Eunice touched the keyboard of the organ, she played the song I mentioned before. Um there's another part. Uh, Eunice was also compared to Mozart, and we think, uh, and we think of his sister Nannerl, who at eleven was playing on the harpsichord or the piano, the most difficult sonatas and concertos of the great masters, with the greatest of clarity, clarity, incredible ease, and the best of taste. The extraordinary experience of the four-year-old Eunice opening Sunday services. So she's four years old, and she's playing the piano to open service at the church. Um, uh, w was interpreted by the community as a divine manifestation. It should be remembered that this was a community in which Christian rituals evoked ancient spirits and magic. Had the grace of God filled this child? Had a spirit possessed her body? Uh, these religious rit rituals were the fruit of, quote, intangible expressions of African culture, and the child had immersed herself in it well before discovering classical music. When she played on Sundays, the walls of the church trembled. The faithful came from far and wide, some more than 50 miles there and back to hear the young tr prodigy. Right. So she's literally people are coming down out of the hills to church on Sunday morning to hear a four year old play the piano. Wow. Right. Wow. <laughs> so this doesn't surprise me for some reason. Hearing her music, you go, this is just some there's a preternatural natural quality mm -hmm. to it which is yeah. not to take away anything from her but no 
No, uh, I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it's it's just, her, it's it feels like something that's coming from the beyond. Yeah, it's a gift. It's mm-hmm. a gift. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and 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 like all gifts such as they are there's a curse like aspect to them torturous um, torturous and also like yeah. yeah alienation because nobody else is very very few people are oh, going to be able to she can't to re- hang with her she can't relate to anybody she grows up with she doesn't no. and, right. and and this is the thing so from the age of this idea that she was a manifestation of the divine or something becomes a lot of pressure on her and she takes it on board. So from the age of six to 12, she was putting in more efforts to get better at the piano than most adults have ever put into anything. <laughs> so the way I think about it, just like go grinding at six years old, right? Understanding that she, that there are levels to this. Right. knowing you know knowing she can get better at it and and, and wow. clearly enjoying it on some level too right uh, uh, you know and and obviously it all worked out and mm-hmm. uh there's no value judgment here but uh god i mean the the fates to place her in tryon north carolina and not on the upper west side and not right. in paris or in vienna right. it's just gnarly it's just so intense to think about right. yeah right. she made it she made she it. did yeah, and, yeah. and but it could and, easily and clearly her community lifted her up and and they recognized it. Yeah, uh, that doesn't always happen. Yeah, so well, kudos this is to them. The, the the community what the community does is fascinating. This is actually the sort of the next part. So she has this period where she's performing. Uh, she performs at two church services on Sunday, rehearses with the core on the choir on Fridays, plays for Wednesday night prayer meetings, and and attends and performs at as many holiness revival events as she could. And then at home, she practices on the organ. So this is you're talking to a kid who's playing three, four, five hours a day at six and seven years old, most of it, uh, you know, self-motivated. Now, her mother, in addition to being a minister, did white housekeeping for white families. One of these clients was this woman named Mrs. Miller. And Mrs. Miller realized it was a shame that Nina didn't have like actual training, right? We need to do something with this girl, right? This is, you can't just let her play in the church every Sunday and clap. And then we all say that was great. We need to actually do something with this. So she says that she will pay for Nina to get one year of tuition with a piano teacher that she knows. And if that works out, that seems good and she's continuing to develop to develop we'll figure out a way to continue that tutelage after that year so this is when nina gets introduced to a woman named muriel masinovich and miss mazzy was a refined english woman who lived in tryon for who knows why um and she was married to a a reasonably successful artist and talented pianist uh and so around six years old nina starts going over to miss mazzy's house as she calls her um, she would walk two miles there, two miles back, you know, cross the railroad tracks, as it were. She would stop at Owen's drugstore and get a sandwich, but she was not because she was a little black girl. She was not allowed to eat in the drugstore like everybody else. She had to go stand on the curb and eat God. her eat her cheese sandwich. That stuff is um, so sad. Isn't it? It's like just sad. she's a it's like she's, she's a, like a genius. She's like a generational genius and right. because and of the black let her, skin, can't she can't let, just like little girl can't hang. I mean, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. No. I mean, right. good riddance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh and so Nina ends up loving Miss Mazzy. Miss Mazzy is like her surrogate. I don't, know if, I don't know if that's the word. It's like her second mother. Miss Massey is 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 wonderful and trying to teach her all, as much as as much as she could. Um uh let me give you a little bit on Miss Mazzy from the bio. Um, 
Ms. Mazzy. Ms. Mazzy. And, in and Tryon, would, North Carolina. Yeah. Nina would love Ms. Mazzy for life. It's like, it's like decades later, she'd go back to Tryon just to see Ms. Mazzy. Oh, I love um, it. As yeah. you, as you read, I'm going to stand up and get more uh, jet fuel, but okay. I am listening. Yeah. All right. I hope yeah, everybody's okay. enjoying this. We love doing these core episodes. I can already tell this is a banger. Brad has mm-hmm. crushed it. Brad has put in the work. <laughs> you know what? Before you read uh, mm-hmm. what you're going to read, Brad, pitch yeah. what is coming for After Dark for Patreon. Oh, yes. Yeah, good. Thanks for the reminder. So we got a couple of things. Um, we're going to really cover three major things in the After Dark. After Dark is for our beloved Patreon supporters. We do an extra 20 to 30 minutes uh, bonus content just for you guys. And we like to say something. We like to save something particularly interesting for that. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the possible spooky relationship that Nina Simone had with a big black dog and... I'm not talking about an actual dog. I'm talking about the black dog of English folklore. So that's an interesting story. We're also going to talk about um, this psychiatric medication she went on in the late 80s and the effect it may or may not have had on her. Um, And we're going to talk about uh, a time in the early 90s when Nina Simone's violence finally got out of control. Like she should have gone to prison and oh, damn. Yeah, no. Whoa. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but we're going to talk okay. about that. Well, uh, this black dog, that's probably why you were talking about, you know, yeah, the Freudian slip about barking. Okay, good. So this <laughs> is going to be good. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you gave the pitch. We always do a, you know, bonus time for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. We appreciate all our existing supporters. Get on board if you haven't. We love you guys. We want to keep doing this show for a very, very, very long time. The material support makes all the difference. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. If you do not want to use Patreon, you can use PayPal. You can do a one time. You can and you can leave a note in there and say, hey, mm-hmm. I really appreciated the Nina Simone episode. Uh, you just go to artofdarkpod.com. There's a PayPal link. You can't miss it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Yeah. Bring us back. Okay, so, yeah, this is uh, from the biography. <clears throat> Excuse me. Quote, during her lessons with uh, Mazzy, Nina learned uh, classical music's equivalent of algebra, solfeggio. She learned to decipher musical scores, to read and, read and write music, understand the rhythms and sing a tune, the role of the right hand, which played themes and melodies, and the left, usually focused on rhythm and harmonies. The child learned all of that with ease, so her teacher allowed her to skip a few stages in her tuition. She taught her easy pieces, introduced introduced her to a few composers, uh, woke her up to Mozart, and had her learn a few of his early works. Then she introduced her to Liszt, Cerny, and most importantly, Bach. Bach. She immersed the child in his two-part inventions, his fugues and contrapuntal writing, which later on, she would basically introduce contra- counterpoint and fugue into jazz phrasing, which is kind of interesting. Um, Miss Mazzy made her study the preludes, then later the art of fugue, the toccatas, etc. Through Bach, you, uh, Nina rediscovered emotions that she'd already felt in church and that reached beyond music alone. Nothing in the nuances she deciphered could explain how it how she felt. It was as though a higher force flowed from the harmonies she played, like some kind of presence, a gateway to a sacred dimension. And then this well, is Nina's words. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. yeah. It is. Um, This is Nina's words. Once I understood Bach's music, I never wanted to be anything other than a concert pianist. Bach made me dedicate my life to music. And so after this, Nina at some point makes a decision, partially from the influence of her mother, that she is going to be the first black classical pianist to perform at Carnegie Hall. That's her goal. Literally, like 
after she has hit records, that's still her goal. It's like, this is all noise. What I need to like, what I want to master is Bach and, and Mozart. That's what she wants to be doing. So we'll see how we'll, we'll keep track of that as time goes on here. Well, no yeah. doubt she played Carnegie Hall. She oh, must yeah. have done, yeah, many yeah. times. Yeah, we're, okay. we're going to well, we'll talk about it. what happened at Carnegie Hall. She she definitely made it to Carnegie Hall. And, and well, this and is what I always say too. when when I talk about what I tell people that we're expecting a child, and you know, I always say, and we have three, four kids, you know, and and then I always say, you know, how you get to Carnegie Hall? Yeah, practice. practice. <laughs> That's my <laughs> That's joke. Right. Yeah, it usually right. gets a laugh. Yeah, yeah. Now. uh, the year comes to an end at which Mrs. Miller was going to pay for this tuition. So, you know, this is quite a good thing. They're trying to help, but, you know, we got to be realistic here. Um, so what are we going to do? Well, Miss Mazzy and Ms. Mrs. Miller, they set up the Eunice Waymond Fund to collect money from the community to further Nina's uh, education. All the churches in the Tryon area took up collections and there were donations from all walks of life. Um they wanted to everybody they were the entire community particularly the black community but not only the black community was uh, of Tryon was putting a lot of faith in nina and and frankly a lot of pressure um they would in sort of return for this fund that they were building up which at this time was just paying for miss excuse me uh the tuition to to study with miss mazzy but would later finance other things um, Nina was asked to play a recital and here we get a sort of a legend of Nina's life. Her first real encounter with like in your face, you know, racism that she really onboarded, you know, the one thing about segregation, I think in Nina's case, at least, and I, I've never lived through it. So I don't want to, you know, have too strong of an opinion, but I think Nina, the, the, the sort of everyday segregation just felt like how things were. And she didn't take it personally necessarily, but when she's either 11 or 12, she puts on a recital at the, um, I think it's the public library, and her parents come, her parents sit in the front row, and then some other people come along and try and tell her parents that they have to sit in the back, right? Yeah, it's her. get right. Right, get exactly. And Nina, and Nina, 11 years old, stands up and said, you put them back in the front or I'm not playing. And that's like, Based. that's emblematic of her whole vibe she's like yeah. i'm up here i'm in charge and I, right you know, I'm i am old, in the front i, I am right. driving this bus right right so if they go if i want them to sit in the front they're going to sit in the front like and i'll just walk away i'll throw it all away i don't get you know and and this it's it's awesome frankly that and is that is, is an awesome scene and this is her vibe this that is, is like that is like made for the the biopic it is it yeah. is yes yeah. yes exactly um Okay, so so that happens. She's continuing this education. She continues working with Ms. Mazzy for a while. Now, uh, 13 years old, it's time to go to high school. Um, you know, one thing I guess we should know, we did kind of say it, this level of dedication to music, as a child, she had few, if any, friends. Um, and when she did have friends that she played with, most of the time they just tried to get her to like play the piano or sing. Like she became sort of a novelty to the other children. The wind up, wind up toy. Right. And so she didn't have, she wasn't intimate with anybody and she's, you know, she's kind of lonely. She's got a lot of siblings, but even them, she doesn't relate to particularly well. Um, now she, she, so <laughs> she did see Bach in her mind. She yeah. can understand Bach and then like. Let's go play tag. 
Right. It's rough, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's hard to relate to those kids. <laughs> and, and, and and she had she had pictures of Bach hanging up in her bedroom. I you know, that. like like another kid would have an athlete or whatever. Sure. Yeah, yeah, she had pictures of Mozart and Bach and she considered them her best friends as a child. That is that is wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay, so they end up sending her to uh Allen High School for Girls in Asheville, North Carolina. Um she actually that's liked a good it. school uh, apparently yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't really know a whole lot about it <laughs> she uh she apparently liked it was fairly disciplined and she actually apparently really liked the discipline she did start to make a few friends um but she got up every morning while she was in high school on her own she does this she gets up every morning at 4 a.m to practice for a few hours before school starts right so just like literally 13 years old you're getting up at four to play the piano for you know because you got to get it in before school this bs of school starts right <laughs> um she had a boyfriend in high school this guy named uh edney who was a native american boy um might have really been the only guy that she actually loved and we'll see how how unlucky in love nina is throughout her life um she uh she Oh, she graduates at the head of her. So she basically high school is she has this one romantic relationship with this boy, Edney, practice piano every day. She graduates at the head of her class at this high school. She's the, the number one student. And literally, there's a newspaper article in Asheville newspaper about child prodigy is the valedictorian of her high school. Right. So this is the kind of, you know, she's she's a little bit of a freak to be Get honest. her to Harvard, man. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Just go. Just punch the ticket. Send her to yeah. East Eastman or Juilliard would be. Right. Right. Well, this is what happens. So she goes right after high school. She goes to she attends a summer session at Juilliard. She would later say that she went for an entire year, but she spends a summer session at Juilliard. Um, very. That, too, think, is a good school. That is a good school. <laughs> And, and I think it was a good experience for her, but you have to remember she's from a small town, in North Carolina, and she went up to live in Harlem for a summer by herself. It was very, Ooh, she was kind old? of freak. 17, 16. What she year? never left uh, 1950. Man, she's probably, she's hopping the A train, man. Whatever. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> yeah. I did that for a long time. That's yeah. that's partly where my obsession with protein comes from, because you can't really get any good protein in New York unless you're right. ultra wealthy. Right. So right. now I back in Minnesota, man, I just stab a homeless guy in an alley. <laughs> yeah. It's what? That's how, you get, what? that's how you get protein. That, that, oh my going. God. That's, that's, that's why Brad, that's why Brad's always, be, keep him in Michigan, man. This keep is why I don't live in New York. Werewolf in, yeah. in Michigan. That's like, you know, I'm sorry. This is a bit of an anecdote, but last night I was talking <laughs> with my uh, with my lady about. Um, uh, well, I, I posted something about my least favorite uh, Christmas song being the little drummer boy, and I, okay. I realized last night why it, it, it's my least favorite. Nobody wants to think about the na the na uh, nativity, baby Jesus in the manger, and then this little waif shows up with a fucking drum. <laughs> That is not my vision. And he's like, you get this like fucking Ringo wannabe starts hammering away. And the Virgin Mary is like, yo, I mean, she's just giving birth to God. Can we can we knock it off with the drums for a second? Maybe the last imagine, you know, you your 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 lady is just uh giving birth and some little homeless boy shows up with a drum. I mean, it's horrible. And of course it's not a tradition. It was yeah, you know, you and your drum. You know, it was written in like 1941, but then but then she's like, Well, what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite uh, Christmas song? And I said, question. <laughs> I said Rudolph because he gets his revenge. 
<laughs> well, that is the spirit of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and we just cracked up for 10 minutes. She's like, you're so cynical. Oh, my God. I'm like, no, he does. He shows up all the radio. Yeah. She's like, that's not what that song is The hero is story. About. That's not what that song is yeah. about. Anyway, what's your... just. <laughs> <laughs> just for the record uh for the record for for the art of darkness uh listeners what is your least favorite christmas song brad oh you know what's funny is it's it's the the um oh is it the beatles one it's the beatles one with everybody the, hates with the one. synth oh god but it's oh my god. earworm if i hear it I, once it is in my head for a month straight i heard a cover of that shit today why would you cover it why would, why would you cover it why would you perpetuate like the, this into like the world taking the lid off of like you know it, uh, yeah yeah, his literal demons. Just leave it. Just leave it. Leave and it I'm on. a Beatle fan. Beatles fan. Me too. I'm prepping Hessen. I'm prepping John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not an. I'm not one of these people who thinks the Beatles are overrated. I mean, it's, sure. It's no. Amazing. I mean, they, yeah. But they, yeah, you, you know, can't rate them highly enough. Doesn't mean yeah. that they didn't. Well, and what's your a couple clunkers? <laughs> oh, bloody, oh, blada. What's your What's your favorite Your favorite Christmas song? Bro? Oh, that's tricky. Um. I honestly, you know, maybe it's a little trite, uh, silent night. Yeah. You're that's in, beautiful. You're in, I mean, I grew up going that's to a beautiful going song to Catholic mass Christmas. They bust out the silent night and it was always, you know, was one, that's what one, I mean. One, and then the little drummer boy it. shows up and fucks it up. <laughs> Shut up, kid. <laughs> Let's take some lessons. All right. Back to back to the great Nina yeah. Simone. Okay, so after Juilliard, the idea is that she's going to go. Oh, by the way, the Eunice Wayman Fund paid for her to go to Juilliard. So this little t this little town decided that this little girl, forget segregation, forget all this stuff. We're going to try and make something happen in this little girl's life. She's too she's too talented to be to be ignored. Um, so after this little stint to Juilliard, the idea is that she's going to go to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, also a good school. Um, it's a renowned, you know, this is a renowned private music conservatory. It's one of like the top three or four in the country, apparently. Yeah, it would be um, Juilliard, Eastman, and then I think I've heard of this one too. Curtis, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's probably five, like five or six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and it seemed like she was going to get in, right? All signs kind of pointed towards it, and uh, the Waymans were so convinced that she was going to get in that the whole family moves to Philadelphia, uh, <laughs> and you know, okay, so she doesn't get in. She's one of 75 pianists to try out that year. Three are accepted. She plays Bach, Mozart, uh, Rachmaninoff. She played spl and splendidly. Um, she doesn't get in. Um, let me read a little bit about this. Um, this is again from the biography. <clears throat> Quote, Sylvia Hampton, her English biographer, thinks that until the Curtis defeat, Nina had been sheltered from racism by the love of her family and the support of the Tryon community. I mean, you do have to think like it's hard to develop a, 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 a perspective on the world that racism is a problem when your entire town is like rooting for your every move. Right. Even even if there are like things here and there, it's kind of hard to feel like, oh, I'm being, you know, held down by the system. And, and this kind of cuts against maybe some of our impression about the way that it was. I mean, it was. I don't want to run cover for the way it was, but right. I think that people have this, it's very, very cut and dry and it was just pure evil and da, 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 right. it's muddy. There's muddy right. and I, and I'm not a Southerner and neither are you. So yeah. right, right, right. There we go. 
Yeah. Uh, the curtain, when she got rejected by Curtis, the curtain had suddenly dropped. This overprotected young girl now had to accept her failure it had, it had, and submit to a life no one had prepared her for, anonymity and slavery in disguise. The failure was made public, spread through the streets of Philadelphia, and within a few hours reached Tryon and the Good Samaritans of the Eunice Wayman Fund. Fund. At that precise moment, the special bond between mother and daughter was stretched beyond repair. Mary Kate, Nina's mother, couldn't stand watching her pace around the house looking for a solution that didn't exist. She would never forgive her. What good were all those prayers if the only reward was this slap in the face? And how could she get her revenge now for her family, for her, and for her race? From that day on, regardless of the way the young pianist's life turned out, whether or not she achieved her goals or found a job, like her mother had demanded of her, nothing could ever erase this scar. And from that moment, Eunice and Mary Kate lost one another for good, neither of them proving capable of alleviating the other's disappointment. So the, the whole family had put all this weight on Nina's going to be the thing. And the Curtis rejects her and they don't really know how to handle it, <laughs> to be honest. And it kind of disrupts the family. And pretty soon, they, again, they'd, moved, they'd, they'd all moved to Philadelphia for this to happen. Um, now let me read another little bit because, because, you know, th there's one thing Nina felt that she was rejected for her rate because she was black. Um, but, and that could be the case. I mean, I'm not, we're not in the heads of the people who are making this decision. On the other hand, there's 75 pianists who tried out and three made it. Um, it's not very good odds for anybody. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, it's like a percentage like 1% of people are getting in or something like that. So, so you know, it's hard to say. Um, uh, but let me read this little bit. Um, well, actually, is that what I want to read? Um, okay. <clears throat> uh, duh, 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 sorry. Oh, I'm in the wrong book. That's why I'm in the wrong book. Now, she, she, she's in Philadelphia. She gets rejected by Curtis. But she has money left in the Eunice Wayman fund. So basically what she does is she starts paying for private sessions with the same teacher she would have had had she gone to Curtis. So in a way, she set up her own Curtis Institute of Music, essentially, using this money from Tryon. Um, now, there's a little bit about. Um, yeah, um, after a couple lessons, Professor Sokoloff, this guy Vladimir Sokoloff, who's her teacher, said, I really should have been a scholarship student. And at last I knew for sure how good I was. So she she does restore a bit of enthusiasm for the piano after this. And she's working with this guy. And he, according to Nina, he says, you should have got it. Now, interestingly enough, just days before Nina Simone dies in 20, uh, 2003, the Curtis Institute of Music um, gives her a degree <laughs> they tried to make up for it um, just like rudolph she got her revenge she's she at the front of the sleigh that's right yeah. that's right yeah. and if you don't think we've done how many core episodes now brad i've lost 60 count. Mm. in the 60s somewhere quite a few and uh so we've thought a lot about artists and their dark their so-called dark side mm. uh, and all the rest of it a lot of people are motivated by spite and revenge, a desire yes. to, sh I will show them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's a fuel. And, and, and the thing is uh, you can channel, it's a thing just like anything. You can channel it and use it to be productive and, and make do things, or you can just let it 
fucking destroy you, right? She could have just spent the next 30 years pacing around Philadelphia saying, oh, poor me, this thing happened to me. Absolutely. Or you could do both like John Berryman. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good point. Now, um, so, okay, so she's got these lessons with Vladimir Sokolov. She's also starts, um, she starts, uh, working for a vocal coach so she starts playing the piano at basically a, a singing school uh, it's just kind of a storefront thing it's not anything like curtis institute this is like teenagers who can't sing want to be singers right and they go to this and, and nina plays the piano she gets good enough at this that she decides to start doing it on her own um so she she's she's 18 years old and she has a storefront music school basically that she has she has built up on her own um which is pretty awesome, even if it wasn't like super financially successful. I mean, that's that's a, to me is like a very entrepreneurial and very like motivated thing to do. Like, oh, I could go work in a grocery store or something, or I could like literally start a business based on the one thing I know how to do. It's pretty it's pretty awesome. Um, now, at this time, she also spends some of her money going to a therapist. So she realizes that there's something not quite bright with how old Nina's brain works. And so mm-hmm. more of that's going to come up later, but women will literally go to a therapist rather than let their demons destroy them. <laughs> that's pretty women good. be that's, doing therapy. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You might should tweet that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, now, so she starts this, she starts this, this, school um and at some point one of her students tells her yeah um i i gotta i'm not gonna take lessons with you anymore i'm going down to atlantic city to play in a bar for the summer and nina's like but you're you're a terrible singer and even worse piano player and he's like yeah it doesn't matter (laughs) it's fucking it's atlantic city (laughs) yeah it doesn't matter so she looks into this i want to hear about this but if you want to know where hell on earth is hell on earth is the greyhound station at atlantic city god I've been in a lot of Greyhounds and that one's got to be, I've never been in that one particularly, but I can picture it. It is the bottom of the toilet of the West. (laughs) It's just horrific. It's horror. (laughs) Don't ask how I ended up there. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So Nina gets, Nina goes down there and she gets a gig playing at a bar in Atlantic city. This is the summer of, uh, I want to say 1954. Four, I think. I, yeah. Wow. I mean, if you could teleport yeah. back to like 1954 Atlantic City, I'm sure it's very, very different from the way it is now. And uh, boy, I, that would be something to see the boardwalk yeah. and the buildings and what it must have been like. It, yeah, it must yeah. have been very, very, I mean, very it, different. It, it still fit a lot of the same like rule. It, it was still like the vacation spot where for like the Eastern New York and Philly. Or, yeah, Philly. If you weren't going to go to Florida. Of- yeah. Half of Philly empties out on Friday afternoon and goes to Atlantic City, and that's where right. they go and uh, you know uh, spin the old roulette roulette wheel. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. They have to have they have uh, you stay there, and they have safety checks if you're staying alone. Oh my God, is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Jeez, <laughs> get is that to make sure dude. what you're not getting raped or you're not committing suicide or what? Yes, a little bit of all of this. Yeah. Whew. Okay. She gets that's crazy. I've never been to Atlantic City. It's the one I've been a lot of places in the United States. That's one place I never you can have you can have a good time in Atlantic City. You just have to know where to stay and uh just keep an eye on your wallet. Yeah, gotta be able to hold your liquor. That's all. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, Let me tell you the the cocktail waitresses in Atlantic City. That is yo, I mean, if you could just do a podcast interviewing those those ladies, that would be I would listen to that show. 
that seems like that seems like got some stories that seems like that's like the grizzled veterans of the service industry that's like talking to like they've seen it all yeah 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 yeah. okay this is about nina playing in a bar quote in atlantic city quote up to that moment i had never been into a bar in my entire life I push the door open. First time you go into a bar, you play for the crowd. Like, what a weird, like, what do you know about what these people want or who they are? You know, I pushed the door open and my eyes watered from the smoke and my nose twitched as the smell of the place hit me. I walked up to the bar and I asked if I could please speak to Harry Stewart, the owner. The barman asked what I wanted and I said I was the new pianist. He said Harry was a little tied up. Would I wait? I said yes. He asked if I wanted a drink and I asked for a glass of milk. A few of the old Irish guys around the bar laughed, and I blushed. I looked around out of the corner of my eye. The Midtown, this bar, was just one long room with the bar stretching two-thirds of the way down one wall. Some tables and chairs were laid out in the remaining space, and a piano stood on a tiny raised stage at the back. I reckoned the entire place could hold about a hundred people if you greased each one and slid them in sideways. There was a door by the end of the bar, and behind that was a room where they put the drunks to sleep it off when they'd had too much to make it home. There was sawdust on the floor. It was a joint. No other word for it. At least no decent word for it. Harry Stewart came out from his room at the back. He was a little Jewish guy and had a fat cigar in his mouth. as a permanent fixture. He uh, He took me up to look at the piano, which was okay. And in the roof above the keyboard, exactly over where I would sit, was a leaky air conditioning machine. Water dripping down in the piano stool. Harry went into his office and came out a moment later with a black umbrella, which he opened up and jammed into the ceiling by the air conditioner so that the water dribbled down the side of the umbrella and fell in a little pool. The guys at the bar must have thought I was from another planet when I walked in that night. The only public performances I had ever given were classical recitals, and all my training and presentation was for the concert stage. Miss Mazzy had taught her, like, how to bow, what to wear how to act, all of the mannerisms of being a classical pianist. And now she's performing in some crappy joint in Atlantic City for a bunch of drunks. Quote, "Uh, I decided that whatever they might think of me, I was probably the finest pianist they'd ever hear. So I was going to present myself as such. When it came to actually playing, I would get through it by closing my eyes and pretending I was somewhere else like Carnegie Hall or the uh, the Metropolitan Opera. So I put on my le- my best long chiffon gown, fixed my makeup and hair just like I always did, and went to work. Nobody said anything when I walked in, but they all turned to look at me. Harry's cigar almost went, on, went out. I sat on stage a diva, a professional entertainer for the first time, and played to an audience of drunken Irish bums. The deal was I performed from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. with a break of 15 minutes every hour. For that, I got $90 a week plus tips and as much milk as I could drink. That first night was the only thing was that first night. The only thing I wasn't nervous about was what to play. I knew hundreds of popular songs and dozens of classical pieces. So what I did was combine them. I arrived prepared with classical pieces, hymns and gospel songs and improvised on those occasionally slipping in apart from a popular tune. Each song, which isn't really the right way to describe what I was playing, lasted anywhere between 30 and 90 minutes. I just sat down closed my eyes and drifted away on the music <clears throat> um the first night she performed she didn't sing at all and harry stewart the owner afterwards said uh that was really good but if you don't sing you're fired and that's how nina became a singer it was the fact that like that was sing for your supper that's right. it that's yep. it <clears throat> yeah she didn't mm. sing before that. This is an incredible story. <laughs> Isn't it? Right? It's amazing it's so, that there has so not been 
a biopic. Yeah. Well, there has. Oh, has there? It's not good. Oh, well, that. <laughs> so it's amazing yeah. there has not been a biopic. A good one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, it, it, and so she begins to draw a crowd at this place. It you know, doesn't happen overnight. It takes some time. But, you know, there's Atlantic City's bustling in the summer. And so eventually this becomes one of the things to do in Atlantic City. I'm going to go. We're going to go see this, this, this very strange, extremely talented pretty black girl play music in a way we've never really heard before it becomes a it becomes a thing um now this is also the same time that nina chooses her stage name um because you're not gonna go up there and be like i'm eunice i'm eunice wayman yeah (laughs) yeah doesn't work the reason that she picks her state of stage name is because she did not want her mother to find out she was playing in nightclubs her mother is super religious and her right. mother thinks so, this is music of the devil. Like you might as well, you well, might as well be having premier. I mean, look sex, around, you know. look, look yeah. around. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it is. Not a hundred percent wrong. Yeah. I'm not, I, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like anything else. It's, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, Oblada, Oblada, yeah. music of the devil. Right. Right. We're always having a wonderful <laughs> Christmas time. Yeah. Music of the devil. Right. Weird little drummer boy. Yeah. yeah. Music of the devil. <laughs> okay. Rudolph. Okay. Yeah. That's that's God's that's, own tune, that's God's, buddy. That's, God's, <laughs> that's the old testament. God. That's right. Mm. Uh there's a hilarious bit for people just on this. Uh we're we're thinking we're in a Christmas mode. If you're listening to this some other time, it's it's December 17th right here. Um uh, there's a great part in Trailer Park Boys where it comes it becomes obvious that Ricky, one of the main characters, doesn't know the difference between Santa and God. He thinks it's the same guy. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Um, mm. Okay. So Nina Simone, why did she pick the name Nina Simone? Well, one, she'd gone on a d- couple dates with a Mexican boy that called her Nina, right? For little. Uh, and she took, so she took the Nina from that. And she took Simone from Simone Signore, a French actress. That's all. That's all it is. She thought it sounded good when you put it together. Um, now, over this time playing at the Midtown Bar in Atlantic City, uh, people might be familiar. I'm making another Beatles reference. People might be familiar with the time that the Beatles spent in the. I think it was called the Cavern, that bar that they played hours and hours and hours and hours in in and, and, Frankfurt. In Frankfurt, yeah. And people attribute that constant playing to one of the reasons they became so productive and so good mm-hmm. later, right? Well, Nina Simone had already done her whatever ten thousand. I know it hours. wasn't Frankfurt. It was. It was. Was it Hamburg? I think it was Hamburg. I'm not sure. Okay. It was in Germany someplace. Yeah. 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 Um, so she'd already done her ten thousand hours classically. Now she's doing her ten thousand hours in front of a sort of a general audience. So it's literally like I said, seven hours a night, six nights a week oh, for the man. entire summer. Yeah, and that's where that algebraic understanding of music comes into play because it's like, mm-hmm. well, what's the mood of the crowd? Where's everybody right. at right now? Right. How do I stretch this out? I gotta, I gotta right. take this number and make it twelve minutes. And where right. do I take my breaks? And right. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. her sophistication and her musical brain, it wasn't going to allow her to just crank out pop tunes. Just like I'm going to play a pop tune, a pop tune, a pop tune. Like just she had to. And we see this later her career. All of her most popular songs are not songs that she wrote. There's songs that became she turned them into Nina Simone productions, right? Through mm. through rearrangement, uh, one of her accompanists accompanists would call it metamorphizing. She would change them into Nina Simone songs. Those were her best. Those were her best. All the best hits of hers were not written by her generally. Um, 
Okay, so she does this. She does this. She works in the Atlantic City bars, 1954. After the summer's over, she goes home. She starts teaching her students again. She continues her lessons with uh, Vladimir Sokolov. She doesn't even tell anybody that she's doing this in the summer, right? She doesn't want her family to know. Um, they think she's going down there. And I don't know what they thought she was doing, but they, apparently this was not on their radar. Um, she does this uh, summer of 1955. And by the summer of 1955, she is a fixture. There are people coming that will come every night to see her. Uh, in Atlantic City, mostly white, a lot of beatniks, right? Because this is night, this is the mid 1950s, so it's a lot of beatniks. Um, one of these people, and some of them become kind of her friends. And you know, it's not a huge bar, and there's people showing up every night. You're having a smoke. They, you know, you become friendly with these people over the course of a summer. One of these people who becomes her friends is this white beatnik guy named Ted Axelrod. He suggests that Nina play the song "I Loves You, Porgy." from George Gershwin's 1935 opera, Porgy and Bess. She plays it for the first time with no rehearsal in front of the nightclub audience, and they absolutely, they lose their minds over it. Which is funny to me, because I've listened to like everything you can listen to by Nina Simone, and it's per my, personally one of my least favorite song recordings of her. But they loved it. So They love it. I mean, but that was a hit yeah. musical. That was a big deal. It was. And yeah. uh, I, I'm not an historian of musical theater, although I am presently writing a musical. I'm writing yeah. a musical about the Killdozer incident. It's called <laughs> Killdozer, an unreasonable musical. And it's going to be a lot <laughs> of fun. But that's another story. Uh, mm-hmm. but that was a huge hit. It's incredible how easy those songs are for somebody who can play Bach. They're right. like little nursery rhymes almost, but that's what that's what people want. They want those right. basic chord changes and the the thing you can kind of sing along with in the very root of you know. And yeah. To this day, it's not nothing has changed. I mean, it, pop it music took, is pop music. It, it took Nina a, long, a, a while to respect the fact that that's what audiences wanted. I think she spent a lot of time in the early years, especially and and to a certain degree throughout, sort of having a certain degree of contempt for her audiences because because again she's like i'm a fucking genius and you want me to play i loves you porgy you want me to go four hours like really that's what you want you're like do you know what i can do like um so wow how old is she roughly right here now well 1955 she would have been 22 years old so she's young Yeah, All right. Yeah. She started yeah. to have some pops. She's starting to drink, probably. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she does start to drink in the in this in this bar in, in this, and she would have she would have struggles with alcohol later. It's not really a problem quite yet because um, she's still fairly focused. But it do be I, like that sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's nineteen fifty six. Third, her third summer in Atlantic City. She's a, a celebrity, a, a, a niche, a niche micro celebrity of Atlantic City, right? She's got friends. She's got renown. She goes back to Philadelphia. You know, at first she's thinking, well, she'll start up teaching her students again. And then she kind of has this moment where she's like, well, I'm successful. Like, why would I pretend I'm not this thing anymore? Right. And she just decides I'm not going to teach anymore. I'm going to find a way to play clubs in Philadelphia year round. She tells her family that she's performing in clubs. Her mother hates this. Her mother would really almost never respect what Nina does. It, it, it doesn't matter until decade, literally decades later that Nina, the level of talent and the audience and, and what Nina thinks that she's doing positive in the world. None of it actually seems to matter for a long time, um, which, by the way, doesn't stop nina's mother from spending the money that nina sends or nina sends money basically her whole life to her family which good on her but you know 
her mother could 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 show her a little affection in return. She never really does. Um, you know, and, how is she getting paid? I mean, is she being paid by the club and probably mm-hmm. tips in the jar or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think it's, and, I think mm-hmm. she had, it, it was like a, in Atlantic city anyway, it was like a paid residency. So you're almost like staff. And I'm sure there were tips on top of that. She was getting paid 90 bucks a week to do, I think six performance, like six nights yeah. of performance. Yeah. Yeah. That rocks. Live music yeah. is the, the very best thing in the world. It's Man. so good when it's good. Yeah. It's just the best damn well, thing. It, and it should, it, it, we should be more of it. Yeah. And could you imagine what I like to picture is just being a normie walking around Atlantic City in the 50s. You walk into this bar. You stumble. You stumble. You stumble around. around, (laughs) And you you stumble into this. You stumble into this bar and this sort of very. She and for people who, you know, look up a picture of Nina Simone. She's a striking looking person. Um, and, and the drugs and the stress kind of deteriorate her physically as they do anybody. But like. She's a striking looking person. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you imagine you walk into this dimly lit bar, it's smoky, this striking looking, very young, beautiful woman is playing the wildest music you've ever heard. That's like, it feels like a dream. These pop classical jazz fusion, like, and she's got her eyes closed, you know, and she's just in a trance playing this. It would be quite a remarkable thing to stumble into. Um, okay. <clears throat> now, you really paint a picture, Brad. You should good. do a show. I should. I should do a show. I should think about that. I'll change my name so my parents don't think I'm a sinner. Uh, <laughs> Bradley. Bradley. Maybe. Kalinowski. Kalinowski. Yeah. Make it Irish or make it make it Polish. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> so the worst nom de plume. Of <laughs> just all making time. it worse somehow. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so she starts she starts playing Philadelphia clubs. This actually goes about as well as it went in Atlantic City, right? People like her. So she's starting to make friends. Um and, and this is one thing about Nina, she's very lonely, right? And and she's not even necessarily a person who handles being lonely very well. She wants people around and she wants them to love her, frankly. Um, she wants somebody to come up and tell her, Nina, you're amazing. Right. Which, you know, that feels good if it's ever if it ever happens. She she ends up marrying this guy who is the worst match ever. This guy, Don Ross, he's like a quasi beatnik painter, dude. But he's really pretty much just like smoking weed and hanging out in his living room, listening to records. Um, His uh, not really a whole lot to say about her, except about him, except it's indicative of her bad taste in men, frankly. And we're going to see this play out. Um, she'll, she'll kind of glom on to any guy who's there in a way, like anybody who's, who's sort of forthright in their attention towards her, she will gravitate to it. Um, and that you can imagine why that might be a problem for somebody who's like becomes a public figure. Um, she meets her first comp- uh, competent player that she can play with. So at first, she's just playing by herself. She gets introduced to this guy, Al Shackman, um, who she would actually play on off and on with until the 90s. Um, she would describe playing with him as a telepathic experience, and he would say the same thing about her. And it's funny. He's like, you put them next to each other. It's 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 different as two human beings can look. <laughs> Which is which is wonderful in a way, you now, know. Now is was yeah. Al Shackman of the Philadelphia Shackmans? 
Uh, I believe that's right. Yeah. <laughs> is that a family? Is that a thing? <laughs> no, um, the, the, the surname is literally Shackman. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I highly doubt that. Uh, I'm going to look him up. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, S-C-H-A-C-K-M-A-N. Alan Shackman. Cool. What was his? Did he play guitar? guitar oh wow wow look at this guy you're right i mean he and oh that's so cool and i there are pictures of of him with nina that's very cool yeah yeah they played together for years and years and years and years oh that's nice yeah Yeah. um around this time the late the mid to late 50s in philadelphia she meets her first agent this guy jerry fields he helps her get um he gets her entangled in her first record company contract this would be with bethlehem records under a guy named sid nathan Sid Nathan's claim to fame in late and ensuing years would be that he swindled James Brown out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he would do much the same to Nina. Um, uh... A little bit about her, about the first album. This is from, again, from the um, the David Brune Lambert biography. Um, <clears throat> so let's see here. So uh she'd come, <clears throat> quote, she'd come in with 14 tracks, all of which were recorded. For the most part, they were faithful but abridged versions of her mid, mid uh, Midtown Bar repertoire. I Love You Porgy, For All We Know, You'll Never Walk Alone, and the plain gold ring bolero she borrowed from the harpist Kitty White. Uh, a, swing pay, a swing piece called Love Me or Leave Me, the ballad Little Girl Blue, uh, and, uh, and He Needs Me, recorded by Peggy Lee. Her first album was mainly made up of cover versions, uh, uh, except for two instrumental tracks, which she wrote during the studio session. In those days, only a few female jazz artists could claim to be both vocalists and composer-songwriters. And like many of her peers, Nina Simone was primarily an interpreter. For the first years of her career, her repertoire consisted mainly of cover versions of major hits or songs written for her. Only in 1963 did she start to introduce her own compositions. Now, let me read a little bit in the in the biography, autobiography about this period. Um, and this is about, again, Nina, Nina's relationship to music and to fame and to being particularly a pop musician, um, quote, what Sid Nathan, that's the the owner of the first record company she dealt with, what Sid Nathan didn't know was I wasn't interested in being famous and I didn't think being a singer was any big thing. All the time I was playing those little tours up and down the East Coast, I made sure that I got back to Philadelphia every week for my lesson with Vladimir Sokolov. I never missed one, and I never stopped preparing my pieces for the next week's lesson. Excuse me. Clubs weren't my serious ambition, so if the money wasn't right and it wasn't fun, I wouldn't play. It was difficult for a man like Sid Nathan to understand that an unknown girl who made a living playing small clubs could turn down a record deal without thinking twice about it. He came back to the house later in the afternoon and said I could do whatever I wanted so long as I left him with, with him the next day to go to the studio. I spoke to Jerry and he said the money they were offering was fine, so I agreed. Um, that was the part I left off the beginning of that. At first, Sid Nathan, the record, the, the record owner, was like, here are the songs you will perform. And she was like, oh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> She's a 22-year-old kid with like no money. And she's like, that's not, that's not what I do. No, <laughs> which I, I just love that. I love right? that stuff. Yeah. I mean, she's she's so good, and she knows how good she is, and that is and at it, that and age, that's rare. She's in a game she doesn't even really care about either. They're like, mm. you want to make a record? You want to make a hit record? And she was like, well, I'd prefer to be the first classical black classical pianist to play Carnegie Hall. And if this gets me a few bucks on the way, well, that's cool. 
But that is like, such a great yeah. position. It's it's like uh, Bolaño. Oh, I guess I'll write a novel for some money. Mm. <laughs> right. I really want to be writing poetry about right. fascism in Latin America, but I suppose <laughs> I'll write about the murders. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, maybe this is a good time. I do need to take a quick restroom break. Bring it, Kevin. Yeah, I will. So I will for a vamp and talk about season four. Brad has already posted an incredible trailer for season four. He does these every year now. Did one for season three. He did one for season four. I'm going to make sure that makes its way to the website at artofdarkpod.com. I hope everybody's enjoying this core episode about Nina Simone. If you're new to the pod, the podcast really has two main different types of episodes. The core episodes are the heart of what we do. These are the uh, protracted biographical profiles of dead artists. The rule is they have to be dead for a year and a day. We don't ambulance chase here at Art of Darkness. The other type of episode we do piggybacks on these core episodes. These are called darkroom episodes, and those are where we uh, have guests come on and discuss one of the subjects that we've covered. So no doubt someone down the line will want to talk about Nina Simone, someone who has more experience in music, somebody who's maybe written something about her or has very strong opinions, and we'll have them on and we'll talk with them for about uh, about an hour to 90 minutes. We also do After Dark ep episodes. So every episode we post that's free here on YouTube or Spotify or Stitcher or Apple Music or Apple Podcast, whatever it is, um, we do a bonus episode for Patreon. And uh, Patreon really is the best way to support the podcast. It gets you access to all of those After Dark episodes. And you can find it at Patreon, uh, excuse me, patreon.com slash art of dark pod brad man's the twitter account that's at art of dark pod and yeah we're we're also we also do a book club and uh, we just did a really uh, exciting episode of that with a nice big group of people who joined us uh, with aaron gwynn the notable expert on Cormac mccarthy's great blood meridian and we did a uh, a book club meeting about that we've got some really exciting book club stuff coming up for for 2024 too so get on the patreon train uh, all of this stuff is evergreen so if you're listening to this in 2030 and you're like mm -hmm. oh drats i missed it <laughs> you can go there. back and listen to that you could be an art of darkness maximalist you really can uh and, and it's fun i think uh, for people who are really into the show to go back all the way to, to day one day zero where brad totally phoned in this episode about <laughs> relative to how we prep for episodes now i did <laughs> yeah for sure brad the first yeah. episode on william uh s burroughs we didn't even know how to pronounce the middle name uh very sort of a legendary 50 minute episode that brad did and we were just figuring it out we were finding yeah. our sea legs we didn't know what the show was gonna be uh and a very exciting for season four and, and the, the seasons correspond with the calendar. So 2024, season four. Easy. Uh, Brad is going to begin with a Burroughs Redux. He's going to do the yeah. now fully evolved, fully realized Art of Darkness treatment about William Seward Burroughs. Right. And I yeah. can't wait for that. We're, we're in the middle good. of this. Mm, it's going to be great. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want to say here in the meantime, Brad? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't quite think so. I mean, we we we've uh we yeah, there's there's a lot going on coming into the next year. We've got a lot of the episodes sort of planned out. The trailer is out there, which you might have already mentioned. Um yeah, and we're stoked, man. We're coming in we're yeah, coming in hot on season 4. 
in the background here, I'm going to post the trailer to the website at artofdarkpod.com. Oh, yeah. I don't think yeah. I've posted it to the website yet. Uh, oh, yeah. So I'll make sure that that did you did you put it on YouTube or it's on, or, it is on YouTube. Oh, it, you it's on YouTube. YouTube. Okay, YouTube so channel, easy. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and that YouTube channel is youtube.com slash at artofdarkpod. We really appreciate everyone. And I'm going to reiterate, if you have thoughts, if you want to reach out, we're very accessible. We say we're very online writers. We love hearing from our listeners. And we know we have people all around the world checking in on the pod, listening to these core episodes, enjoying the dark rooms. And, uh, you know, one final time, if you want to support this podcast, Patreon's the best way. A lot of people are Patreon averse. If you, you're one of those, chuck us a buck at uh, PayPal because every time one of those, every time one, we get a little bit, a new patron, a little bit of money from, from PayPal, it means a lot to us because it's like, yeah. it's like Nina's, Nina's playing in Atlantic city and you chuck a, a, a $10 bill into her jar. Yeah. I mean, she didn't need it. She didn't right. need encouragement. <laughs> Brad, and I, Brad and I need, we need the yeah. encouragement. Uh, right. So, and for those who are supporting the podcast already, thank you very much. We'll see you on the after dark and for book club 2024. Brad, yeah. Before we get back into it, what are the first few uh, book club books that we're going to be doing in 2024? Oh, do you have yeah. it off the cuff? Um, yeah, I do. The because first one we're doing is Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor, which all right. for people who have not read that is an incredible piece of Southern Gothic weirdo religion, religious stuff. Yeah. Okay. So if you um, want to get ahead of it, if you're part of the Patreon and you're following along with the book club, you want to get ahead of it. Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor. We'll have those dates uh, pretty soon. That won't be yep. until February or March. So you have time to, to read the book. I think the, what we're reading after, I think what we're reading after that is Hamlet. Ah, yeah. We're, we're yeah. going to read Hamlet, but we're also, I'm also going to say, watch these versions of Hamlet. Watch. I think we're going to watch the Brana version yeah, you of Hamlet. Need, yeah. That's like a version. reference. Yeah. You because you don't, staged. you're not supposed to read Shakespeare. It's one of my pet peeves. Oh, I've read Shakespeare. Well, I'm sorry. Well, have you, you're not supposed to, I mean, you can, you yeah. can, but it's, it's not better. It's better than nothing, but, 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 but it's also not actually Shakespeare to just read. Indeed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Right. Where are we? So, I mean, this is great. What year are we? Bring us back. Um, to we're Nina in. Simone we're here, in Brad. 1950. We're in 1958 or so. She's got her okay. first. She's got her first record out. Um, so the records, the, yeah. the country yeah. the country's what is the Korean conflict is kind of happening. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. World War II right. is long gone, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, it's before civil rights. We're yeah, kind the civil of rights in... movement hasn't really kicked hasn't really kicked off yet. Not properly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm reading about the uh, Korean conflict. When did that? When did that happen? I couldn't uh, tell you the years. Yeah, let me look it up because I want to yeah. kind of place us in time a bit. The war began in 1950, so it was actually between 1950 and 1953. So I'm a little bit oh, off. I thought it was so later we're, than that too. We're kind of, yeah, I thought it was later. Yeah. Uh, so we're kind of between wars. I mean, the Korean War was like the first proxy war. Uh, you know, of the Cold mm -hmm. War. Uh, right, so right. in any case, so let's put her in, in place in time. So she's in yeah. Philadelphia. And of course, Bethlehem Records is going to be probably named after Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, right? I think that's correct. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a huge, it's not a huge label. And they would do, they would put her album out and do almost no promotion whatsoever. In fact, um, the only reason it got any attention was that this Philadelphia DJ named Sid Marks got obsessed with the song I Love You Porgy and would play it sometimes back to back. Um, just loved it. And <clears throat> so it it became locally 
uh, quite popular and in fact made its way into the R&B charts. Um, A year later, Nina gets hooked up with um, a a different record label, uh, Cole Picks Records, who she would roll with for a few years um, through a guy named Max Cohen and Joyce Selznick, who's actually, I think, the sister of David O. Selznick, a famous Hollywood producer. Um, And they would put out a record called The Amazing Nina Simone, um, this is an album that would be hailed by critics and would really kind of cement her as a rising star. So the first Bethlehem album, really only I Loves You Porgy came out of that. And she started to get some notoriety. And then the amazing Nina Simone comes out and it's it's like the trajectory is almost a straight vertical line from there. Um, cool. It did well financially, the record, and it for for it did really well for her reputation. Um, I, I if I, listening through it, I don't think it's her strongest work and that's not throwing shade at it. It's not the fully realized Nina Simone of the better albums. Um, it downplays her piano playing in favor of kind of pedestrian string arrangements. Um, so you're kind of losing like what's most magical about her. And it also, and, and this is not only true of Nina, but of a lot of musicians, it doesn't really capture the magic of seeing them perform live. And this is true of a lot of bands where it's like, man, the live show is incredible. And then you hear the studio album, you're like, yeah, it's good, but it's not. There's some energy mission. There's some zhuzh that's not here that you can't capture, quite capture in the studio. Um, and so it'd be a while before somebody, a, a producer really figured out what to do with Nina. But nonetheless, um, this album is really well received. And by September of 1959, Nina has a solo engagement at Town Hall, just a legendary, legendary New York city venue um the show is a great success the new york times hailed it uh, and overnight nina becomes according to everybody the queen of greenwich village in 1959 (laughs) so um she becomes a regular uh she plays at the town hall a bunch but she becomes a regular at the village gate and the vanguard stages for people who know anything about the, the 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 historical and cultural relevance of greenwich village I mean, this is where these are the same stages that Bob Dylan became famous on and around the same time. Uh, not too, not too different. I yeah. just looked up Bob Dylan to try to place him because like, wait, wasn't yeah. Dylan would have been bopping around there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure when he started playing there, but it was in the 60s. It might have been a couple of years after she started there. Um, but also Bill Cosby was performing there. Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor. She talks about Richard Pryor. She she was there the first night Richard Pryor performed at a significant stage and how nervous he was. And that he I think she said he threw up because he was so nervous. And she was like, you'll be OK. So she's like, you know, she is in it. She's literally like I said, people refer would refer to her as the queen of Greenwich Village. Um, she knew Woody Allen. She knew all these people who were performing, performing their musicians, comedians, everything. Um, she gained fans like Natalie Wood and Rod Steiger. Um, she went to see a Frank Sinatra performance in New York City. And this is like 1960, 1961. She goes to see Frank Sinatra. And apparently Frank Sinatra later found out that she was in the audience. And he got very, very upset. He might have even fired somebody because nobody went and told Nina that he wanted to meet her. Like he wanted her to come backstage and hang out. And, you know, yeah. So- yeah, um, and Sinatra was famously forward-looking on on matters of race. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, um, um, and and you know, not only was she becoming popular, she started making some money, um, as as you would, right? 
Um, she gets a six room apartment. She's again, she's uh, what would she? She'd be 26, 27. She gets a six room apartment with a view of Central Park. <laughs> right? Um, ball so hard. Yeah, that exactly. rocks. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Now, which side? Little... Do you know which side of the which side of the park? Uh, actually, I'm not hundred percent sure. I couldn't tell you off the top. Um, Wait, was I... it in Harlem? It, no, she was near. She was closer to the village, I believe. Uh, probably, she probably was on the west side then. She was, I think, on the. It west could have been side. either. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Um, okay, so let me let me read this bit from the bio. <clears throat> Uh, and this is around that time, the early 60s. Um, although among Nina's new friends was the black singer Odetta, born in Birmingham, Alabama. Odetta Gordon grew up in Los Angeles and displayed an extraordinary voice from early childhood. Like Nina with Miss Mazzy, Odetta owed her career to his sponsor, Harry Burnett, who paid for the... Uh, is this the part that I want to read? Yes, it is, actually. Hold on. Um uh, Odetta owed her career to a sponsor. Um, Odetta moved to New York in 1953 and joined the local folk scene, folk scene, carving out her reputation in clubs like the Blue Angel, where she was spotted by Pete Seeger, then Harry Belafonte. Um, the song, uh, the songs on Odetta's first albums were rooted in tradition, including House of the Rising Sun, which later would Nina would later co- cover. Uh, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out and the amazing acapella uh, Another Man Gone. Um, Let's see. The record revealed her as an extraordinary mezzo-soprano and pushed her to the forefront of the folk scene. Um, I don't know that I need to necessarily read all this. They become friends. She becomes friends with Odetta. um, And Odetta would talk about the fact that Nina was terrified of running out of money, even when she was, you know, quite, quite becoming quite successful. Um, She ends up buying a uh, Mercedes she buys the silver Mercedes with red interiors, gorgeous car. And she would just drive around New York City all the time on her time off. She had a hat that matched the interior. She had luggage that matched the car. Like she was living, she was living it up on this, on this stuff, right? She was enjoying, she was enjoying the money. Um, and again, remember, you know, she's a little girl who, when she was four years old, she lived in a house you know, uh, that burned down and they had to build a house out in the woods and she had to like clean Getting her in father's the surgery. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now she's got a Mercedes. She's tootling around Greenwich Village and Frank Sinatra wants and wants to meet her. Right. And she's in her 20s. Yeah. Yeah. She could have been a she could have been a casualty, too. I'm glad she lived as long as she did, because that yeah. life that'll catch up with you. Yeah. man. you get that gets For into sure. your head. Oh, and it did. And, and this is the thing, like later in her life. She's a she became a diva in the positive and the negative sense, right? You know, there's later later in her life where she's like, she's uh, there's this interview, and we'll talk about it more later. This interview she does for the BBC in like 2000, and she's she's talking about she's not married at the time, how she really wants a husband. She's like, but you got to remember, I don't cook and I don't clean. I'm a star. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, you are. Like, yes, actually, you, yeah. You shouldn't really have to clean, probably. <laughs> it's yeah. it's like this. Uh, I'm thinking about John Lennon right now, and was it Chapman? Chapman who who shot him, right? Because he yeah. was a a phony. And right. it's like, well, it's John Lennon. What do you think? Right. Of course, John Lennon's not going to take the subway, right? Right. Like, right. Yeah, he. There was maybe some hypocrisy, but like, I don't think John Lennon was pretending to be an everyman. He was just sort of trying to, but he came from, it's complicated in yeah, any case. It is. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of times those kinds of standards get held against people, but pe- the, the people holding those standards to them, they're not necessarily 
empathizing with what they would do if they were in that situation. Right. You know I mean? You're not right. really thinking like if I was a multimillionaire and everybody knew my name, how would I act? Sure. And if I was you know, a multimillionaire and had a platform like I was John Lennon and I felt and believed these things and I came from a working class community in Liverpool and yeah. wanted to sing for the everyman, like what would I do? What's John Lennon going to sing about? He's like, oh, my silver goblets. I mean, like, you know, right. um, going around in my Cadillac, <laughs> right. like, no, right. of course right. not. So right. it's very, yeah. In any yeah. Case, yeah. That'll be for another day. Yes. Yeah. So, um, okay. So soon she gets invited to play the Newport Jazz Festival. And, and, and getting invited to play the Newport Jazz Festival, I mean, this means that not only are you sort of selling records on the charts, but you're also you're also kind of a critical darling, right? This is this means that this means the journalists like you too, the reviewers like you too, the labels like you too. Um, now, this becomes a sort of a huge moment playing the Newport Jazz Festival and, and opens her up into a whole another echelon of her career. Uh, but this is a good time to take a, no, a moment to talk about Nina's relationship to quote unquote jazz. Uh, Nina, you know, a lot of her music has jazz elements. She would never consider herself a jazz musician or a jazz singer. Um, now, part of the reason she resists this category is not just musical, though there's there's an argument to be made there. She did not like the fact that any black woman who was singing was considered a jazz singer. And I, I can kind of understand that. She's trying to she's drawing from all of these elements, old musicals, classical music, pop tunes, some jazz stuff, country, you know, not country so much, but blues and folk music. She's incorporating all of these elements. And somebody's like, and this the great jazz singer, Nina Simone. She's like, well, hold up. Like, <laughs> have you listened to the stuff that I play? Because it's not anything it, it, you can you can put specific instances of a, a, a song she plays in a category but broadly it's very difficult to categorize what she's up to um so let me let me read a little bit from the autobiography autobiography about this well actually i kind of already said that part um now here is one thing i do want to point out because she's becoming incredibly successful in the early to mid 60s and yet it's always a little um there's always some anxiety about it because remember what she wanted to be. She wanted to be the first black classical pianist. She wanted to live up to what ba to Bach, right? She didn't necessarily want to play "I Loves You, Porgy" um, at a at a bar or at a you know even at a theater. Even though it's it's nicer to play it at the theater, you make a little bit more money. Um, this is at this at this time in the early '60s. Quote: If someone had walked up to me in the street and given me a hundred thousand dollars, I would have given up popular music and enrolled at Juilliard and never played in a club again. And I would have, and I wouldn't have missed the life because I hated it anyway. The cheap crooks, the disrespectful audiences, the way most people were so easily satisfied by dumb, stupid tunes. So already there's a degree of resentment building in her. And sure, she likes having the Mercedes, but there's also like, I should be at Juilliard. <laughs> this isn't what I should be doing. Um, so, uh, okay. So now in 1961, I believe it is, 1960, sorry, um, she meets a man at a club named Andrew Stroud. Um now, let me read the bit about them meeting, because this is interesting. And this is an important relationship in her life. Um, Andrew Stroud. And I believe she meets him not in Philadelphia, but she might meet him. 
much. I think she meets him in Newark or something like that. Anyway, um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Is this the place that I want to be? Yeah. <clears throat> Andrew was a detective sergeant in the 26th precinct, precinct and had been that for 14 years. A tough man. The 26th precinct was Harlem, so you knew he'd seen a few things. People around town said he wasn't the sort of man you messed around with, and Frankie Lyman said he once saw Andrew throw a man off a roof. Frank was a junkie, and you couldn't always believe what he said, but the real point was it was if somebody told that story about the roof, nobody in Harlem laughed. They didn't know if it was true, but they could believe it. They could imagine Andy throwing a guy off a roof. He didn't say anything about it either way, but he had a strong and solid air about him that made you think, well, maybe. And Andy wasn't tough to be around, not domineering, but you knew all the time he was there. Sitting in my dressing room with my back to the door, I knew the moment Andy came in, even if I couldn't see him, because I felt his personality around me. On our first dates, um, I realized his reputation when we went into a club or a bar. First of all, everybody knew him, and he knew everybody. Some guys would look up as he came into the room, check him, and just slide away without saying hello. The people that he did to talk to were always respectful and quiet because Andy hated a guy getting too excited in his ear. And he was quiet and calm always and always in control. That's what I like most about him, that I felt safe when he was around. No one would dare do anything to me with Andy there. And so about a year later, they get married. You know, she gets and, and again, I, this thing about. The kinds of men that attract th this solidity, I think, for her was like, OK, this guy. And she would later say about him, like, Andy could protect me from anything except for Andy. And and so, yeah. Well, I, you know, and this seems to follow so naturally on the thing you were just describing. You have this sensitive soul, a prodigy, a genius, a generational talent who can play Bach, but who, through circumstances, is forced to play in, well, maybe not forced, but yeah. well, let's say forced yeah. to play in these nightclubs and these seedy bars. And she's living in New York city. And I could see why you would want uh, that kind of presence around you. There's yeah. still this dynamic in, in New York city, by the way, between men and women. It's very interesting. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah I don't, yeah. I won't go too far into it, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's, that's a gnarly, it's still a gnarly place to live, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so excuse excuse me, December 1961, they're gonna get their their the plan is to get married. Um uh something happens before the actual ceremony though. Um and uh, late nineteen sixty-one, Nina comes down with either non-paralytic polio or spinal meningitis, and she spends 17 days in the hospital, uh, a time in which Andrew Stroud stays right by her side and and you know, if anybody's ever been in this kind of situation, you know how much that can like breed intimacy. You go from we spend time together, we go on dates and it's nice to like, oh, this is actual like life crisis. How does this person respond? They either run away or they get closer. In mm -hmm. this case, they got closer. And and mm -hmm. that just drew that just attracted and uh, Nina made Nina even more attracted to him because, oh, my God, this guy can actually take care of things. Right. And, and you know, he's talking to the doctors. He's handling things. He's like immediately goes into I'm going to take care of shit mode. Um, so she had, you know, two months off ultimately of work and, 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 and he's right there by her side. And she, after this, she takes him to Philadelphia to meet, uh, her family. Um, Nina's father right off does not like him is like this. He, and he backs away. doesn't really talk to him. He's sort of surveyed, does not like an Andrew Stroud. Um, and in fact, doesn't go to the wedding 
Um, Nina's father doesn't go to the wedding. She doesn't like this guy so much. Um, but okay, after this, after this meeting in Philadelphia, I think it's in Philadelphia that Andrew Stroud asks Nina to marry him. Uh, they come back and they're literally celebrating the fact that they're now engaged. <clears throat> they go out dancing in New York. Stroud is drinking rum, which apparently he rarely, if ever, drank. And at the club, literally celebrating the fact they're getting engaged, a fan stops Nina for an autograph. She's got fans. She's famous, right? Um, she signs the autograph and the fan hands her a piece of paper. She slips it into her pocket, doesn't think anything of it. Um, you know, she's a star at this point. People are going to, there's going to be weird stuff with people. Um, he confronts her out of jealousy about this fan. Um, and then there's, there is this, uh, from the biography. Um, oh no, hold on a second. Uh, wrong page. There's this from the biography. <sighs> da, 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 da. Hold on. Hold on. Where did it go? Okay. Um, where is this? Okay. So again, slips the piece of paper. <clears throat> Quote, Andy saw this, stood up and asked her about the note. Dina explained about the fan, a harmless note, nothing more than that. He didn't believe any of it and began to yell at her. She burst out laughing at his jealousy. Andy stormed out of the club. She ran after him and seeing him look for a cab, caught up with him and took him by the arm, calling him honey. He turned around and hit her. Eventually, a cab stopped. Andy forced his fiance inside and continued to beat her. He beat her, quote, in the cab on the pavement outside my apartment building in the lobby of the building in the elevator up to the 12th floor and along the passageway. When Nina finally made it into her apartment, she was covered in blood with open wounds on her face. Andy was out of his mind, screaming like a madman, pushing over the furniture. Bruised and battered, Nina explained to her fiancé that there was no reason for him to get so worked up, uh, but he began to question her. A cop, drunk with pointless rage, interrogating his fiancé and punching her when his an her answers didn't suit him. He made her say all sorts of nonsense. She panicked and told him about letters Edney, her high school boyfriend, had written to her when she was at school in Asheville. Andy pulled out his gun and held it to his future wife's temple, ordering her to go and find them. She took them out of his safe and obediently handed them to him. He tore them from her hand, ripped them up, tied her hands behind her back, and made her sit down in a chair. Andy Stroud forced Nina Simone to read out several passages aloud, asking her questions, beating her the way he would have beaten an uncooperative suspect at the police station. This went on for five hours. He finally freed her from her ties, led her into the bedroom, and raped her. On the night of her engagement, she was taken by force. She screamed as her attacker moved on top of her, letting her go only when, she, when he was done. At last, his trousers, trousers around his ankles, Andrew Stroud fell asleep. Nina Simone spent two weeks hiding her swollen face at a friend's apartment in New York. No leaks. No one knew of her whereabouts. Gripped with fear, she thought that Andy being a cop, he would manage to find her. She was right. The minute she set foot outside, he cornered her in a cafe. He paled as he saw the wounds on his fiance's face, blinking in disbelief as he said, who beat you up like that? And she, re she responded that you did. He denied it adamantly. He stared at her, searching his memories, unable to grasp what he'd done. He told her that he didn't understand, that he wanted to marry her. She remained cold as ice. <clears throat> You're sick, she said, and demanded that he go and see two psychiatrists. She was scared. She wanted to be sure, thinking that a seed of violence lay in him and that he would do it again. <clears throat> 
The psychiatrist's conclusions diverged, one of them advising Nina not to marry Andy, obviously, the other talking about temporary insanity. She hesitated. Nina wanted to have a family. She wanted to be a good wife and mother. He swore that it would never happen again, cajoled her, winning her over. He told her they'd buy a big house, that she could spend some time decorating it, picking up furniture, that they'd have a real life as a family. Not once did he mention money. That would have been out of place, and he'd have, he'd have to explain how, with his meager cop salary, he could fund such lovely projects. Well, her money, right? <clears throat> how does one say no to such a vision when one's life is nothing but a succession of clubs and tours? Andy, her man, someone to share her success with and build a future, a home, and who was she to turn him down? Andrew Stroud married Nina Simone on f- December 4th, 1961 in her, uh, in her apartment. The bride wore white and held a bouquet of 15 white roses in her arms. He was drunk, right? I mean, he, he was, was... He was drunk. Yeah. <sighs> and she married Some people anyway. get jolly when they're drunk. They do. Some I'm, people I'm end a, up in the, in the hospital. You're a jolly drunk. I'm a jolly drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Chatty, I'm, I'm chatty all, jolly. I'm in all kinds of drunk. Yeah. I'm a, I'm yeah. a drunk drunk <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That is Right. And, and this isn't, and I mean, I think most people, the, the night of your engagement, if you got even yelled at, you might be like, you know what? Forget this. Right. I, I, this doesn't seem right. I could yeah. see yelling, you know, because it's, it's a lot. It's, it's, it a, it's an emotional yeah. time. You know, people are sure. drinking and, and then you figure like, and nowadays too, we would maybe go like, okay, well, there's maybe some childhood trauma. I mean, and clearly right. this guy, I'm not going to, and I'm not fucking running cover for this guy, but like no. you go, he's seen some shit in Harlem. The guy has clearly, you would say. Some probably PTSD. Yeah. He's all fucked up. I mean, yeah. you know, whatever he's yeah. doing to her probably happened to him, uh, Something. or some variation, or he saw it. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, that's ugly, man. Ugly, but, ugly. That is one of the ugliest things that we've covered so far on, it, on it Art really of Darkness. Is. It's that's up it's there with rough. Burroughs shooting his uh, his it, wife. It is well, he could have killed her, right? I mean, yeah. he literally had a gun up to her head. Like, you know, read this letter from your high school sweetheart and explain to me what this means. And if you don't like, like your a, answers, I'm going to beat you. Like poem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Holy totally crazy. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So two weeks after she marries Andrew Stroud, Nina, go, yeah, go ahead. Nina travels to Nigeria. First time she leaves the country and she performs uh, to perform a concert. She, you know, she never left before. And she was being at this time, she was being sort of taken under the wing of, uh, James Baldwin and Langston Hughes, you know, people who who know them know that she was like a friend of theirs and they saw her as instrumental to uh, valuable, I should say, to the civil rights movement. Langston Hughes even wrote a song called Backlash Blues for Nina to perform. Um, you know, these are basically prominent literary voices in the New York African-American community. Um Um, The trip to Nigeria was organized by a group called the American Society for African Culture, and she performed a concert in front of the largest audience she had yet ever seen. Right. Um, So this was this was very this was a this was a important moment for her. And we're going to see sort of why later. But, you know, traveling to Nigeria, playing this concert, meeting meeting people who live in Africa, that sort of thing. Um, She she left the United States a very popular musician went to Nigeria and she came back a kind of, excuse me, a kind of a revolutionary. Um, Even if at this point, her ideas and her motivations were not quite fully formed. Uh, Let me read a little bit on this from the biography. Um, 
The Lagos, quote, the Lagos concert took place in a city center stadium before a human tide whose like Nina had never seen. The cultural shock that she went through and the certainty that the forces surrounding her were benevolent and familiar grasped her like a revelation. She was a member of an ancient line. She would later learn in very dark times following a mystical experience that her ancestors came from a land at the heart of the ancient kingdom of Dahomey in Ghana. She would actually end up buying land in Ghana at one point. But for the time being, a certainty was growing in her. She felt that she carried a tradition that had been relocated, but whose spiritual essence remained intact. Nina Simone was a soul on a mission. The concepts that Jimmy, that's James Baldwin, had taught her confirmed her intuition. She was to perpetuate and defend her race, her culture, the thread coming from that land which had survived the Atlantic crossing to come into being in America in her. Uh-oh, Nina's no longer deracinated. Right. Yeah. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, while she was in Africa, she you know she comes back and Andrew Stroud, Andrew Stroud, her husband, has established a home. He had bought a house um, in uh, Mount Vernon, uh, inner suburb of New York City. Uh, that remains to this day largely uh, a largely I think it's like 60 percent black even now. And it was at, at that time as well. Um her house was 13 bedroom. Their house was 13 bedrooms on a four acre plot of land on a street that would later be Malcolm X Boulevard. So um, and in fact, they would live very near. She never knew Malcolm X socially, but um, the the widow of Malcolm X would be the godmother of Nina Simone's daughter. Um, and Nina Simone's daughter would be best friends with Malcolm X's children. Um, so this is, you know, this is where we're at geographically, but culturally, historically. Um, okay. Stroud, while Nina was gone, Stroud set up this whole house, got furnishing the various accoutrements. Um, and he basically started the process of turning Nina Simone into a business. He, he he would quit his job. He would quit being a police officer and become the manager, the, the president of Nina Simone Incorporated for, you know, to, to put it as briefly as possible. Eventually, this business would grow to have at least 19 people depending on it for their livelihood. It was a real it was a real enterprise. The, the, the Nina Simone, the Nina Simone emperor empire. Um, and he would also rapidly build her career in terms of and turn it into sort of a nonstop cycle of shows, touring, traveling, recording, television appearances, radio appearances, right? He had her going all of the time. He put a blackboard up in the kitchen that said, um, Nina will be a rich black bitch in X days. And he would keep moving the date out further and further and further as she became more and more nationally known going to keep yeah. working going to yes, keep grinding exactly. exactly and later on she would be like he worked me i was like a racehorse or something like he would just drive me and drive me and drive me and every time i, I said i'm i'm you know can, can i get a, can i get a day in the schedule where like you know maybe i can sit down and eat a meal <laughs> he'd be like you got to you know his point was like this ain't going to last forever we got to make as much money out of this as we can and one day you and i honey we won't have to do anything but right now we got to, you know, you should, this is a good insight into our production meetings. <laughs> That's right. I write it on the chalkboard. I will be, I say, Kevin will be a rich black bitch. In... 
<laughs> Whoa, spicy. Yeah, sorry, Whoa. Guys. Hey, okay. All right. Uh, All right. <laughs> uh, that's the old art of darkness spirit that uh, everybody's pining for. Yeah. This show ain't what it used to be. These fucking guys. Oh. Uh, all right it's never gonna happen because i well you know what forget no, it no. <laughs> just back away yeah. back, move on through the bio um january 1962 nina is pregnant this is lisa celeste uh stroud she would be born september 12th 1962 uh nina was performing almost right up to her birth um, well, we're going to talk more about that relationship later. Lisa is a singer and composer in her own right. She's had a number of major Broadway credits, handful of albums. You know, she's not hard. She's not hard to find. Um, I think she uses the name Simone now, even though she was born Stroud. Um, now, <clears throat> here is as good a moment as any probably to talk about uh, Nina Simone sort of vis-a-vis the civil rights movement. Just trying to think about how to position this and and you know like i said earlier you know we have an international audience i don't know what the average person's understanding of this time period in history is so and again you could talk for hours and hours and hours about the 1960s civil rights movement in america that's it's it's difficult to know where to stop and start it so i'm going to try to give a few things as they are relevant to, to nina so we can put nina in there and people can understand what she meant to it um, the civil rights movement that we're kind of talking about really, quote unquote, starts in 1954 and quote unquote ends in 1968. The reason I'm saying start and ended is like, is the, the civil war abolitionist movement part of it? Um, kind of is, you know, are, are, is Black Lives Matter now part of it? Kind of, right? It, it, it doesn't really begin and end in any strict sense, I guess. Um, but the capital capital C, capital R, capital N movement is generally defined as 1954 to 1968. Um, so it kind of comes out of the fact that, you know, after, after slavery, slavery was, was banned or, or made illegal, uh, a sequence of, uh, a series of systemic practices were put into place to, you know, maintain racial segregation discrimination disenfranchisement you know people know about jim crow laws or laws passed and passed particularly in the south of america that made it difficult for, for black people to vote um and these are the kinds of things that are that are what we call now systemic racism um and people who um you know throw that term around um it used to mean at least that literally there's like a law on the books that like yeah we don't we don't uh, allow black people to buy houses in this neighborhood like that would be written down someplace. Right. Um, and that sort of thing. Um, Irish was... need not apply. Irish right. need not podcast. Yeah. 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 We wouldn't yeah. have been allowed to podcast in the 40s no, and the 50s no. in Britain. Yeah. Joe Rogan would have called us. And... <laughs> well, Joe Rogan's one of us. He's Italian. Joe Rogan they never would have fucking let him. Yeah. Yeah. They would have lynched him in New Orleans. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, the history um, of race in America is far more complex than anything oh, the public schools will teach you. It's so complicated. I mean, it's they literally good. try to turn it into like a black and white issue. And it's it it's it, it's so many. It's so complicated. It, it's mm -hmm. unbelievably. Complicated. That's why I'm trying to I'm trying to walk this delicately while also giving you kind of a 30,000 foot view. And it's tricky. It's tricky to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um 
Uh, so, okay. So there's all kinds of things. I mean, there's efforts to, to, to prevent the great American dream. I, the, whatever you think about the American dream, whether you think it's all lies, whether you think it's over part of the American dream is about social mobility, right? It's about the fact that, Hey man, if you, the, the idea again, a dream, you know, some people will say it's a dream cause you gotta be asleep to believe it. But the idea was you're going to be allowed to pursue happiness. You're not going to be guaranteed to be happy. But you're going to be at least allowed to give it a, a try. And if you work hard and you're talented, you might be able to you're going to be allowed to do better than your parents. Yeah. And did, and right? and I think that not even talented, there was a quality of like, if you can just be stable and sorted yeah, true. and reliable and yeah. uh, a stand up person. Right. You're yeah. going to make it. You're going right. to make it. You're going to have the little house. You're going to you can have your kids. Right. Your kids might have a better life than you did. And, yeah. you know, as long as you can, you know, not show up drunk on the, you know, on the job, be steady, right. you know, right. yeah, that was sort of the bargain hitherto. Yeah. That's and all I, gone now, of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think one way to look at the civil rights movement uh, in the night, this 1954 to 1968 part is the awakening of the black community in America of like, Hey, we haven't been allowed to access this thing. Right. And not just the black community. Uh, yeah. There were uh, yeah, others. People of yeah, color. For sure. mm-hmm. yeah, right, yeah, for sure. Right. For sure. We're we're not this. You claim this is the thing. And, and all we want is a, all we want is to participate in this thing. That's that's mm-hmm. what we want. Right. Right. Um, right. And, it, and the iniquity of the head start is just so brutal. And the people who have had the 100 year head start or the 200 year head start mm-hmm. are tend to be oblivious and blind to. Sure. Uh, just how devastating that is. Generational wealth is like the big leg up that lets you just fuck over everybody else around you. Uh, Mom and dad bought me this house. What's the problem? You know, meanwhile, it's like, you know, yeah. And nobody else can, well, that's not that kind of podcast, but yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, now, so one marker of the um, sort of quote unquote beginning of the civil rights. And again, these boundaries are, are very blurry, um, but one one thing that's often cited as, quote unquote, the beginning, I guess, maybe back up for a second. So there are uh, laws, local state laws uh, that are working towards the disenfranchised, basically keeping black people away and other people away from the opportunities that that, you know, by all rights, if you follow the Constitution, should have been awarded of uh, afforded to them. Um, but then there's also just kind of everyday the racism of everyday interactions. Right what it's like to live in a town or whatever. And one of more on that level was what happened to Emmett Till in 1955. Emmett Till, people may know, he was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago. He was visiting some family in Mississippi, summer of 1955. He spoke to 21-year-old Carolyn Bryant, who was the white married proprietor of a small grocery store. There's been some dispute about what actually happened between the two of them. Worst case scenario is that he flirted with her and maybe whistled at her. Okay, that's the worst case scenario. Um, Three nights later, Carolyn Bryant's husband and her brother-in-law abducted Till from his home, beat him to death, shot him in the head, and sunk him in the Tallahatchie River. Okay, now that's horrific. But what really pissed people off was the next part. The all-white jury found the two men not guilty. Later, they confessed to doing it in an interview with Look Magazine, but could not be tried again because you can't try again a person twice for the same crime. Look Magazine, the magazine that Stanley Kubrick uh, was a photographer for. Maybe he did their photo shoot. 
Uh, I don't think so. I highly doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah. Um, and, and so this was this story was kind of emblematic of a, a, a practice, a thing, a cultural phenomena, I guess, that had been happening for a while, though it had tapered somewhat um, of lynching. Um, and for people who don't know what lynching is, I'm sure most people have heard that word. It's basically street justice, primarily in the American South, generally generally racialized, right, um, to enforce discriminatory cultural norms. Um, though, the, in truth, you know, it's not just black people that were affected. Uh, you know, if you were in the wrong town and you were the wrong kind of person of any of any stripe, you might find yourself hanging from a pole, hanging from a tree. Uh, in 2017, the Equal Justice Initiative found that over 4,000 black men, women, and children fell victim to what they term racial terror lynching between 1877 and 1950. Of these 4,654 of them happened in Mississippi. Mississippi was the worst place for these things where Emmett Till was uh, lynched. <laughs> so if we want to think about Nina Simone's role in civil rights, she would have been aware of that. Um we can maybe start with that and bookend it with the 1968 assassinations of Martin Luther King and then Robert F. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy a few months later. That's this the that's this period, and there's a lot going on in between. Um, we've got notable figures. I'm not going to name everybody. There's a lot of important players in this. Um, Martin Luther King, <clears throat> outspoken proponent of nonviolence. Uh, his idea of how we should how this should be accomplished the 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 dream should be accomplished was boycotts sit-ins silent protests civil disobediences mar marches etc sort of the other poll is, uh, of martin luther king on one the, on the other poll would be malcolm x who was assassinated in 1965 malcolm x for people who don't know was an ex-convict who used the momentum, reach, and ideology of the Nation of Islam, a black nation, nationalist organization loosely related to mainstream Islamic traditions um, to, to kind of get his voice out there, get his message out there. Malcolm X was charismatic speaker, highly effective leader who spoke for freedom by, quote, any means necessary, which, of course, included violence. Um Malcolm X had an autobiography that was uh, co-written or helped by um, Alex Haley come out. And it is, it's amazing. I, I recommend everybody read autobiography of, of Malcolm X. It is quite a story and he led quite a life. Um, okay, so, so that's one end. I guess I'm just trying to show the spectrum. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, a lot of stuff in between. Marcus Garvey is in there. Black separatists yeah, the, are in there. It was a period of political assassinations in the country. Uh, and you, of course, you can't forget the president. Uh, right, right. Yeah, 1963, John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy yeah. was murdered. The, yeah. the coup, the coup yeah. that happened in this country. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the, the yeah. <laughs> We're going crazy. down to the docks here. Yeah, no, it's crazy. This country, this crazy country has never recovered and probably never will no. recover from that. Period. No, and I think I think a lot of times when people refer to the '60s when they talk about the 60s, a lot of I think when people don't think about it too deeply, it's like yeah, the music was kind of cool or something. It's like yeah, it was it part was of pretty it. Pretty cool. It was yeah. pretty cool. But like mm. also like also like if you were saying the wrong message, somebody might just shoot you in the street. Yeah, if you stepped out of line, there there would yeah. be a, there was a rifle waiting for you somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, <clears throat> between these two poles somewhere was a group called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, often referred to as SNCC. Um, 
this was this came out of student-led sit-ins at segregated uh, lunch counters in the South. Um, there was also out of this, there was eventually the Black Panthers, Marxist-Leninist Black Power Organization started in California in 1966, which advocated for violent resistance, but also self-empowerment of the Black community. If I come off as disparaging any of these people or groups, I apologize. Certainly not my intent. I'm trying to go kind of fast over this stuff because the history of the Black Panthers is fascinating. Um, if you try to encapsulate what they were up to in a sentence, it's going to rub somebody the wrong way just by the nature of things. Um, just trying to paint a picture of who are the players, what were they up to? Um, <clears throat> now, Nina, so those are just kind of thing, sort of pieces I'm putting on the board and we're going to show how Nina interacts with these as time goes on. <clears throat> now, Nina st started her career, as we've said, she just wanted to be the first black classical concert pianist, which in its own way would be a civil rights um, accomplishment, right? It's that's very much a, you know, a quote unquote, making history kind of thing. Um, during her time, it's sort of a, almost apolitical political activism in a way. It's like it's you don't have to say anything about what's going on. You just do the thing, right? During her time in Greenwich Village, she gets to know pretty well, like I said, Langston Hughes and James Baldwin. Um, she also becomes very, very good friends with Lorraine Hansberry, the critically acclaimed playwright behind A Raisin in the Sun. People may, may be familiar with that or at least heard of that. Um, these people... Lorraine Hansberry in particular, were giving her a kind of a radical edu an education in radical politics, history of black people in the Americas. Um, and in time, you know, over time, they're sort of schooling her into how important this is. She starts off and she just wants to play the piano for crying out loud. And eventually, after this trip to Africa, her friends are some of the most prominent, prominent intellectual voices in the black community at the time. She's starting to get a a, a wider picture of what's happening and also realizing that she might have some power in this, all this right. Famous musician, right. Has some money. Um, so she wants to get more involved as an activist, but remember what her husband's doing. Her husband is show, show, record a television appearance, radio appearance, interview for like, she, he's just, he wants, he's trying to make Nina Simone incorporated, make as much money as possible. Andrew Stroud could not care less about politics, civil rights movement. He's a black dude. He does not, he doesn't give a rip about any of that. He in fact would later say like, I don't know why she got all involved in that stuff to begin with, you know, just doesn't matter to him whatsoever. Um, and that will come, that will, that will be part of the conflict later. Um, yeah. So let's see. Oh, 1963, <clears throat> Nina finally does get a headline show at Carnegie Hall, the Hall of Halls, which makes or breaks you as a concert player, right? Um, and she played her most Nina set yet. This was like she was going to do her thing. Um, the only thing downside is she doesn't play Bach. And later on, she would say she regretted not playing any Bach when she was at Carnegie Hall. And much later, when she's like in her 60s, she at one point says, quote, I'm sorry that I didn't become the first black classical pianist. I think I would have been much happier if I had. All right. So it's just a sort of a sad moment. All the success and all this notoriety. And she comes to this thing. She still didn't actually do the thing she dreamed about doing in a way. Right. But right. And here, at the end of her set for uh, uh, an a encore, she could have come out and just blown them away with a surprise. 
The people would have let her do it. do it. Yeah, she yeah. just didn't well, do it for you whatever can't. reason. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, well, I'm maybe. sure there was a lot of pressure because the reviews that come out of that are going to be like, they're going to determine your career. Super important. Yeah. Yeah. Let me yeah, actually, yeah. let me actually read this bit about, I have exactly about the reviews. <clears throat> um, quote at Carnegie. This is the Isn't that funny. Hang on. Isn't it funny? Half the time I make a comment, you're like, I'm just about to talk about that. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> it's, it's tele we're, we're yeah, synchronized the seance, the telepathy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. We both, we both, in the, we're the only people who know how to do an art of darkness episode. So, and you know, it's, <laughs> we're tuned in. Um, at Carnegie, uh, sorry, quote, at Carnegie, Nina played a mix of popular pieces reinterpreted using her classical training. John S. William Wilson, sorry, John S. Wilson, a New York Times columnist, wrote the following about this pivotal concert. Quote, Miss Simone seemed totally absorbed, absorbed by the atmosphere of the moment. She has a way of being so relaxed and loose that as she performs her pieces, she is able to cross through several degrees of dramatic intensity at will. Miss Simone has a very developed sense of the dramatic and of contrast as when she plays a popular song with, with a primitive, repetitive, and sensual rhythm. She is a highly talented animal on stage with a great sense of how to give a show. That is why even when her ideas are not a success, which can happen, it is interesting to follow the wanderings of her, her audacious imagination. And he goes on to describe a little bit about what she played. And then, um, holy shit, though, you're right. Whoa, uh, a talented animal, a talented pretty... animal. I we're talking about system systemic yeah. racism one wonders if he would say the same thing about some diva from from paris who's come over yeah that's no. that's some gnarly shit what's the it name is. of the the reviewer john s wilson i assume he's dead now <laughs> i well i it, hope it, he's it, it, yeah. Mm, it, yeah it, it, it it's weird because it's it's if you if you are able to forget about the racial dimensions of saying something like that for a second how to say this there I is something it's a unique right. review like he in a way in the positive sense it's like there isn't a thing like this is somehow like this is different in a powerful way it's vital right? and kind of yeah. immediate but yeah when you it's very patronizing and ugly it is uh it yeah is. you don't yeah yeah Oof. yeah that's this is why i wanted to read it because it's sort of like she's being accepted but is she, like you get you play carnegie hall and you're called an animal right Right. I would be so fucking angry. Right. Yeah. Right. Oof. Um, um, just let me read this last little bit. Uh, quote, Nina Simone's concert at Carnegie Hall was a triumph, extended a few months later by the release of a record through Colpix. Uh, with this live album, the pianist would enter a new phase in her career, the richest phase, mixing artistic urgency and audacity. Okay. Now, <clears throat> uh, she well okay so what is it what is Andrew Stroud remember her business manager president husband but also more importantly president of Nina Simone Incorporated he takes advantage of this which you know arguably he should he sends her out on an eighth month tour against her own protestations she wanted she'd been building up to this Carnegie performance she wanted to spend some time with her daughter Andrew's like you gotta make hay while the sun shines baby right you gotta get out there. Um, she trusted him at this point with every aspect of the business. So in a way, if he said to do it, she said, yeah, he's probably right. I'll just, I'll, I'll just do it. And, you know, a, a lot of artists, I think, would fall into the category of like, oh, if somebody else could swoop in and take care of all this shit about it, you know, like 
then I'll just trust them. I'll just do it. I'll do my thing and they'll point me in the direction and that's what I'll do. Um, and I think that's the kind of mode she's in right now. Um, she just, you know, so she's just performing, performing, performing. Um, eventually this is going to cost them her sanity and their marriage. This, this fact that he just pushed her and pushed her and pushed her. They would get into arguments. They would get violent with each other both directions um she would start drinking too heavily um there would be multitude of breakdowns of various sorts and we'll talk about more about those um but i want to tell you the point where nina became went from being an artist who had was had some political interests into an uh, maybe more as much an activist as she was a musician and the specific event that kicks it off is the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing of September 15th, 1963. Let me just read you a little bit about this for people who don't know. On that date, four members of the KKK planted 19 sticks of dynamite and a timing device beneath the steps of the of this church. Um, as people may know, Birmingham, Alabama, where this took place, was one of the most racially tense communities in the country. MLK had called it the most thoroughly seg segregated city in the United States. Um, at the time, strenuous efforts were being made by civil rights leaders to push back on the segregation. And this church, the 16th Street Baptist Church, had been become a rallying point for marches, protests, meetings, everything. <clears throat> Let me just read the narrative about the bombing. <clears throat> and I'm going to go into some excruciating detail here because it actually, like, if you've never heard of this, um, it's, it, I think it helps clarify some things. <clears throat> um, in the early morning of September 15th, 1963, four members of the of the KKK, Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr., Robert Edward Chambliss, Chambliss Bobby Frankie, Frank Cherry, and Herman Frank Cash planted dynamite with a time delay under the steps of the church close to the basement. At approximately 10.22 a.m., an anonymous man phoned the church. The call was answered by the acting Sunday school secretary, a 14-year-old girl named Carolyn Mall. Excuse me. The anonymous caller simply said the words three minutes to Maul before terminating the call. Less than one minute later, the bomb exploded. Five children were in the basement at the time of the explosion in a restroom close to the stairwell, changing into choir, choir robes in preparation for a sermon entitled A Rock That Will Not Roll. According to one survivor, the explosion shook the entire building and propelled the girls' bodies through the air like rag dolls. The explosion blew a hole measuring seven feet in diameter in the church's rear wall and a crater five feet wide and two feet deep into the in the ladies' uh, basement lounge, destroying the rear steps, steps of the church and blowing a pass, passing motorist out of his car. Several other cars parked near the site of the blast were destroyed and windows of properties located more than two blocks from the church were also damaged. All but one of the church's stained glass windows were destroyed in the explosion. The sole stained glass window largely undamaged in the explosion depicted Christ leading a group of young children. <clears throat> Hundreds of individuals, some of them lightly wounded, converged on the church to search the debris for survivors as police erected barricades around the church and several outraged men scuffled with police. An estimated 2,000 black people converged on the scene in the hours following the explosion. The church's pastor, the Reverend John Cross Jr., attempted to placate the crowd by loudly reciting the 23rd Psalm through a bullhorn. Four girls, Addie Mae Collins, age 14, Carol Denise McNair, age 11, Carol Rosamond Robertson, age 14, and Cynthia Wesley, age 14, were killed in the attack. The explosion was so intense that one of the girls' bodies was decapi 
decapitated and so badly mutilated that her body could be identified only through her clothing and a ring. Another victim was killed by a piece of mortar embedded in her skull. The pastor of the church, the Reverend John Cross, recollected in 2001 that the girls' bodies were found stacked on top of each other, clung together. All four girls were pronounced dead on arrival at the Hillman Emergency Clinic. Yeah, if, okay. if you've reached a point in your life where you've decided you're going to be attacking a place of worship, you've there, you've got a warm spot in hell waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want Dante's to... Dante's got his yeah. pen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just that's that's just evil. It's I don't the care lowest what low. Yeah, I don't, I don't care, care what you're. Yeah. Pointing, and that's horrific too in children. Yeah, it does, uh, yeah it's that's yeah. just horrific. Yeah, yeah terrible. I don't care what I don't care what your point is. At the, nope. Like, yeah. 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 You've, you've actually made an enemy out of me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. now Nina, like I said, this is, this is, uh, uh, this is a turning point for Nina. Um, and let me read a little bit about this. Um, um, oh, and also just before that, uh, Medgar Evers had been, uh, assassinated. Um, he was the f- uh, secretary for the NAACP in Jackson, Mississippi. He'd been shot to death on the steps of his home. And at the trial for that guy, the governor of Mississippi walked into the, sh- the courthouse and shook the assassin's hand. Right. So this is the scene. This is the, the, the scene we're dealing with. <clears throat> but back to Nina, <clears throat> quote. I was sitting there in my den on 15 September when news came over the radio that somebody had thrown, uh, basically uh, the news about the bombing came through. Um, uh, it was more than I could take. And I sat struck dumb in my den, like St. Paul on the road to to Damascus. All the truths, truths that I had denied to myself for so long rose up and slapped my face. The bombing of the little girls in Alabama and the murder of Medgar Evers were like the final pieces of a jigsaw that made no sense until you had fitted the whole thing together. I suddenly realized what it was to be black in America in 1963, but it wasn't an intellectual connection of the type Lorraine had been repeating to me over and over. It came as a rush of fury, hatred, and and determination. In church language, the truth entered me, and I, quote, came through. I went down to the garage and got a load of tools and junk together and took them up to my apartment. Andy came in an hour later, saw the mess, and asked me what I was doing. My explanation didn't make sense because the words tumbled out in a rush. I couldn't speak quickly enough to release the torrents inside my head. He understood, though, and was still enough of a cop to see I was trying to make a zip gun, a homemade pistol. I had it in my mind to go out and kill someone. I didn't know who, but someone I could identify as being in the way of my people getting some justice for the first time in 300 years. Andy didn't try to stop me. Just stood there for a while and said, Nina, you don't know anything about killing. The only thing you've got is music. Okay. So um, not long after she performs a song, which would come out on a 1964 album called Mississippi Goddamn. Now, she didn't write this, but she kind of co-wrote it. Um, let me just read some of the lyrics here. Um in the introduction, this is before this is it's a live it's a recording of a live performance. She says the name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn, and I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Um, 
Hound dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat across my path. I think every day is going to be my last. Lord, have mercy on this land of mine. We all going to get it in due time. I don't belong here. I don't belong there. I even stopped believing in prayer. Don't tell me. I'll tell you. Me and my people just about do. I've been there, so I know they keep on saying, go slow. But that's just the trouble. Too slow. Washing the windows. Too slow. Picking the cotton. Too slow. You're just plain rotten. Too slow. You're too damn lazy. Too slow. The thinking's crazy. Too slow. Where am I going? What am I doing? I don't know. I don't know. Just try to do your very best. Stand up. Be counted with all the rest. For everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. Picket lines, school boycotts, they try to say it's a communist plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. Yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady, and you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. Oh, but this whole country is full of lies. You're all going to die and die like flies. I don't trust you anymore. <sighs> it goes on a ways after that. But How do you really feel, is- Nina? Yeah, this is I, angry, Nina. The, yeah. You know, the thing that they that they fear the most is uh, for for people of all stripes who know yeah. what she's singing about to come mm-hmm. together and to point point our rage at the right place. Yes, and that's all I'll all I'll say about mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. if you're listening to this and you're well, yeah. and you can't relate to that, and you're an American, maybe just I don't know, step back and try to have some empathy uh mm-hmm. because maybe mm-hmm. maybe you were handed a a pair of aces or a pair of yeah. kings when the when the game started yeah a lot of yeah. us a lot of a lot of folks are playing with you know two seven off suit yeah yeah and and, yeah. and you still got to play the game yeah you do and 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 from time to time you're gonna get a little pissed off mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yep i can't yeah. get any fucking cards right right yep right and and uh you know if we all wake up to who the dealer is, that's the that then who's the house, right? That's right. what they don't want. Well, well, and this is the thing for as for as as radical as Nina's politics would get and stuff like that. She says in multiple places in her biography, in her autobiography, in interviews, she she didn't think that white people and black people were fundamentally any different. Like she just thought like I'm part of the group that has been has been put upon and this part of the group is isn't um and you know there's a fundamental inequality there she had a great number of black friends you know we we talked about alvin shackman this guy she played with for years maybe the person she was closest to in total you know he's not a black guy uh various record producers you know it, it, she's that she situates herself in an interesting position and it's going to get almost more interesting as time goes on because after mississippi goddamn comes out Every song that she writes anyway, not performs, but that she writes is a protest song um, almost to the end of her career. And some of the highlights of these are um, 1966's Four Women, which is uh, it basically each verse is about a different sort of archetype of a, of a in her mind, at least of, a, of an African-American woman. Um, uh, great song. It's got a good pulse to it. I really like I really like four women. There's 1968's Ain't Got No, I Got Life, which is a medley of songs from the musical Hair. There's uh, 1969's To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which um, uh, after Lorraine Hansberry died young, this was the name of a play that she was working on. That song, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, would become a kind of a civil rights anthem. 
Um, Mississippi Goddamn, though, was the first of these, and it was a hit. Uh, uh, and it was sort of electrified people, especially I think that part, you know, the, the part there there are parts of that song that everybody can relate to. The, the thing where, what did she say? Something about, uh, uh, oh, but this whole country is full of lies. I mean, that you don't got to be of any particular race for that to to ring true for you at a, you know, a certain time during certain moments. Um, um, it was unfortunately, I think putting goddamn in the title, it, it expressed something, but it also gave the song kind of a vulnerability and that retailers could just be like, well, we can't I mean, we can't put that on the shelves. You understand, right? We can't. You know, we can't use the word goddamn like that. Um, so, you know, sometimes some places they would replace it with like triple X or like, you know, a, a series of you know symbols instead of the word goddamn. A bunch of retailers in South Carolina sent boxes of records back to the record label, but they had carefully broken every disc. Right. So they got they got the they, they got the they got the records as part of the distribution deal. They broke them all and sent them all back and didn't pay for them. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So um, I, I think for all these political, I, I mean, I have certain biases about um, and I know that not everyone in the world is going to agree with me. I have certain biases about political music more generally um, that I often think that the most effective art that has like a political aspect of it is like one step removed from the actual it's it's universalizing it more so than the, the, the than the specifics that's just my taste um so i think like one of her more effective song uh protest political songs is actually this song called i wish i knew how it uh how it would feel to be free let me just read you a couple of bars from that i wish i knew how it would feel to be free i wish i could break all the chains holding me i wish i could say all the things that i should say say them loud say them clear for the whole round world to hear. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart, remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free. I wish I could give all I'm longing to give. I wish I could live like I'm longing to live. I wish I could do all the things that I can do. Though I'm way overdue, I'd be starting anew. So she's playing at the edges of these concepts of just freedom in general. Um, and, and sometimes I think that's, you know, personally more effective, uh, but, you know, to each to each their own, I suppose. Um, the other thing about the, the, the political aspects is of, of her career. You know, she does Mississippi Goddamn, but it pretty quickly becomes not enough for her to just have some songs in her repertoire. And she has to get involved. She feels the need to get involved. By the mid-60s, she is in active communication with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She's attending meetings and other activities in New York and elsewhere. Um, interestingly, she starts going to these meetings and stuff, and she finds out that like her music is super important to all these people. Like She hadn't quite registered the fact that you know, there's all this activism going on. And then when those people go home or they have a party, they're all listening to Nina Simone music. And so she's already like, she's already kind of fueling it without really knowing that she was in a way. Um, yeah. It, there, in fact, there was a major SNCC meeting that in uh, 1964 that they rescheduled so they could all go to a Nina Simone show. <laughs> 
So uh, and apparently the only thing that had ever been stolen from a SNCC office were Nina Simone records. And that's because like SNCC volunteers were taking them home and listening to them. So she was already like in the scene. She was like in the scene without being in the scene. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so she could be becoming more politically active. She's starting to say things on stage in between songs about what's going on. Um, and, you know, I think there's an interesting point, And I don't know if I highlighted it enough earlier about her, about the fact that her mother never really accepted what she was doing. Right. Her mother was. a Yeah, was you a highlighted it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You mentioned mother, it. Yeah. yeah her, so her mother's a minister and, 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 and Nina always had this anxiety about wanting her mother to approve of her. Most of us feel like we want some degree of approval from our parents. And but her mother would never give it, even though, you know, Nina's writing checks. You know, there's never anybody. Never, nobody's ever saying thank you, you know, and, and let alone saying like, hey, Nina, we're proud of you. But I think when Nina became started to become politically active, there was this thing she could say, hey, I'm not just playing piano in a bar for drunks. I'm actually like participating in and whether a person agrees that she's what she was doing or not, she could at least say, I'm participating in defending the dignity of my people. I'm actually doing something, uh, trying to make some kind of positive change in the world. Right. And so I think that fueled her enthusiasm to be participating in this stuff and, and kept her performing music on the road, going out and seeing people. Right. Um, now, in terms of her actual evolution of her political ideas, right, she went from being basically non-political early in her musical career to being very political, um, almost to the point of ruining her career from a financial standpoint. Um, because when all the excitement about the civil rights stuff ends in like 1968, all the record companies are like, yeah, do we really need Nina to be like, is she gonna, can't we just have somebody who like plays the piano and sings really well? (laughs) Do we need somebody that's like saying, telling the audience, are you ready to burn down a police station? Like (laughs) maybe, maybe we don't need her. You know, and so it, it, Kanye, Kanye guy's uh, he's got a lot of opinions, <laughs> right? Could, yeah, could we get a Kanye that doesn't have any could, opinions? With could that? we get a, a Yeezus yeah. who doesn't go on Alex Jones? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and right. So yeah, so you get it. Um, now her evolution politically, just to kind of touch on this a little bit, she was more she was more on the black panther side than the martin luther king side to be quite honest she in fact at a meeting at one point went right up to martin luther king and told him i am not nonviolent," which is pretty heavy right um she became quite good friends with That's this a guy. Hell of a, you know, next time you're well you you and i we yeah. never do this anymore but right. the fellas out there next time you're or ladies next time you match yeah. with somebody on on tinder open yeah. with that or on Bumble, am, open right. with that. <laughs> I am not nonviolent. Let us know yeah. how that goes. <laughs> it's there's romance in the air on yeah. the, in the Art yeah. of Darkness Studios. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and this is the thing: she wasn't nonviolent in her life, right? She's getting in fisticuffs with her husband. There are all kinds of stories about her slapping people. Like you did not want to cross her. She would. She would kick your ass if she felt like that was necessary. Um, and we'll see in the after dark that this gets into her, her into some pretty serious trouble later in life. But throughout the 60s, she was a tough customer. And even even Alan, Alvin Shackman, her her light, her long term accompanist would be like, oh, she'd hit a switch 
And you, when that switch flipped, you did not want to be on the receiving end of it. You wanted to just find someplace else to be because she was she'd become kind of a monster. Her her daughter would say the same thing. We'll talk more about this. She would eventually be diagnosed with 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 a uh, with a uh, bipolar disorder. I was going to say um, she sounds like BPD possibly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's given BPD vibes for sure. Yeah. 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 Um. So. In terms of like politics, kind of where she lands, she's more on the the Snick Black Panther side of things. She becomes quite good friends with Stokely Carmichael. If I'm not going to go too deep into the life of Stokely Carmichael, super interesting guy. Um, he had been involved in the Freedom Rides in the early '60s. This is basically where you would they would pass some kind of desegregation law in the South, and people from the North would just go down there and just like test the edges of it because it's one thing to pass a law we're like you know we're not gonna you know no more you can sit on whatever part of the bus you want right but then is that actually what's happening in random town alabama or are they you know there's a one law in the books and one actual practice so these freedom rides they'd go down there and they would kind of poke the bear um uh 1964 stokely carmichael became the full-time organizer for snick and then he would eventually become the uh chairman of of snick um, but this kind of happens right at the same time that a lot of the members were saying like, yeah, that nonviolent thing that might not be doing the trick anymore. We might have to start kind of throwing some Molotov cocktails and stuff like that. Um, he in Minecraft. Yeah. In Minecraft. Right. Um, Carmichael <laughs> realize the algorithm listens to every single word. I mean, I don't think it's intelligent <laughs> enough to know that we're a, <laughs> an arts be. history, yeah. Uh, podcast yeah. uh, about the dark side of creativity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 God, now, how I, many lists are we on already, dude? All, all of them. Put me on all, all of them. For my, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love lists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, okay. So Carmichael resigns as chair of SNCC. He joins the Black Panthers. I'm saying all of this for a reason because I think Stokely Carmichael's political evolution kind of matches Nina Simone's and they were good friends. Because he also later bails out to Africa, which she does. And we're getting there. Um, now, J. Edgar Hoover had identified and, and here, give me a couple. Uh, a, a, here's a quote from Stokely Carmichael. Uh, he was one of the guys who really, you know, the phrase black power. He sort of brought that to prominence. Um, he in his mind, black power was, excuse me, quote, a call for black people to define their own goals and lead their own organizations. Fair enough. He also said. We have to organize ourselves to speak from a position of strength and to stop begging people to look kindly upon us. We are going to build a movement in this country based on the color of our skins that is going to free us from our oppressors, and we have to do that ourselves. Okay. Now, J. Edgar Hoover would identify Carmichael as the successor of Malcolm X, um, and there were active COINTEL pro efforts uh, made to tarnish the reputation of Stokely Carmichael in the term in what they call bad jacket or what we would call now shit coat him. Basically, basically, you would start rumors that, you know, whisper rumors like, did you know Car Stokely Carmichael is a CIA agent? And just spread that out there. Nothing right? like that happens now today. Yeah, yeah. at scale in yep. chat rooms all right. over the internet right, right now. Right. God, I heard, dude, I heard Stokely's a Fed. I don't know, but that's. I don't know. He seemed Stokely glows, dude. Right. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. kind of name is Stokely. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, and these efforts to shitcode him or bad jacket, as they call it. They worked and he gradually was denounced by the Black Panthers in 1969 and he he moved to Africa. Um, so 
Nina never actually a member of the Black Panthers, but I think her politics aligned with with Stokely Carmichael's over time. Um, uh, she, you know, she between that, knowing Stokely and having some tenuous relationships to various organizations and the things that she would say on stage. Again, there's a there's one performance of her on stage in the late mid to late 60s where she's literally saying like, um, she's calling out of the blood. This is for, you know, this is for my people in the audience. And she's saying things like, um, uh, are you ready to, are you ready to shoot a gun? Are you ready to kill? Are you ready to burn down a building? Like it's pretty intense. Right. So this is what, and later on, is that her opinion? I don't know, but she, had violent tendencies that she would indulge in and she would sometimes fantasize about doing things like poisoning the reservoirs right she would sometimes try to tell andrew stroud like her husband who would the police officer like don't you know how to get a lot of guns can't you like go get a bunch of guns for us like she would get it would get heavy for sure um right and you're right on the edge of making a specific threat and as soon as you make a specific threat then they can they can lock you up Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can now, go away for a long time. And yeah. Nina has a lot to lose. She does. She absolutely wow. does. Now, mm. let me read this little bit from the bio quote. Since the controversy around the release of Mississippi Goddamn and the radicalization of her positions, Nina had become a government target. The CIA had her under surveillance. Two agents had even come asking questions at the Juilliard School and the Curtis Institute. They had interrogated Professor Vladimir Sokolov, the old dude that she took piano lessons from, asking if he had any proof of a rebel uprising by his ex-pupil. Obviously, he didn't. Right. So she was on their radar. There is a file, and it's probably pretty thick uh, at the CIA about Nina Simone, the FBI. Um, now, funnily enough, at the same time, <laughs> Same time she's doing that kind of stuff on stage and the CIA and whatever, she would watch somebody like Aretha Franklin, whose politics were a lot more subtle, right? You know, Aretha Franklin's politics were more like, I'm going to sing the song Respect, and it's kind of vague if it's about a romantic relationship or it's political, right? That's where people like Aretha, Flank, Aretha Franklin or Gladys Knight, that's where, that's where they lived. They were more implied, and Nina was more direct about her stuff. She would so Nina would say this kind of stuff on stage, and then she would also be upset that like Aretha Franklin won an award that she didn't. And it's like, well, Nina, Aretha's playing the game. You you can't have it both ways, sort of, right? It's not gonna you can't make like threats about burning down buildings and also at that time anyway, like also <laughs> be welcomed in the boardroom of Columbia Records or whatever. <laughs> For real. Yeah. 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 And Malcolm X had a lot of there was a lot of uh, anti-Semitism in Malcolm X. And, oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's going to get, yeah. it, you're going to alienate certain people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, mm. so, so she, you know, she becomes a, she becomes, a, she's a central figure in a lot of all kinds of events, benefits, demonstration events. She flew to a concert in Montgomery after the bus boycotts and performed alongside Miles Davis. Uh, even though the authorities had caught wind of the event and tried to block their planes with bulldozers, like there was crazy stuff going on. Um, she got to know Duke Ellington, Harry Belafonte. Um, again, I said she became very close friends with Malcolm X's widow. Her daughter was best friends with Malcolm X's children. Um, and just as much, she would be courted by the various leadership, you know, 
there's I hope this is, we painted this picture. The civil rights movement is not a monolith where all of these people agree on anything, just like any other large social movement. You've got all it takes all kinds of people um, and they all would court her. Everybody wants Nina Simone to be on their side. Obviously. No doubt. I mean, she's yeah. got this massive platform. She's a respected artist. Yeah. Right. Right. Would right. she give little stage speeches ever? Would she talk she, on stage? Oh, she boy. did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I for yeah. sure. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And if you okay. see those, if you see, you know, if you watch a pull up, it's and listening to her live performance is really where it's at. If you're trying to listen to Nina Simone, for the most part, there's some good studio stuff, too. But and yeah, there'll be stuff. There'll be stuff kind of peppered in there about, you know, various, various things. Um, let me give you one thing about her being courted, which is just kind of a funny story. This is about Louis Farrakhan. I don't know if people know Louis Farrakhan. Louis Farrakhan. I, nation of Islam. Nation of Islam. Sometime after Malcolm X was ex, was assassinated, Louis Farrakhan took over the Nation of Islam. Um, and he came courting Nina Simone at one point. And there's kind of an interesting little story. <clears throat> Quote, Nina Simone felt close to the Nation of Islam's separatist ideas, but she would never join despite the arrival in Mount Vernon of the sect's new head, Louis Farrakhan. One night during a one-on-one -on -one discussion, he tried to convince his hostess about Islam. She made advances on him, but he dodged them, preferring to continue with his rhetoric into the small hours of the morning. Quote, so he didn't manage to convert me and I didn't convert him, she wrote in her autobiography. In 1975, after the death of Elijah Muhammad, Farrakhan would create a new nation of Islam in the same line as the teachings of his founder, but showing itself to be more extremist and openly anti-Semitic. So anyway... Louis Farrakhan shows up to try and get her into the cause. And she's like, you know, he's looking pretty good. Maybe I should try to let's see if I can sleep with this dude. <laughs> and he, he doesn't go for it at all. <laughs> Wait, um, so she's so she's sleeping around on her. Oh, yeah. And this they're is one both thing, just like this is one whatever. thing I was kind of kind of work up to is after a couple of years of touring, as we get as we get into the late 60s, they're they're married. Andrew Stroud and Nina are married, but there's no romance. There's no they're both. They both got relationships going on. Business and, relationship. There's some couples who say, yeah, you're going to the conference. Yeah, I don't I don't want to hear about it, but yeah, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And some couples and, have that. And Nina couldn't be alone either. She mm. was, was, it was very difficult for her to be alone. And she was always like sex starved. And we'll get into this later. Like she was very, she had very strong sexual appetites and found it very difficult to get those needs met throughout her life. So, and we'll, that'll, that'll come to the fore a little bit more later. She just know. like me for real. For real. <laughs> um, That's fast. I did. Did yeah. she have, did she have children or are you going to come to the one daughter? You already yeah. mentioned that. The one That's daughter. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And she may yeah. have even had, it's a little clouded in mystery, but she may have had some lesbian relationships as well. Um, you know, for whatever mm. that's worth. Um, but yeah, she was like constantly, it's funny in this, in this BBC interview that she does in like the year 2000, she's a much older, I mean, she's in her well into her sixties and she says something in the interview about how she, she really wants to be married. And the subtext of it is like, I don't know if it's about married or just getting some, you know, <laughs> yeah, she wants to, she wants to get, she wants to get some. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and she yeah. even goes like, she even goes like, I'd marry anybody. I'd marry the cameraman. <laughs> all right yeah that's one way to do it yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um so let's talk about the music a little bit here uh, you know she's evolving as a musician and i want to make sure we're we're giving some adequate time to that so um mid 60s is where we get some of her most 
enduring work, the stuff that people still listen to. We get Nina Simone in concert in 1964, which was her first live album to the charts. A year after that, we get two studio albums, I Put a Spell on You and Pastel Blue. This is a new record deal she has with Philips Records. This is the best, by far the best record company she ever works with. Um, and anyway, let's talk about these two albums. These are both of these are fantastic. I put a spell on you and past and pastel blues. Um, I put a spell on you is named after a song originally by Screaming Jay Hawkins. Um, it also be covered by Creedence Clearwater Revival, Marilyn Manson. Um, most of the people who are covering it are actually if this makes sense, they're actually covering the Nina Simone version. If that makes sense. It's like, that's would be most people's first exposure to this song. Um, uh, you know, and, and what's great about it is like, we get Nina at her most sort of hypnotic, hypnotic and like dark, like for people who've heard that song, it's dark. It is like black magic. Right. Um, uh, but it's also like a, one of her most timeless pop songs. It's not musically particularly complicated. It's not overly emphasized in the piano. It's just, it's just, it's, it's always just going to sound good. I think 50 years from now, that song is going to sound good. Um, it's, it's really incredible piece. Um, we also get her rendition on that album of feeling good, which is written by English musicians, Anthony Newley and Leslie Bracusi. Um, this is where of, these are the legendary. Yes. These, now we're into the the stuff is, that everybody knows. Yeah, this is yeah. Nina Simone's greatest hits. I mm. put a spell on you. If it's not on there, no, somebody didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is uh, a dark, dark song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Especially in context of what happened on her the night of her engagement. Right. I put a spell on you. Yeah. Because you're mine. Yeah. Mm. We get uh, so yeah, we get her rendition of "Feeling Good," which has been you know, there's been countless covers of this. Uh, hers was maybe the first. Again, if somebody if somebody plays covers "Feeling Good," they're probably covering the Nina Simone version in a way. We also get the song uh, in on the "I Put a Spell on You" album, "Neme Kite Pas" or "Don't Leave Me," her French song. It's sung in French, um, originally written and recorded by Belgian musician Jacques Brel. So. As you pointed out, Kevin, these are, are Nina Simone standards. Uh, and, you know, if you went to see her anytime after, say, 1965, she was going to play one or more of these songs for sure. Um, 1965, we got Pastel Blues, as I mentioned, more of a piano heavy album than I Put a Spell on You. Um, and it's a little bit more subdued in some ways than I Put a Spell on You, but we get Strange Fruit, which Kanye West famously sampled this version of it. Uh, Billie Holiday had first sung it in 1939, but Nina Simone's version is, in my opinion, has, in my opinion, I like it better. And I think most people would say it's at least as good. Um, uh, there's also on Pastel Blues, Sinner Man, which is, I'll tell you the whole reason that we're doing, I gave you reasons why we should bother to cover Nina Simone. I'll tell you why I'm talking about Nina Simone. Okay. I lived a in Boise, Idaho for a number of years. And I used to drive from Boise, Idaho to Salt Lake City um, on a fairly regular basis uh, for reasons. And I remember I would leave before the sun came up. Did you have a Mormon uh, mistress? No, what? no, no, oh. no, no. Okay. It was in um, a, it was in a, um, it was in a professional capacity. We'll just say I, okay. that. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. And so you drive across Southern Idaho and it's desert and it's flat and there's nobody out there. And I had Sinner Man 
on my like little MP3 player for some reason. And I don't even know if I had actually listened to it. This was, this was just after the Napster era. So I'd have a, like most people, I have a lot of music that wasn't even organized or named properly half of it. You know, you just have like 7,000 songs and it's all just on your, your gadget. And so I'm driving across Boise as the sun is coming up, the sun's starting to come up behind the mountains and I'm having a little smoke and my, my MP3 player is on random and I got the music player and I'm driving like 90 miles an hour, nobody else on the road in the desert and the sun comes up and Oh, Sinner Man, like uh, the, the driving piano of Oh, Sinner Man comes on and I have a full blown religious experience to this song. Okay. <laughs> if you haven't heard it, you, li- you literally need to go listen to Sinner Man by Nina Simone immediately after listening to this podcast. This and, and this opened me up to her whole like world. I started listening to a lot of Nina Simone. I don't love every song of hers. Is there a musician that you know, every song is, <laughs> is as good as their best. Probably not. Um, but Sinner Man is incredibly powerful. It's, she didn't write it. It's actually a traditional African-American spiritual. She arranges it into this driving. Again, she metamorphosizes it. She turns it into a Nina Simone song. Um, it's probably, I think nowadays, for a while, until Kanye West sampled her, I think this was probably the song that was the introduction for for most people to Nina Simone. Um, but let me just give you a couple lyrics here. <clears throat> oh, Sinner Man, where are you going to run to? Sinner Man, where are you going to run to? Where are you going to run to all on that day? Well, I run to the rock. Please hide me. I run to the rock. Please hide me. I run to the rock. Please hide me. Lord, all on that day. But the rock cried out, I can't hide you. The rock cried out, I can't hide you. The rock cried out, I can't hide you all on that day. I said, rock, what's the matter with you, rock? Don't you see? I need you, rock. Lord, Lord, Lord. Go on. We go on. We go on. Um, so I run to the river, it was boiling. I run to the sea, it was boiling. I run to the sea, it was boiling. So I run to the Lord, please hide me, Lord. Don't you see me praying? Don't you see me down here praying? But the Lord said, go to the devil. The Lord said, go to the devil. He said, go to the devil. So I ran to the devil, he was waiting. I ran to the devil, he was wait- waiting. Ran to the devil, he was waiting all on that day. I cried power power to the Lord. And then she just says power, power to the Lord for like five minutes straight. (laughs) It's incredible. Reading the lyrics does not convey it. And I tried to sing it off at the beginning and I can't do it. I can't do it justice. It's just incredibly, incredibly powerful track. I'm keeping an eye on the Art of Darkness telegram at t.me slash Art of Dark Pod. And I just put the Sinner Man Spotify link in the chat. But don't, uh, don't change that dial. No. Make it to the end of the episode and then listen to Cinnamon. Yeah. So good. So good. Um, okay. So you you sold me. I, I'm sure I've heard it before, but I will listen have. to it again. Yeah. I will listen yeah. to it again for sure. Yeah. Um, what a what a fun core episode we have here. We're going into hour four. <laughs> are we How already are we doing? Oh yeah. my gosh. You're right. You know, you're, you're doing yeah. all right. You're doing you're doing yeah. well. How how far along are we, Brad? How oh, much we're more do we have? Two thirds of the way, probably. Or that's better. exactly yeah. where we ought to be, man. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, now as we were saying, through the '60s, Andy Stroud, president of Nina Simone Incorporated, pushes her super hard. As we said, it stops being a kind of a loving marriage. Um, uh, 
and there's all this tumultuous stuff in her life. There's the civil rights movement. There's these friendships she's making. There's people being assassinated, right? There's all these kinds of things. But the truth is she's at the same time, she is refining her performance to become the legend that, you know, she is now. And let me just read a little bit about Nina Simone performing. Um, because nobody quite ever did it like her <laughs> um, in, so, in, in some, some real ways. Um, <clears throat> quote, she always followed the same ritual before each concert. She would go to the hall in the afternoon, standing on the stage. She would look out at where and how the audience would be sat, at what distance, how the rows were set out, how the speakers had been positioned. She would choose the microphones best suited to her voice. And finally, she would close herself off and rehearse for a few hours. Then she would join her musicians. She never gave a definitive set list before each concert, preferring to wait until the very last minute. So if you were accompanying her, you had to be on your point because she could hand you anything, right? Um, she would walk out on stage, create an atmosphere with her first song and maintain it with those that followed, all while trying to for forget the audience, to play for herself, to have a good time until she could feel the emotions coming to a peak. Once she felt that the energy had invaded every member of the audience, that everyone had become an extension of herself, she would stop to judge her impact. Complete silence. She would hold them. She was known... Like during her performance, she would sometimes just stare out into the crowd, not say or do anything for, you know, a few seconds. And you think about if you just drop a, an incredibly powerful performance, even just one song, not the whole show, and then you just stop. There's like a level of like intensity to that. Like the whole room is just vibrating to see what's going to happen next, right? Uh, quote, Following a concert in which that magic had worked, Nina declared to her English biographer, quote, the spirits of my African ancestors were there. I could feel them and they really took hold of me. I could see them every, I could see them moving about. I know they got the spirit this time. Shit, it was everywhere. Yes, it was deep. She explained the phenomenon as follows, quote, I just let the spirits take possession of me. But you know, I expect people to respect me. What I do demands so much of me that they must respect what I do. Sometimes I sit at the piano and it's as if my hands were playing on their own and I'm just happy to go along. It's like electricity going through me and out into the place. They can feel it, man. Um, everyone I've met who knew Nina Simone intimately, on stage or off, insists on one particular point. Her hypnotic powers were real. In a few months, she would be given the title High Priestess of Soul, a title that would not be usurped. Right? There's a whole bit in here about questioning whether or not Nina Simone was a hungan, hungan, which is like I believe is like, like a, a voodoo, voodoo priest, voodoo priestess. priest, or something. yeah, yeah. Um, wow. And she, you know, I think in some ways, you know, I think in some ways, yes. One of her greatest songs, in my opinion. By the way, I, I did put together on the YouTube channel a little Nina Simone playlist. It's like twelve songs. It's like greatest hits kind of thing. But in my opinion, of the greatest hits. Um, oh, I'll put a link to that in the chat right now. And of course, yeah. again, the YouTube is at youtube.com slash at art of dark pod. Yeah. Um, one of her most powerful songs, in my opinion, is this song she does in uh, 1974. It's on the It Is Finished album. She does a song called Dambala. And Dambala is one of the names. For, it's one of the the Loas and Buddhas and in, in, in Voodoo. Uh, it's basically God, right? And she she calls down a curse from Dambala on slave drivers. And it's it's so intense. And the piano, it's just her voice and a little bit of piano. And it's so in, like 
it gives me goosebumps every time I heard it. And I've listened to it like 40 times in the last month. <laughs> and it's angry too. That's kind of what I like about it is it's like, it's not. And, and to me, that's like the most effective. You're talking about like this political, the, all this political sort of stuff she did to me, this indictment that she has an anger and like righteous rage. She has at people who would enslave another person. Um, is more maybe more effective than any sort of object level like incrimination. I don't know, but again, that's kind of my bias. I always think the universalized stuff, at least one level, is is, is a little bit more effective. Um, now she also had a thing she did sort of on stage where where she hated when people talked, and this is probably from her barroom days. She would tell people to shut up. And she would, um, she would point at people and say, sit down, sit, you sit down. And, you know, she also had this thing. There are a number of shows that she just walked out on because she felt like people weren't giving her her due. Um, and she would say later, she said, like, if they don't want to listen, fuck it. I don't have to play. Like, I, you know, I'm not yeah, and if you're, if you're the eat. asshole talking in the back during a show like this, you really yeah. need to get your, your head out of yeah. your ass yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> Or now, even like if you're the person who won't put the phone down during a live show, yeah, you could go and take you could take a few pictures. I mean, if the the performer allows it, but then put your phone down. Don't watch the whole show through your phone. It's ridiculous. Well, well, this is the thing, and and you know, there there's you know, we could talk for a long time about this. The the the, and you you know, you're this is more your world than mine in terms of live performance. But like, you know, these live performances are like modern versions. This stuff all comes from like old, like religious ritual. When I yeah. say old, like thousands of years ago, we're tapping Pre- into that prehist- same prehistoric, prehistoric, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Every so, time a musician sits in front of a room, you were mm-hmm. going back to the very essence. Every time somebody stands up to read a poem or a, yeah. to read from a play, you're going all the way back to the very basic uh, core of our right. humanity. Right. No. So you're like going to be on your phone. Like you're not part of the, you're not part of the ritual here, man. Like, right. Get out, right. Leave. Yeah. So you've let the thing, you've let the yeah. machine consume you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. You really have. So. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand if there's an emergency, people are understanding, but, but you got to get, you got to get that device down. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, 1966, she drops two albums, let it all out, which includes another Nina Simone standard, standard mood indigo. Um, and she releases Wild as the Wind, possibly best known for the song Four Women, which uh, Jay-Z sampled in a song called OJ a few years back, which is which is pretty good. Um, it's a good song on its own. Uh, um, now, to co- to capitalize on this la- later album, Wild as the Wind, uh, out of those two, I would recommend uh, Wild as the Wind more so than Let It All Out um, to to kind of keep things going after these two albums in one year uh andy stroud set nina up on a tour with bill cosby so she's going to open for bill cosby on on the road let me read about this um what happens because it does not go super well um she loved bill cosby as a comedian um but and but this is not about the famous kind of bill cosby stuff this just happens to be bill cosby's in the orbit of the story. Um, 
Quote, Andy had scheduled an American tour uh, for his wife with the comedian Bill Cosby due to start the minute she finished promoting her record, but Nina was somewhere else altogether. For weeks now, she had gone to sleep only to wake up feeling exhausted. At night, she was haunted by melodies, hearing snippets of speech or even voices whispering in her bedroom. Panicking, she'd turn on the light, looking around, but there was no one there. Later, the voices later the voices would return during the daytime. She'd sometimes black out or suddenly become agitated and lose uh, lose her lose her rag. I don't know what that means exactly in this context. For no apparent reason, before sinking back into deep silence. Wouldn't it be her? It'd be the thing she was wearing on her head. Didn't she wear these? She did. She Hmm. would wear those. I guess that's what it means. Yeah. Anyway, um, unable to ignore the situation any longer, Andy Andy finally began to worry. Never before had he seen her in such a state, and he did the best he could to try and soothe her by talking about that blackboard in the Mount Vernon kitchen. One day, my Nina will be a big black woman loaded with cash. There was no reaction. She was gone, lost in some daydream. Now, let me read another part, because this gets way more intense. Um, This is from the autobiography. Um, About this time nearing the end of the tour with Bill Cosby. Quote, the first few dates went well. Bill Cosby was wonderful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The problem started when Andy walked into my dressing room and found me staring into the mirror, putting makeup in my hair, brown makeup, because I wanted to be the same color all over. I was wearing a white gown and all I could think about was how much was how the color of my gown should contrast with the rest of me, which had to be the same all over. Okay. Andy came in and looked at me and I saw from his eyes that he was very worried about something. I was in a state where I was half outside myself, observing my peculiar behavior from a distance. Andy looked scared. Don't tell Bill, was the first thing I said to him. Don't tell Bill. So Andy tried to talk uh, talk me through it and calm me down, but I kind of drifted away from him. He tried to get me to talk sense, but I said things like he wasn't my husband. He was my nephew, and we were going to fly up to heaven together, and he'd better do what I said because I was Grandma Moses. At the same time, wave after wave of tiredness broke over me, and I felt like any minute I would fall asleep for a hundred years. I looked over at Andy, and for a moment I could see right through his skin, right through as if he were covered in plastic, and I saw the blood pushing around and the organs of his body twitching and throbbing, his heart beating, and then it was gone, and I was near to my normal self again. Um... Andy was frightened and asked me if I wanted to quit the tour and go home, but we were over halfway through and I didn't want to let everyone down, especially Bill. So we carried on and the weirdness carried on too, coming and going. I had visions of laser beams and heaven with skin, always skin involved in there somehow. My waking hours were a succession of intense daydreams with short, calm periods in between. On stage, I was com- I was lost completely, but my subconscious got on with the show and no one noticed the different difference except my musicians and Andy, who stood anxiously in the wings wondering if I was about to faint or say something really crazy. Every now and then, my music was altered by these moods. Once I found myself playing the Lone Ranger theme music very softly and quietly, but it was mostly by perceptions, how I saw the world. So she kind of broke. Hallucinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. And this is the kind of Oof. thing that, you know, people would go to the hospital now for exhaustion or something, right? And this, well, how just, old is she here? She would be uh, 33, 34. Yeah. I don't know if people or people who are in their 20s quite realize uh, that life is an accretion. And by the time you're in, you're, you're hitting in. And of course, she was, her 33 is like most people's 50, I would say, or right. 45, probably. Yeah. She yeah. was living a lot at a very young age, playing Bach when she was a child. Well, yeah. Uh, and 
life has a way it's like a it's like a buildup uh um, it's like uh, I don't even really know how to explain it. it just the shit piles up, it and does, yeah. it piles up inside you. It, pile, it yeah. piles up in you. It's what you are. So there's a reason people have midlife crisis. People have mm-hmm. to, you know, you're 40, and then you realize, wait, I'm supposed to do 40 more years of this, right. and my brain already feels this broken. Right. People, people break down. Yeah, yeah. 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 I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah, um, nothing like that. I've read about nothing it. Like that I've here. read about yeah. it. Nothing, nothing going on in the Art of Darkness studios <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's that, but there's also, I mean, I think there's fundamentally. I mean, she gets she's not diagnosed for that at this point in the story, but later she gets diagnosed that she has you know bipolar and it's pretty serious and uh, it's a combination of these things. There's exhaustion, but there's a kind of exhaustion that no amount of sleep ever gets rid of, right? There's something that goes, you, you break at a certain point. And I think that's what's happening to her. Um, and, you know, in this time, she began, she developed a reputation for being really difficult to work with. And I've said this before, but violent, um, you know, at some point in the late sixties, somebody said, yeah, I think Nina slapped about 30 different people now. Like, she she'd hit people she'd yell at people um uh and, and no one was exempt from this um no one including her daughter lisa who we're going to talk about a little bit more later um and you know the constant touring and this is the other thing that nina would say and i, I think it kind of came through in that is playing music it, it was like she was opening a channel up and she couldn't close it back down so like, okay, you play, you, you, you know, you think I, I'm going to put the work in, and I'm going to play this show for an hour or hour and a half, two hours or whatever. And then I'll go and I'll have a good meal and I'll relax. No, for her, a conduit had been opened and she can't calm down. So after a show, she sometimes would literally would not be able to sleep until like the next day or something. Um, and that added to the difficulties of this. You'd feel haunted by the music in a way. This is where people pick up habits. This is where you pick up junk, you pick up booze yeah. because you've got to come down from yeah. that extraordinary high uh, yeah. of of the performance. Yeah. And alcohol, alcohol was her thing. It's really difficult to understand how much she was drinking, but it was substantial. I mean, we've had some big drinkers on Art of Darkness that we've covered. We sure have. <laughs> right. And so I don't know where she ranks, you know, if that's even mm. a worthwhile way to think about it, but but it was definitely um, Pre- present company excluded. Who yeah. do you think is the biggest drinker we've had on? Is that's it a good question. Bukowski, Berryman? It's got to be one of those two guys. I think it's one of those two. It's got to be think... Berryman because Berryman, Berryman buried himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think you know, yeah, I think it was probably, but Bukowski is Bukowski's up there too, and Faulkner too. Yeah, Faulkner. It's, yeah. I think it's it's probably Berryman, Faulkner, Bukowski. Yeah, and then after that, it's gets you know Hemingway yeah. to definitely drink a lot. You know, it's hard yeah, to say. True, but, true. Yeah, Hem's up there too. Bar- yeah. Berryman was the one we read where I was like repulsed, like I was like disturbed yeah. by how much he drank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, and by the way, if you have a problem. You can get help. You're not alone, for real. If you yeah, if you even remotely think you have a problem, you have a problem, and uh, there are lots of resources and places you can go to get help. Indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I certainly don't want to romanticize it at nope. all. No, nope. yeah. this yeah. no, this I, podcast. I we we joke and we laugh, but I mean, it will. Yeah. You know, uh, booze will end up one of three ways. You'll end up uh, in the hospital, you'll end up in jail, or you'll end up dead. And sometimes yeah. dead is the better. 
uh, or you end up mad, I think they say. So you end yeah. up mad uh, in jail or dead. And sometimes dead is better than the jail option because you don't know what might land you in jail. Right. Yeah. Right. So for yeah. real. Yeah. This this podcast is 100 percent not uh, doesn't exist to romanticize any of no, that. And no. it's not good for your art or your creativity. I know no, we have a lot no, of creative really. people who listen to this podcast. Like it might feel good in your twenties and your thirties, you know, might be able to make it work, but boy, that shit catches up to you. Yeah, it certainly <clears> does. Certainly yep. does. Um, now, okay. So we're getting towards 1968. And I said earlier that the civil rights movement sort of in terms of, you know, capital C, capital R, capital M, kind of ends in 1968. And if you look on Wikipedia, that's kind of the year they put, right? And and the main reason behind this is that's because that's when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, April 4th, 1968, shot dead on the balcony of his hotel room in Memphis. Riots ensued in more than 100 cities, leaving dozens of rioters killed, mostly by police, and tens of thousands of arrests. Uh, for many, the idea was that the era of nonviolence was over. Some people would say, hey, we had this one guy out there in this movement that was preaching nonviolence and you killed him. What do you think is going to happen? That's kind of that. That was that was the attitude amongst some people, including Nina. Um, Nina thought at this point, she has a quote that says, I choose to reflect the times and the situations in my in." in which I find myself. That is my duty. Um, And three days after Martin Luther King was assassinated, Nina performed a song called Why, uh, subtitle, The King of Love is Dead. The lyrics were written by her bassist, Gene Taylor. Some people have called it the saddest song ever written. She performed it at the Westbury Music Fair in Long Island three days after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Let me read a couple verses of it. Um, Verse uh, one. Once upon this planet Earth lived a man of humble birth, preaching love and freedom for his fellow man. He was dreaming of a day peace would come to Earth to stay, and he spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek, he'd plead. Love thy neighbor was his creed. Pain, humiliation, death, he did not dread. With his Bible at his side from his foes, he did not hide. It's hard to think that this great man is dead. Will the murders never cease? Are they men or are they beasts? What do they ever hope, ever hope to gain? Will my country fall, stand or fall? Is it too late for us all? And did Martin Luther King just die in vain? Because he'd seen the mountaintop and he knew he could not stop. Always living with the threat of death ahead. Folks, you better stop and think because we're heading for the brink. What will happen now that he is dead? Um... Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, a few days after uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, they the the U.S. government under Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Um, this put an emphasis on the prosecution of hate crimes, guaranteed the applicability of the Bill of Rights and uh, among Native tribes, and tried to ensure fairness and housing. But it also made it a felony to, quote, travel in interstate commerce with the intent to incite, promote, encourage, participate in and or carry on a riot. So I leave it to people to decide whether this helps civil rights or not, you know, or was it, you know, one of these things that it's just called that Um, uh, a couple months after um, MLK was assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy, who was a major advocate for civil rights. Um, who was along with his brother, who 
was killed in 63, one of the first major national politicians with who actually had a platform to actually give a shit about the black community. Um, Robert Kennedy was assassinated um, and he was <clears throat> pretty obviously going to win the, the nomination of uh, during the primary race. Um, okay. In the years that followed this, um, she's, she, like many people is sort of exhausted on politics, sort of gives up on it to a certain extent. Um, in years that follow, she would tour, <laughs> excuse me, and put out two to three albums a year, a mix of live and studio productions. She would spend, start spending a lot more time in Europe. Uh, she would grow increasingly alienated from her daughter. More on that later. And more alienated from her husband as well, who is, as we've said, I think we've made the point there. Um, Lisa said this, Lisa, uh, Nina's daughter said this about them because they, you know, the way that they fought all the time. She said, I think they were, uh, I think they were both nuts. That's how she, re she refers to her parents. I think they're both nuts. And she said more specifically about Nina, that Nina was full of anger and rage and she could not live with herself. Um, finally, you know, amongst all this touring and all this craziness, Nina's need to be a human uh, kind of asserts itself. Um, she comes back from a tour in Europe and she puts her ring on the, on the table, her wedding ring on the desk. And she just bails out. Um, she says later that she did not mean to get a divorce, but this is the note that she left quote her, with her wedding ring on top of it. She left this note to Andy quote, I have nothing left to give Andy and I'm too tired to even talk about it. You go your way. I'll go mine. And then yet she assumed that like they would just stay married and it would all be okay somehow. Uh, she went to the Barbados. She checked into a five-star hotel. She stays there just chilling for a week. Then she goes back to the U.S. because Andy, she had to do a show in San Francisco and then she's going to go through New York. Andy has not reached out to her at all. It's been weeks. Um, she swings by the home in Mount Vernon to see he has moved out completely. He's gone. Um, Lisa is now staying with the Shabazzes, the 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 with the leftover the families, the surviving family of Malcolm X, um, and you know the, the marriage is basically split. And Lisa would say later, like nobody ever told me what was going on. Like I would just get put with a family. Nobody was ever told me when it was over, like or why or where anybody was. Like I didn't know where my mom or dad were for like six months. Like it's just very confusing for her when they weren't around, and when they were around, it was violent and angry and scary. Um, and I, as I was reading through this, I started to feel a lot of sympathy for for Lisa. Um, um. Eventually, uh, Nina and Andrew get divorced in 1972. Um, she ends up spending, uh, so she ends up after the divorce, she, Nina goes down to uh, uh, North Carolina, revisits Miss Mazzy. I think some of her family had moved back to North Carolina and she she's at her parents' home and she has this crazy thing happen where she overhears her father, her father who had been ill and had not been working at full capacity for years. Um, he's she, oh, Nina overhears her father sort of in the kitchen late at night telling Nina's younger brother saying, you know, I always took care of this family. It was always up to me and I always made sure it happened. And Nina, who'd been cutting checks to her parents for 20 years now or something, 
um, just loses it on him. Just like that's lies. That's BS. Nobody basically ever gives me the credit for being like the, the supporter of this entire family. Mom, you know, and and she she literally turns on her father. She, you know, a man that she grew up totally loving. Remember, she was his caretaker when she was a child. And then she hears this. She takes this as a betrayal. And I think she's projecting a lot of her issues onto it. She throws her dad out of her life. She wouldn't even come to him a few years later when she was dying of can- when he was dying of cancer and he was begging for her to come back. So I don't like stories like that, man. You only no. get one set of parents, even if they're not. Yeah. No, no parent is ideal. Uh, no, 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 no person is ideal. Yeah, I don't. I, but I, uh, I think I think she found it to be. She found herself. My interpretation of it is she found herself under so much stuff falling apart that. She found the one person who she could heap it all on who would still love her even after she did that. That's what I think that was. Like maybe she wasn't consciously doing it, but it was like, I have all this anger and I need to like foist it on somebody. And so she does it on the one person who even, you know, you know, parents, parents are going to love you pretty much, you know, no matter what you do. Yeah. There's um, nothing uh, any of my children could do that would make me stop loving them. Yeah. Nothing. Right, exactly. And I think she, on some level, knew that. And so she decided she was going to hate him mm. because she hated so much other stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she's not wrong. She's not wrong to hate. Like, there's there's room in this world to hate. The, wor- mm-hmm. the world is either indifferent or hateful. The social world hates you yeah. uh, in many cases. Um, when it loves you, it wants to use you. Yeah. And the universe often feels indifferent. I mean, do we have a sense of her religiosity? Was she... Yeah, I mean, she did, didn't really go to... Of- she didn't really go to church. I mean, she certainly believed in God. I don't even know if she would have considered herself necessarily a Christian. Um, I think... I think this is my interpretation of it based on some of the things that she played and some of the things that she said. I mean, at one point in an interview later in her life, she says, music is the closest thing to God I know. And I think for Nina, I think what for her, I think her experience was like, I perform every night and when it's on, I get very close to the, to the divine. And I think that she, decided that that was her church in a way um how effective that was for her is you know another thing i mean i don't as i mean if you're going to be a protestant i don't especially think that this is uh too too far off base you're all right i mean i don't i don't object to it yeah yeah i mean you know i like i like uh, a nice big uh cathedral myself Mm. but Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. you know but that's so fascinating brad she's such a, a complex character and is she the first prodigy that we've had like Kubrick was precocious but a bit of a moron too like like he didn't do well in school he was like a right. D student not that he was a moron I mean I'm right being right. a little cheeky there but yeah uh she was like the valedictorian yeah She's playing Bach at like or whatever at six, least dabbling yeah. like six yeah I'm trying to think of any other we have had any I, other yeah prodigies? I don't know I mean me I think I think prodigies come over more in music maybe than in other art forms simply because you can make some kind of noise very young you know what mm. i mean and so it, every kid's gabbing and if you can gab an actual song when you're two that's like amazing mm. uh, i don't know like what would a um what is a prodigious a filmmaker who's a prodigy what does that even look like i'm not right sure i don't exactly. even know i mean so i mean yeah. it would be kubrick i mean kubrick yeah. did it as as quickly uh as anyone um, yeah i think yeah i think that's I yeah think yeah, that's yeah. Right. Mm, okay um, all right um so okay so 
one thing she this divorce happens 1972 we remember that andy stroud was handling all of the business stuff right nina had no idea what the finances were she had no idea how much money she was worth she had no idea how much debt she was in if she was in any, she literally knew nothing about her personal finances she would later claim, I don't know how true this is, but this is what she would claim, that Andy, after they split up, after she put that ring on the table, Andy never sent her a dime. So basically, if we take Nina's word for it, everything, all the money she'd accrued up till 1971, just forget it ever happened. That reminds me, I have to move some money around in the account, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Before the, before I put my wedding ring on the table. Before before Brad catches wind of it. I truly don't understand an artist who would do this. I don't I mean, it makes me think of like Johnny Depp presently ago. Yeah. I mean, I guess you have to dress up as a pirate again, man. I mean, right. you right. know, and God love you. It's it's right. an incredible part. But like I I mean, I guess I could understand it. Why you're so busy and you're like, I'm a star, I'm a genius. Why would I why would why right. would I ever worry about any of this? And it's like, right. well, right. Mm. Yeah, and then yeah. you know the 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 kind of brain that is um is a genius piano player isn't necessarily you know not that she couldn't have handed some whatever the case she just left it all up to Andy and then when they broke up Andy just all right well good luck I own everything so yikes <sighs> so you gotta control this, your own shit people you really do yeah, you gotta yeah. have that have that llc and have yeah. uh have you you know you need to be looking at the books i, I don't know how yeah. it works when people get record deals but yeah. every or big publishing deals or whatever but every time i hear about a record deal it, i yeah. never hear that it's like yeah that went really well right <laughs> that really right. works it out does seem like artist. it's always a freaking scam yeah. yeah 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 i remember I'm... there was an interview with uh the guitarist from mastodon and you know i'm a bit of a metalhead and uh mm -hmm. he's just like miserable <laughs> like Aww. talking about their their touring schedule and how they have to tour for the label and all this stuff and it's just like damn that sucks man you're right you guys rock you should like yeah. love do it but yeah it's an industry man it's the music yeah. industry and and the dollars yeah. the dollars are a little harder to get your hands on now it was probably mm. easier to make a living as a musician in a way oh no doubt time. yeah oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. i think so yeah yeah um, okay, so 1972, she flees to Barbados, and Barbados becomes a place that is almost like a second home for a little while. She dates like some local boy who's like working in the hotel. She's sleeping around with him. She goes back to the United States a couple times. She's in Barbados, and I'm, I'm glossing over things, but there's this hilarious kind of anecdote. And for a while, Nina's enjoying, I'm not playing shows. I'm just chilling in the Barbados. She had a little bit of money, probably in like her, probably in her like personal walking around account that Andy had set up for her so she could spend money when she was on the road or whatever. And um, so she's dating this like local boy, basically. He's like in his early 20s. And he, in the Barbados, he does not know that she's famous. He thinks she's just a rich American. And she keeps trying to tell him like, and you can hear in the story that like, she doesn't, she kind of likes being away from things, but also she wants people to recognize who she is at the same time. And, you know, he's got that ego comes into play and he doesn't believe that she's famous. He's just, he's just like, I don't care. You're not whatever. Yeah, right. I'm sure you're famous. I'm sure you're the most famous musician in the world, Nina. Sure. And so she says, OK, I'm going to prove it to you. Who is the most famous person in Barbados? And, they, you know, the guy says, well, I guess probably the prime minister is the most famous. Right. She says, OK, we're going to his house. So the next day, 
he she goes out to his house there happens to be like some kind of reception going on for like dignitaries from around the caribbean she is wearing a like evening gown like looking her best and she walks up and introduces herself to the prime minister and the prime minister she's the most famous person like internationally in the barbados at the moment so of course they're like great you know this is this is a good thing that nina simone's here nina very rapidly becomes the prime minister of Barbados's mistress. Ah. He, puts, he puts her up in a house on the beach. And after his day of work is done, he goes and visits her and she makes him a little meal and maybe sings him a song and they sleep together. And this goes on for like two or three years. Incredible. She is, she is the kept woman of the prime minister of, of, of Barbados. Right. Um, God, man, the, what a world we inhabit. Right. <laughs> and now I think the interesting thing is, I think this period in Barbados, you know, whatever, she's in this relationship. She wanted to get married to this Earl Burrow guy, and he was never going to do that because he's, he's a politician. He's he's already married. And one thing it's very difficult to do is be a politician, get involved in some kind of scandal, you know, with a rich celebrity from another country. You're supposed to be a man of the people. He was never going to do that. Right. Um, but I also think that this time for Nina was good. She got actually some rest and she comes out with a banger. Uh, it is finished and it is finished is what it means is, is a few things. One thing is she was seriously thinking about not making music anymore. The other thing is it is literally it is finished in terms of her involvement in the civil rights thing. She was trying to put a close on that chapter in her career that she's not a civil rights icon she's a goddamn musician right and that's more important than anything and this is my favorite nina simone uh, nina simone album it is finished let me just read you a a, a quick thing this is from her own the, the nina simone.com summarizing this album um it is finished as nina's farewell to militancy to her record label and to america fittingly there are backward glances an affectionate homage to uh Bo bill bojangles robinson an earlier black hero and a dedication to Be bessie smith with a sexy sugar in my bowl the pusher an unsparing account of the devastation wreaked by drugs makes clear why escape was necessary having spent 15 years running it was time for nina to relax and take stock she moved to Barbados in 1974. She actually moved in 1972, but she, that was, this was more stat. She was living in a hotel until 1974. And sub subsequently, she lived in Liberia. We're going to talk briefly about the Liberia period. The role of freedom fighter had broken down in the face of social and personal problems. Uh, nothing daunted, Simone reinvented herself as the Obeya woman. The African-rooted, classically trained pianist freely moved between civilization and savage savagery. Both are tricky com, co concepts and need inverted commas. The dark and fearful Dambala visits a place beyond death and reveals the secrets that only the Obeya woman knows. This is where she gets into like her voodoo period, right? And and, and it's 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 epic. If in terms of a um, if you're you're looking for something, Nina uh, Nina Simone bit of work that isn't an individual song or just a collection of songs randomly put together it is finished as in my opinion the best as an album um yeah so good um and and there's stuff other than just the the sort of voodoo more voodoo stuff the push the pusher is on par with curtis mayfield's pusher man it's kind of the same vibe feels similar but is is quite good and there's a song on there called uh funkier than a mosquito's mosquito's tweeter which i love it's like 
it's funky as hell it's so good it's her at the at the peak of her powers and then of course as i've mentioned uh the song dumbala is a masterpiece um okay <clears throat> now 1974 not after it is finished comes out she moves to liberia kevin what do you know about here i'll ask you the heart of darkness question what do you know about liberia isn't Liberia the country in the West Coast of Africa that was formed in part to repatriate uh, African American slaves or the descendants of slaves? Yeah, yeah, it's like a tiny yeah. country in West Africa, like on the coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said so. We basically like twenty thousand free freed slaves, freeborn blacks in North America and the Caribbean were sent there in the um, like before the Civil War to basically like repatriate. But of course, there were already people living there, right? Um, and the idea was we'd send these we'd send these people back, um, like when like when when assholes like say, "Why don't you go back? If you don't like it here, why don't you go back?" Um, this was like actually an attempt to do that, I guess would be the way, one way to put it. Um, well, and, and here's the, here's the issue. So we sent, we sent these, these people went back to Liberian colon, they're colonists now. Cause they're, most of them, they're born in America. So they're coming back. They're not, it's not like they're going home. They're colonists now. Um, even if their people are from vaguely that region to begin with, um, they moved to Liberia, the colonists, the new colonists who are, you know, freeborns you know some of them had been slaves some of them were freeborn they set up an american style government and they start just fucking dominating the locals just like building plantations and putting them to work on their plantations dressing up like plantation owners like and building plantation style houses hmm. um hmm. yeah a very interesting experiment right uh and then just running roughshod, like extreme levels of racism towards the blood, the people who live in that country now called Liberia. Man, humans, fun. people never change, man. Right. People are people. Right. right. And so by the time that Nina gets there, there's an established aristocracy that's been there for a few generations. And they're dressed up in like European style finery. They wear European clothes and all of the aristocrats live very much on the coast. And they like never go inland except to like maybe check on their vast estates in which they're, hmm. you know, that's being worked just, by, by natives. Just, just like our overlords. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um so, you know, and then, and then Nina in this kind of feat of irony, she goes there and they love her because Liberia is, a, you know, in some ways a put upon country and, 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 and not, you know, it's not a world leader or something. And you get Nina Simone and she's a big deal. So, of course, she's immediately invited to the table of all of the wealthiest people in Liberia, right? She's immediately brought into the upper crust of that society. And for her, it's a mix of two things. She gets to live like a star, but she also gets to be to feel that um, that sense of home that she felt when she went to Nigeria all those years before. And the irony that she was sort of like a freedom fighter in the Americas in America and that there is a very similar um, uh, dichotomy here in Liberia does not seem to dawn on her, really, or she doesn't allow herself to realize it or something, right? Um, anyway, I think that irony is just interest an interesting part of the story. Um, now, 
since she's getting brought into this upper crust, they immediately start the the low the the their arist the aristocrats in Liberia immediately try start trying to set her up with men. <laughs> yeah, right. And <laughs> that's what that's what you do. Right. Yeah. And one of the men who like participates in this is this guy C.C. Dennis. Um, the fa- he's the father of a high government official. He's a mason. He's an aristocrat. He owns a plantation where the people who work on it call him master. Right. Um, and uh, uh, he shows up to Nina uh, at some at somebody else's house where Nina's staying, and she says, "He says, pack your bags. You're coming out to my plantation tomorrow." And she does. He's this handsome older man. He's like seventies, handsome. He's very confident, very forthright. And remember, Nina is drawn to a kind of man who's like fully put together. No, no, not even a sliver of insecurity, right? That immediately gets Nina's lights turned on, right? I I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, I think on the bell curve, that's probably your best bet is to be as solid as a rock and not insecure, Uh, but sensitive. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now Mm -hmm. she does this. She packs her bag. She comes to the plantation. The next day he tells her, we will be married in six weeks, but there is one condition, Nina. I have to find out if you can get me hard. <laughs> okay. Because he's 70 and he's had like sexual issues. Sure, sure. But he Fair this enough. is how he this is how he says it, like right mm. out. He's known mm-hmm. her for mm-hmm. like less than a day. Mm-hmm. And he's like, We will be married in six weeks if you can get me hard. So this is fantastic. So when you go on Bumble and you lead with, I am not nonviolent, the reply, when you hear that on Bumble or Tinder, the reply is, we will be married in six weeks, but first we have to see if you can get me hard. Right. (laughs) It'll it'll work. That's a code. That's how you know you've swiped on an Art of Darkness listener. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's our, uh, that's, yeah, that's, it's that's our, our little, our, uh, our little sign, our little shibboleth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, like our, I like it. Our sign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, she... <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, I, you know, to be honest, I admire this guy. I mean, this is what they talk about. They talk about a firm, you know, affirmative consent and yeah. clear boundaries. And listen, I mean, you... he didn't have a gun to her head. He didn't right. lie to her. Like, sure. I, I, Right. I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. It grates against mm. like American sensibilities. Mm. And I can mm-hmm. never see myself mm-hmm. doing that, but sure. I don't know. It worked for Nina literally did. Well, but Brad, you're a yeah. stallion. I mean, famously, I mean, everybody knows <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, oh, boy. Moving, moving on, moving on. Moving on. Yeah, Mr. Ed here. Yeah. <laughs> Nina, but here's the thing. Nina goes with it. She goes to the plantation. She tries to get him up. It, it, it. She can't seem to do it at first, and she gets freaked out. And she actually goes to America, and she, for a while, she's like, she's like stressing, like, how am I going to get this man up <laughs> I get so that he'll marry me? <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh, bizarre, wow. right? Wow, what a world. Bizarre. So she ends mm-hmm. up. It ends up not working out, but she ends up um, staying in, living in Liberia for I want to say four years, at least two years, but it might have been four years. She ends up living in Liberia. Um, she visits a witch doctor who tells her like she has a very, I mean, we might tell that story on the after dark along with the story about the black dog, the story about the medication she went on. And, uh, I had one other thing and I'd forgotten that there's so much, there's so much info. Um, oh, for the time when her violence got really out of control in the nineties and she probably all things being fair, she probably should have went to 
jail at least damn yeah um, patreon.com slash art of dark but and i yeah. imagine we're kind of coming into the home stretch here Brent, yeah, we're, as well. we're def- yeah we're definitely getting there so um okay so lives in liberia for a while um now lisa she brought her daughter to liberia with her and at some point lisa's just like i can't do this anymore and lisa goes back to the united states stays with her dad for a while eventually nina realizes how crazy it is that she's been kicking lisa around her whole life and says you know what we'll do let's put you in a boarding school in switzerland that'll solve the problem uh <laughs> so they put she puts lisa in a boarding school in geneva and then she, and then nina moves to a suburb of she's living like 30 miles from geneva um one thing i should note too part of the you, reason do she, you know what's do you know what suburb um, it is. I'm just is, curious. I do have it here someplace. Uh, Prengens. Hmm. Prengens, yeah. Switzerland. Yeah. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, part of here's here's the thing. She didn't want to go back to the United States. She thought she might never go back to the United States. Part of the reason is because she is under serious threats from the IRS at this point. Andy had apparently been <laughs> filing her taxes. But from 1971 to 1974, Nina Simone didn't file any taxes. Yeah. Um, she would yeah. later try and to pass are, it off. Yeah, go ahead. We are one of two countries, and I don't know if, if this was the case in 74. We are one of two countries where regardless of where you live, if you're an American citizen, you are taxed by the federal government. You can live in, you could live in North Korea, theoretically. Right. You, you could live in Liberia. You could live in Switzerland. Yeah. They want their pound of flesh. The only other country is Eritrea. Oh really? And yeah. you you have to renounce your citizenship in order to uh, it, yeah. be exempt of of uh, federal income taxes. So what yeah. what an odd country that we have here. We're so I think they, that that's what they call that's what they mean by American exceptionalism. I think is that no matter what, <laughs> we're going to have our fucking hand in, in right. your pocket. Right. Right. wherever you live, and then you got to pay local taxes too. So that's great. Right. Man, it's they got to like keep. Don't... Yeah. Yeah, you if you move to here. if you move to you know name a country and you have a job there and a career, you don't get to not pay their taxes just because you're an right. American. Yeah, you yeah. just pay double. It just it, it, it's just kind of that's kind of a little factoid that really gets the gears turning. It really makes you wonder what this place is and well, what, why it well, is the way that it is. Well, and then and then when people say you know we could go off on this, but like then people say, well, the justification for taxes well, is we have to pay for the services that we all have in common, right? You got to pay for the roads and pay for mm-hmm. you know whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm not living in the country. How sure. can I yeah, possibly? No, 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 no. But you, but I guarantee you're within a certain, you're within a stone's throw of some fucking military base or something, right? right? I mean, you know, right. so here yeah, we, we are defending the, yeah. yeah, I like, I like how it's like, you know, love it or leave it, but yeah. keep paying tax. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You literally can't. Because it's can't so easy. It. Yeah. yeah. What, did, what did Wallabeck say? There's no Israel for me. I mean, mm. it's just, you know, it, we have this entire country is defined by Stockholm syndrome. Anyway, moving yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Moving rapidly on. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> Nina moves to Switzerland. Her mental state is not good. Okay. The more time she spends, one thing to think about, the more time she spends alone, the worse. Neither is Nina. mine after this yeah. episode, man. <laughs> I'm starting to crack. <laughs> Same. She moves to Switzerland. She doesn't know anybody. And Switzerland, if you liked living in Liberia, the next place to go on your list is not Switzerland. And this is, I'm not saying anything bad about either one of them, but that you, is you know what I mean. Fire and ice. <laughs> right. You're going from, I don't know how they talk in, in, in Liberia, but then you go to yeah. Switzerland. It's Grüß Gott. Right. Grüzi. Hello. Hallo. Hello. I mean, right. she's in the French part. French speaking yeah. part, but I mean, it's yeah. just they, they I, 
two countries could probably not be more different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now let me Crazy. read from the bio- let me read from the biography. <clears throat> Nina Simone's stay in Switzerland is shrouded in mystery. In this country, where secrecy is part of the culture, where the obsessive sense of order and discretion in all things can make you nervous if you don't share this virtues, it seems impossible to wholly lift the veil on what is re- what really happened during those years. I've heard some of the strangest stories about this time, that she could be seen wandering like a tortured soul through the streets of Nyon and its surroundings, that she underwent a whole range of medical checkups at the Guenelier Institute, which specialized in oncology, cardiology, surgery, and anti-aging treatments. That one night, clearly in a state of anguish, uh, she grabbed a revolver and fired it into the air from the front steps of her house. That for some time, she lived with another woman, Susan Bauman, who was Nina's governess, friend and manager. I have been told disturbing but unverifiable stories about Nina occasionally hooking up with rich and discreet men so as to ensure a comfortable lifestyle, or perhaps merely to survive. However, what we do know is that Nina was totally out of her element in Switzerland. Could there be a country further removed from Liberia? It says it right there. Um, okay. She doesn't have much money. She doesn't know very many people in Switzerland. She decides to, um, at some point she does have to come back to the stage. She hasn't played. There's a point where she doesn't play a show for, I think like five years, four years. Um, and she makes her return to the stage at the Montreux jazz festival. Uh, uh, let me read a little bit about that. Um, it's kind of interesting. This is one you can see some, you can, if you took, uh, 1976 Montreux jazz festival, Nina Simone, you can, you can watch parts of it. Um, quote, this 1976 concert has entered the mythology of the Montreux Jazz Festival as one of the most chaotic, extravagant and explosive events that the festival has ever known. More than 30 years later, it exemplifies for those who took part or caught it on television, the folly, excess and art of Nina Simone. Excuse me. I had the chance to visit. uh, Hold on. This is a. Let me skip that. This is a description of her in this performance. Cropped hair, eyelids painted blue. She had a wild look about her in her belted black dress. The only decoration she wore that night was a heavy silver necklace set with a large precious stone. Her silhouette had thickened, but she retained some of her athletic lines. Her bare arms were surprisingly muscular, and during this concert of extremes, her movements would be surprisingly supple, giving off a fascinating sensuality. Nina was visibly anxious as she hit the stage. She appeared vulnerable, shifting between discomfort, laughter, and stage fright. Her movements were slow and sensuous. A certain hardness radiated from her, yet her femininity dazzled from the first. After taking their applause, Nina faced the audience and said, I haven't seen you since 1968. I decided not to play jazz festivals anymore. But here, of course, it's different. Now, joined by a percussionist and a drummer sporting large Afro hairstyles, the diva turned to her piano and played Little Girl Blue. She began singing, All You Can Ever Count On Is Yourself, Little Lady, then interrupted her song with a cry of Emoja, which was a man that she had a relationship with in in, uh, Liberia. Not the the guy who, like, demanded things from her, but another guy. Um, Moving on, she stood from her stool with a look of defiance on her face and a hand uh, elegantly placed on her piano, fixed the audience with an icy stare. Full of pride, she seemed to be challenging them. Applause started to ripple through the crowd. After delay, as if intimidated, satisfied, Nita sat back down at her piano and lingered on the melody of Little Girl Blue. She asked for her mic stand, which was slowly sinking, to be repositioned. While a festival technician was adjusting it, she addressed the audience and said, You didn't forget me. I didn't think you would. Okay, but in Switzerland, she starts to break down. Again, the more time she spends by herself, the more she falls apart. It's a process that will take 
12 years to fully bottom out in the 80s. Um, she started having hallucinations. She would have two to three month spells where she wasn't even like sure exactly where she was just lost in this house in Switzerland. Um, she was constantly waiting on this lover from Liberia to come up and join her, which it's not clear that that was ever going to happen or she'd even, this guy had even suggested it would happen. Um, at one point, I'm going to speed through some of this. At one point she goes back to Liberia to try to get this guy, this lover of hers, Emoja, and she runs into a Liberian businessman. This Liberian businessman says, you know, Nina, I've got connections in London. I can get your career back on track. And so he and her go to London. They stay in the, the Carlton Tower Hotel, five-star hotel. And he's supposedly making deals. And at some point, the manager of the hotel, after four or five days, comes up to Nina and says, Nina, um, we're going to need you to pay your bill. And Nina says, uh, he's this guy, he's paying it. Right. Like I don't, he brought me, I don't have anything to do with this. And anyway, this leads to a fight with this Liberian businessman. He punches her in the neck, like knocks her out unconscious, steals everything from her and disappears. So she's stranded in a five-star hotel oh. by herself with no money. God, she, that's not a good, that's not a good town to be stuck in no. with no money. I would tell you what she ends up in this period trying to kill herself. She she eats oh. like a whole bottle of sleeping pills because it's just like I have nowhere to, I there's nowhere for me to go from here. Like that it's so it's over. unbelievable. Yeah. The woman who recorded all of those great songs, man. Right, right, right. Um, mm. and so the seventies, the late seventies and the eighties, kind of go like this. It's 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 like one step. It's like one and a half steps forward, <laughs> one full step back. You know, she can never quite get traction. Um, at some point she, uh, she moves to France in 1981 legend has it that she showed up in France with $50 in her pocket. And that was it supposedly, um, you know, how true is that? Who's to say, but it would explain how she came to live there. Um, apparently she was a total mess in the eighties in Paris dressed the, her clothing was, she was almost in rags. Um, she lived in a tiny, terribly filthy little apartment, um, How can these things happen? I don't <laughs> understand. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like Amy Winehouse. I, I, yeah. I, I don't get it. Oh, yeah, that's why we do this show, though. Right. Yeah. You have to think before 1971, where all of her biggest hits were, none of that money is hers. Oh, my God. None of it. Right. right. And she and, and it sounds like she's in such a state that she can't she can't play six nights a week in a matinee oh, it's tough it's tough to yeah. do man and she, she can't, can't again the, the the bipolar has gotten kind of out of control and she's not doing mm. anything to keep it in, in the rats. right and her yeah. her set isn't like to play the hits right here we go right. here's the it's, a it's here's like the i'm gonna here's everything i've got do, is gonna do, go into do. this yeah yeah yeah, yeah. she yeah. can't yeah, and I'm going to yeah, be haunted yeah. by the melody for hours and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's a real shaman. Yeah, 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 yeah for yeah. sure. And and so, it, you know, and there's a the documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone, you can see um, they put on screen some of her like just snapshots of her notebook during this time. And it's just like, it's just like any notepad you might have where you're like writing down notes to self. And it is absolutely chaotic. Like it looks like the thoughts it looks like somebody who cannot string two thoughts together. Um, and she's, she's clearly like losing her mind um, or has already lost it. Um, she eventually does get a deal playing this little tiny club inside a building that dates all the way back to the construction of Notre Dame. And she, it can seat about a hundred people, right? 
Um, and she starts playing there basically every night. Um, let me see if I can find this little bit about that. Um, so this would be 1980, like 283. Um, let's see. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Quote. Still, this is the place where Nina tried to get her career and finances back on track and to regain her mental balance. She made a pretty good living with Jacques Bonnet. He's the guy who runs this this, this small club in, in Paris. Not least because tickets to her concerts cost 100 francs, the, pian the pianist making between 10 and 15,000 francs a night, depending on attendance, which was excellent considering the capacity of the venue. Word spread across Paris like wildfire. Nina is playing at some tiny club in the Latin Quarter. The news was barely believable. Uh, the audience would come and stand in the stifling heat to watch her inconsistent concerts that featured the same repertoire night after night, seeing her randomly alternate between magic and mediocrity, scandals and genius, anger and moments of pure grace. At her most amazing, Nina could literally transport you somewhere else, Jacques Boney recalls. When someone, uh, when someone can make you feel that way even just once, it makes you hope to experience it again one day. And so the public kept coming back just to relive the moment of pure magic, even though just a few minutes later she might break the charm and start to yell at you. Okay. <laughs> um, now, here's another thing. Here's this continuing. The French, the French deserve that. They deserve yeah. <laughs> all that, all that yelling. <laughs> um, here's a, here's another bit. Just what did Nina Simone's Parisian life consist of in those days? A succession of hotel rooms, no friends to speak of except for Jacques Bonnet, no steady lovers, just one night stands where Nina turned into a sexual predator, sometimes offering these men money in exchange for a night of passion, occasionally getting ripped off in the process. Right. So the sex thing was was whoops. This, the, Getting too sex sexy here. Brad's dropping the literature. I got all, I got all hot and bothered. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Calm down. Yeah. Calm down. Now, now, by 1984, she builds this up into what I think is her last good album. Uh, this is live at Ronnie Scott's, which comes up eventually comes out in 1987. Ronnie Scott's is a is a well known uh, venue in London. I, I think it still operates, but certainly was a big deal at the time. Um, but nonetheless, these 80s, one thing we have to think of the 80s literally is a gradual slide into insanity. She is able to pull together to do some shows here and there, but it, she would get confused about where she was. She would get violent. She would pull knives on people a lot of times. She pulled knives on people. She pulled a gun on a, a, a record label producer in 1985 and took a couple shots at him. Um, saying that she was trying to kill him because she he owed her money. Who even knows if he owed her money or not? Um, she would scream at people. Uh, she played a show in Canada at some point in the mid to late 80s and disappeared after the show, was found on a railway platform two days later and didn't know who she was. Uh, she would strip down naked to swim in hotel pools. Uh Shoot. That's ba that is based. That <laughs> I mean, why not? If, I mean, know? listen, if you're, a, I'm, a, I'm genius, a star. They darling. let you do it. I'm a star, yeah. darling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, she sounds. Yeah, that BPD uh, diagnosis does. I don't. We don't. I don't know. We're not big yeah. on like the DSM five, no. but this is a. This feels like a case of that for sure. Right, right, right. And and you know, she wasn't taking care of her hygiene. Again, I don't cook. I don't clean. Well, that's cool when you're a millionaire. It's not so great when you got $50 in your pocket, right? Um, so, but she does, she comes back from this somehow. How does she come back from this? Well, 
a bunch of people who care about her swoop in to take care of her. Um, she had a tendency to use people in these later years. And, and you, when you're desperate, there is going to be a certain amount of that, of using people, right? Because you're trying to keep from dying. Um, but people would swoop in to take care of her, you know, and she would kind of go through them much the way that, you know, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to be very careful about saving a drowning person. You have to be very careful about trying to rescue Nina Simone in the, in the eighties. Um, some of them, some of these people did it just because they loved her. Some of these people did it, um, like the drummer Paul Robinson, who would work with her from like eighty three or eighty four all the way up into her death. He thought she was a genius. He was just like, I, the, I want to play with her, so I'll, I'll put up with all this, <laughs> basically. Um, uh, she made a, a Dutch friend, this guy Garrett De Bruyne, who got her to move to the Netherlands in nineteen eighty eight. Uh, he got her to move to the Netherlands and then he got her through a doctor diagnosed finally, um, with bipolar disorder and she gets prescribed trifolone and trifolone, as long as she stays on, it seems to help her like kind of stay reasonable, but she would go off of it a lot of times. And we're going to talk more about trifolone in the after dark and the effects it may have had on her. Um, uh, a devoted fan became one of her very best friends and became part of her, her inner circle. This guy named Roger Noopy. Um, he just loved her work and he was an archivist of her work and he would bring flowers to all of her shows. And eventually he showed up enough that they were like, hey, Nina needs help with something. And uh, suddenly he's in the inner circle, you know. Um, uh, yeah, so we're getting close to the end here. She moves to um, 1987. Chanel number five uses Nina's 1957 recording of my baby just cares for me in a commercial and it becomes a huge hit. They re-release this 30 year old song and then it goes gold in France and platinum in England. And she's literally a star again. Love it. Sort of like, I'm glad. Good. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Um, it's enough money that she's going to be okay from here on out, at least, even if nothing more, you know, even if she never sells another album again, um, and there's now there's, you know, some renewed interest, a lawyer at this time decides to take on her case and gets her, um, rights to a bunch of her recordings in the fifties. They re-release some material or some money coming in that way. Um, so she's stable. So we can think of her last 15 to 20, eh, 15 years after being $50 $50 in her pocket in in showing up in France to, you know, 10 years later, she's a reasonably well-off woman. Um, 1993, she gets a house near um, uh, Provence in the south of France. She releases her final album, The Single Woman. Now, it'd be one thing, a lot of us, maybe we would get to that position of relative stability and we'd be like, okay, well, we made it. We're all right. We're just going to bide our time through the lessons. Hey, you know, I'll make a little music. I'll show up to a show here and there. We're good. We got out of this darkness, right? We, we lost our fortune. We made another one. You know, we we went to Liberia. Oh, the one thing about Liberia, I should mention too. She wanted to live there forever, right? That's where she was going to make her home. And she kind of bails on it. That guy, C.C. Dennis, that like basically imposed himself on her was like, you know, six, we'll get married in six weeks. If you can get me a bone, give me, give me hard. Eight years after that, he would be murdered by revolutionaries on the beach. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she would have been, she would have been right there beside him probably. And he got hard one last time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, 
There's you know, nothing like the death boner. Right. Right. Nothing. Well, that's what I hear. That's the that's finest. That's the finest erection you'll ever have. That's that's right. That's right. We're but you talk won't about even have. In, you won't even. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even know. We're going to be talking about that on the William S. Burroughs episode, probably. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. The death erection. Yeah. Um, let's not call this episode the death erection of Nina Simone. Uh, no, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna call this. <laughs> we're gonna call this Nina Simone saves our lives. Oh, okay, okay, I like this. Um, now, so again, she reaches this point of relative stability in France. She's got some money. She has a house. She has people taking care of us. The problem is, anytime she needs to have somebody with her at all times. They have to keep her on her medication. Somebody has to make sure that she's eating reasonably well, that she keeps on some kind of schedule, or she will slip into despair and go off her medication and start having hallucinations probably. Um, There's also this thing where she's not a star like she used to be, and she's not rich like she used to be. She's not the object of sexual attention like she used to be, right? And I think Nina did not deal with any of that particularly well. I mean, she sort of survived it, but I don't think, I don't think mentally or emotionally she dealt with that particularly well. Um, there's a bunch of wild stories from the nineties. And I mean, we're talking, she's getting into her sixties at this point. Um, she drunkenly almost burned down her house in the South of France. Um, when she moved from when she moved to the place in France, all of her friends showed up to help her move, and she was on vacation in Ghana. She was just like, "All right, go ahead and take care of that. That's cool. Thanks." Um, that is a bitch move. It is. That yeah. is a diva move. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. No good. Yeah. 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 She had a 1994. She has a love affair with a man in Tunisia who's 25 years old, which age gap. That uh, rocks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get your bingo uh, cards out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I hope we get a I hope uh Pee-wee comes through with a Ooh, season four yeah. bingo card. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Pee Wee, if you're out there, you know where to find us. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully he can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um in nineteen ninety-four, she has a nervous breakdown, which causes her to cancel a major concert. And then, of course, was the time she took a few shots. Well, we're going to get into that in the after dark. The time where her violence got out of control and she Mm. probably should have done some jail time. That happened in the early 90s. Um, Her 1993 autobiography. And I have to gloss over some of this because if I go blow by blow, it's I'm trying to give you the sense of what it what her life was like. It's chaos for about 30 years straight it's absolute chaos some of it self-inflicted some of it she stumbles into um now 1993 there's an autobiography this autobiography i put a spell on you comes out and and you don't get this from reading the book the crazy story of trying to write that book she went through a whole bunch of co-writers um amiri baraka and nikki giovanni at different times were assigned to it they both quit they were like i am not working with this lady (laughs) This is too much. Whoa. There, yeah. Okay. There was, yeah. there was another couple ghostwriters or co-writers that she fired just randomly. And then finally it fell to the Stephen Cleary guy. And apparently it was a nightmare for him. Um, just, just trying to, we're keeping the story straight. She would tell you one thing one day and told, tell you totally different thing the next day. She, well, she couldn't string events together. I mean, you live a life that chaotically she couldn't, she had very poor recall of what the sequence of events of her life were even, hmm. um, yeah um now through the 90s she would play periodic concerts 
um, to her last show, which is actually in the same year that she died in 2003. And her final decade, she went through a number of people in her, her inner circle, the last group kind of pushing out the former. And of course, it becomes a kind of a, a there's multiple sides to the story. You know, everybody is pointing the fingers at somebody else in her circle, accusing them of, I'm not going to try to get mired in it or adjudicate who is right. But there's a lot of finger pointing. You come in to try and like help Nina. And are you helping her? Or are you trying to get the money? Are you trying to take advantage of her fame? There's a guy yeah. who came in to that quote unquote help her who was clearly just wanted to get on stage with her. And he did. Um, there were a lot of people that got kind of pushed out. The Garrett De Bruyne guy who helped her get diagnosed and probably saved her life in, in 87. He gets pushed out by a new guy. Um, and this guy, Clifton Henderson and Clifton keeps telling, um, uh, Garrett De Bruyne, he keeps saying, no, Nina doesn't want to see you. Nina doesn't want to talk to you. And one day Garrett De Bruyne just shows up at the house and Nina's like, Garrett, where have you been? Why haven't, why don't you call? Why don't you visit? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So she's getting manipulated and like getting, it seems to be getting kind of isolated off and it's creepy and weird. Gross. And, uh, yeah. Right. Gross. Um, so there's, it, it's kind of chaotic. And again, I don't want to do blow by blow what all happened there, but just know that like she survived and it got stable, but there were vultures circling even like to the last day. Um, yeah. Um, and this is kind of it. I mean, 2000, I think 2002, she gets breast cancer. She gets diagnosed with breast cancer. She may have had it before then. Um, she did some degree before then, but who knows how long she suffered with it exactly. Um, and let me read this last little bit, and this is going to be kind of the end of the Nina Simone story, um, for now, um, another banger, Thanks, another banger. Man. This one was really enjoyable, Brad. I didn't Good. expect her to be this, um, to her, for her life to be this chaotic. Oh, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. I thought of her as like a grand dame of the, of soul. Mm -hmm. and of, of jazz and uh i didn't expect to see her kind of destitute uh, I, I didn't and i never would have expected her to get beaten by her cop fiance uh and then go through with the marriage it's very surprising yeah 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 so let <clears throat> me read this here um this is from the biography quote she had told garrett her friend several times i'll die when i'm 70 because after that it's all just pain Nina had also confided in Roger Noopy, the guy who was sort of a groupie, but became her part of her inner circle. Groupie she Noopy. Said, groupie Noopy. He's, uh, she said, I've not had the life I wanted as I wanted it, but I'll die when I want to. Secluded away in her Carrie LaRuette house, kept in a bed by a cancer that had now spread a growing tumor in her brain, making speech difficult, Nina gradually let herself fade away. Far from all this craziness, from these guys that I have been told forgot about her in her room. So apparently these people knew people taking care of her, like just, you know, ignored her essentially while she's, you know, living in the mansion that living in the mansion that she bought. Um, Raymond Gonzalez, who was uh, one of her managers at one point, even confirmed, quote, in the end, no one helped her to even go to the toilet. She was left to do it in her bed. Far from the guys that didn't answer when she begged for a bit of company who were happy to simply feed her and forget about her the rest of the time, uh, she wanted to leave, Roger told me. She wanted to get out of that shit, just to die. 
What a tragic sequence of circumstances. <clears throat> a few years before, uh, before, before Nina's interests and her friendship got away from them, Raymond and Garrett had thought they would be able to release those hundreds of hours of unheard recordings and thus guarantee Nina peace in her final days. Those royalties would have paid for her house in the south of France, financed the construction of her home in Ghana. She could have spent the spring and the summer in France and the rest of the year in Africa, they thought. <clears throat> she would have been visited frequently and people would have made sure she was well looked after. She would have had a happy life more or less but that's not how things panned out nina faded away in a beautiful house a few yards from the sea during the last few months of her life she was unable to walk or get down the stairs on her own she was racked with fear of dying alone upstairs in her room while she could hear them laughing and scheming in the living room nina no longer had the strength to fight or to throw them out as she would have done in times gone by nina the trapped tigress had become dependent cut off from her old friends and in her agony no longer even dared to get annoyed quote, for fear that they would, wouldn't would feed or wash her anymore, according to Garrett. Clifton Henderson and uh, Javier Collado, the inner circle at that time, of course, deny this. Um, Nina Simone died on 21st of April, 2003, in her house in Carrie Le Rouet at the age of 70. According to Clifton Henderson, who was at her bedside, quote, Nina hadn't been feeling well for a while. She died of natural causes. In truth, cancer had spread through her body and overcame her. Um, the funeral took place on the 25th of April, 2003. A mass was held in the Notre Dame de l'Ascension Church in Carrelo-Rouette in the presence of 300 people, including Henderson. Nailed it. Yeah, did <laughs> got it. Uh, Javier <laughs> Colado, her drummer Paul Robinson, uh, her daughter Lisa, Miriam uh, Makiba, and Is Isabella Turin. A message from Elton John rested on a pet bed of yellow roses saying, quote, we were the greatest and I love you. Shortly after Nina's death, Elton John declared to the journalist Ingrid Shishki, I think she was the greatest female artist of the 20th century. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Brad, I salute you. Are you not entertained? Are you not informed? <laughs> this is the Art of Darkness podcast. Great work, Brad. I know how Thanks, you man. probably have a tickle in your throat. Uh, yes, I'm going to ask and answer the question. Okay. Uh, what do you what do you think Nina Simone would be doing now? I'm going to give you a little a little breather. Yeah, thank it's you. so difficult to say because you think about her. She lived until what? 2003. So she lived yeah. to see 9-11, uh, whatever that means. And yeah. how she'd old be, was she when she died? She'd be 90 now. She was yeah. seven when she died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think she was she was a musician through and through. You'd like to think that she would one day maybe realize her her piano dream mm. uh it is just she's go such out and a, play some Bach yeah just yeah. go and do that uh yeah. and and people will probably but she she was I think she was a shaman despite herself I think she was uh yeah and Elton John saying she was the greatest art, you know, female artist of the 20th century. You could definitely make a case. I love yeah. that she's like a second example that we've had so far of someone who's like, well, I guess I'll be a famous, <laughs> you know, right. it's like Bolaño. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I'll yeah. write a novel yeah. and that'll sell. Like just right. the assumption that like, oh, I'm going to slum it in the novel. Right. Well, I'm gonna slum it <laughs> in. At, I'm gonna slum it at the Montreux Jazz Fest. Right, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I'll play Carnegie yeah. Hall, but I'm not gonna get to play what I want. Right, oh. right, right. Like, yeah. What yeah, a yeah. what a vibe. So, yeah. Yeah. what do you think? What do you think she'd be doing? I, I mean, I think she continues. I, you know, the one thing that 
maybe we didn't quite capture it was the range of her tastes in music. I mean, she has an album where she does three George Harrison covers, right? Love it. And and, and so I, I kind of wonder like how what what we never got to see was the Nina Simone version of the Johnny Cash American Records albums. That's what we never got to see. And if that kind of thing would have happened, it would have been amazing, frankly. You know, Rick Rubin or somebody like that gets their hands on it. It's like, Nina, let's let's make the music you want to make. What do you want to make? Yeah, Nina Simone covers Closer. Right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> really. Yeah, Nina Simone <laughs> yeah. covers... Uh, you know, uh, it smells like teen spirit. <laughs> Something that I mean, yeah. that, yeah. that would be fascinating. Knows, well, we're right? going to come back. Yeah, dude. Great work, yeah. Brad. Always love these core episodes that you do. Mm-hmm. I'm preparing Hessa. I'm preparing yeah. John Lennon. Who do you have next to, uh, to Brad? Oh, I, I, my next episode is in season four. We're talking William S. Burroughs. All right. The re- I'm the redo. Yeah. Burroughs Redux. I'm a little yeah. behind the eight ball here. I got, I, I, I'm going to try to get two episodes in before the end of the year. Do we'll it. get to them when we get to them. Yeah. Uh, we love all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Y'all make Art of Darkness what it is. There's no way Brad and I would be doing this podcast if one, we weren't getting Patreon support. And two, if people weren't listening at this point, we would have quit long yeah. ago. These episodes, <laughs> yeah. These core episodes take a hell of a long time to prepare. We put in the work, really do consider supporting the podcast. Brad's going to come back on the After Dark for Patreon and tell us three more stories. We'll cut loose a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Brad, what do you got for After Dark? Remind me one more time. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about the effect that Trilophon, the pharmaceutical drug that that probably saved Nina's life the other effects it might have had on her and how it might explain some things that went on in her life in after 1988. We're also going to talk about the time that her violence got really out of control and uh, into beyond inexcusable territory. It's quite a story. And we're also going to talk about um, the relationship Nina may have had with a spectral figure out of English folklore. Only for Patreon. That's right. Meantime, I'm going to go put a spell on you. Because you're mine. (laughs) I promise he won't be singing on the afternoon. No worries. (laughs) Great work, Brad. Thanks, man.